Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Mormon Stories Podcast. I am your host slash co-host, John DeLynn. Uh, We are here today for our third sit-down with uh, Dr. Robert Rittner, Egyptologist at the University of Chicago. We have had overwhelmingly positive responses to the, our two sit-downs with Dr. Rittner. We're so grateful for his time. Uh, our first interview, we talked about kind of the backstory of uh, the Book of Abraham, and then we talked about Facsimile 1, and then in, in Part 2, we talked about Facsimiles 2 and 3. We are so excited to now um, go on to talk about other really important events and research in the history of the Book of Abraham. Of course, we are joined by the wonderful, the talented, the brilliant RFM. RFM, thanks for joining us. Well, good morning to you too, John. Thanks for the compliments. My pleasure. You can check out uh, RFM's podcast at RadioFreeMormon.org. It's uh, taken the world of Mormonism by storm. And uh, and yes, Dr. Rittner, thank you so much for joining us today on Mormon Stories Podcast. Happy to be here. Just a couple house cleaning items. First and foremost, uh, we we want to mention at the beginning of every episode that, and at the end, that Dr. Rittner is facing kidney failure and is in need of a living donor to secure his life and continued research. Uh, so if you're able to help, please contact Dana McLean, Northwestern Medicine Transplant Coordinator at 312-695-0828. And you will be required to give both Dr. Rittner's name and his birth date. The birth date is May 5th, 1953. That's May 5th, 1953. Phone number is 312-695-0828. The person to contact is Dana McLean. We really, really want to come out of this series of interviews um, uh, a successful transplant and the extension of Dr. Rittner's life. So, Let's make sure and mention that at the beginning. I also want to mention at the beginning something we've mentioned before, which is most of you will be listening to this through audio. I want to remind everyone that, number one, we have two previous interviews, if you're joining us for the first time, that are phenomenal. But secondly, you will get so much more out of this discussion if you're actually looking at the images uh, on YouTube. So if you go to the Mormon Stories uh, YouTube page, you can pull up the YouTube videos of this interview, or this will be streamed and in- included on the Mormon Stories Podcast Facebook page as well. And you can look at the images to follow along. Now, having said that, this is also available through RFM's podcast, which is amazing, and the Mormon Stories, you know, iTunes or audio feed. So if, if you can only join us through audio, I th- we still think we're, we will do our best to describe everything we're seeing so that you get the full experience. But uh, we just want to let you know to get the full experience, you'll benefit from the visuals on YouTube or the Facebook page. So with that, um, let, before we jump into the main substance of today's discussion, we have a few items uh, to discuss in response to some reactions to our first two episodes. And I think, Dr. Rittner, one of the first questions you were asked is, what can you tell us about any or at least one of the paintings uh, above or around you. Do you want to respond to that listener's question? Well, the one directly over my head is a reproduction of uh, Jean-André Richen's 
painting the death of Cleopatra, which is now in the Toulouse Museum in France. And the one over the door is one of my favorite mummy movies, uh, Pharaoh's Curse, which has a uh, one of the Egyptian workers possessed by a mummy inside the tomb. And so you have a mummy walking around inside a galabea, uh, wearing one of the uh, kaftans that's typical of Egyptian peasants now. I love it. Okay. Um, I think the next item of business if I'm wrong, is to talk about the Fair Voice podcast. Is that right? I think so. Okay, so if you're looking at the screen now, what we're showing you is a recent Fair Voice podcast. For those who don't know, Fair stands for the Foundation of Apologetic and Information Research. Fair Mormon is the one of the main uh, arms of Mormon apologetics for the Mormon Church. And this is episode number five of Fair Voices podcast, an interview with John Gee on the Book of Abraham. And what it is, is about a about an hour long interview uh, of John Gee by Hannah Syriac, S-E-A-R-I-A-C. And I believe it's in response to an interview that uh, RFM did with our own dear friend and courageous scholar, Brian Haglid. Do you want to give a quick background of that? RFM, just so people know what we're talking about, and maybe just a tiny bit about the contents of the interview. There's my mute button. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Uh, this appeared uh, in uh, you, where you said it appeared, and it appeared shortly before uh, our interview, or at least part two of our interview with Dr. Rittner. Dr. Rittner responded to the allegation made in it about how his uh, dissertation Dr. Rittner's dissertation about human sacrifice in ancient Egypt contradicted his current position that there was no human sacrifice in ancient Egypt. And we covered that in some detail in part two of this podcast. But it did appear that it might have been something done in relation to Brian Hauglid's interview on my podcast at Radio Free Mormon. And I say that because at the beginning, Hannah Syriac, the host, references she says an article written by uh, Brian Hauglis. She actually uses his name. And I don't know if she's talking about the podcast. Uh, it seems likely it would have been about the podcast. And she even says that it has caused a lot of concern among a lot of members of the church that maybe the book of Abraham is not true. And so, therefore, the balance of the interview with John Gee is showing how that's not correct, and actually the Book of Abraham is true and manifests many remarkable connections to the ancient Egyptian world. Give our listeners just a 30-second description of Brian Hauglid and why he's so important and why he's causing some consternation or concern up at BYU. Brian Hauglid is very important because he is a recently retired professor at BYU in the uh, religion department. And he has been involved, at least in the past, in the apologetic efforts relating to the Book of Abraham. As recently as 10 years ago in 2010, he was writing apologetic articles relating to the Book of Abraham. And over the course of a number of years, as he investigated it further, he began to conclude that those arguments really did not hold water. And the additional things he was discovering as he researched the Book of Abraham, actually in an attempt to prove it true, Sound like a familiar story, John? Yes. In, a, in an attempt to prove it true, it ended up kind of unraveling 
before his eyes. In other words, a hand grenade that he was juggling blew up. Is that basically what you're saying? Yes, it blew up. It flew <laughs> off into the audience and it blew up. Yes, I, we have reason to believe that that's, it was Brian Hauglid that John Gee was uh, referring to when he mentioned that in his Fair Mormon presentation a couple of years ago. Anyway, anyway, he has since uh, made public his view about the book of Abraham uh, and specifically calling out John Gee and Carrie Muelstein by name and referring to their apologetics as abhorrent, and that's a quote-unquote, abhorrent apologetics. So he has rapidly become persona non grata among John Gee, Carrie Muelstein, and the other apologists, both at BYU and at Fair Mormon, and so he is now experiencing the wrath of Gee. And in your wonderful interview with Brian Hoglet, I just have to mention, one of the most disturbing parts of that for me was hearing that in the final several years of Brian Hoglet's time at BYU, where he must have worked close to John Gee in the same building, maybe down the hall, I don't know the their geographic locations from each other. Didn't he say in your wonderful interview with Brian Hoglet that, that John Gee wouldn't speak to him for the final several years that he was at BYU? Yes, Brian is dead to John Gee. Just because they disagree on the historicity of the Book of Abraham, basically. Apparently. Yeah. Okay, so that's a lot of backstory. Now let's get in Dr. Rittner. Dr. Rittner, um, what is it that you wanted to maybe discuss or respond to regarding um, Hannah uh, Syriac's interview of John Gee on Fair Voice Podcast in relation to you? Well, I've actually responded to the the podcast that was that we did last time, but there is a, an additional remark made by Hannah apparently on Facebook that was pointed out to me by one of the many, many, many letters I have received from fans of your show who've been listening in. And this particular writer informed me that on Facebook she had indicated that a problem with my interpretations is that I take a position and Egyptology is not monolithic. So what I'd like to do is just for a second move over and look at another alternative example of how to interpret facsimile one as done by one of my colleagues, the deceased now Lanny Bell, who was brought into this project at the same time that I was back in 2002 for a uh, for a DVD entitled The Lost Book of Abraham. He subsequently published an article in a fest shrift, a, a, a celebratory retirement volume for the scholar litter Lesko at Brown University. And this is Lanny's interpretation. So tell our and listeners what we see here. What you're seeing is the lion bed with the body of Osiris lying on it, he, he has upraised two hands. There is no bird flying directly above him. There is no phallus, and Anubis is simply holding out a cup in his hand, and Anubis's head is white. Those are the distinctions. And the bird is human-headed. The issues here are questions of how do you restore a damaged text, because everything that I've described to you are the parts that are actually broken away. No one is disputing what is there on the surviving papyrus. 
So when the remark is made is that Egyptology is not monolithic, it is in fact monolithic on certain basics. So that no one is disputing, none of my colleagues is disputing that the jugs that are underneath the lion bed are the four sons of Horus. No one is disputing that the bed is a bed, not an altar. No one is disputing that the body lying on the bed is Osiris. And no one is disputing that Anubis is the dark figure on the left-hand side. So I would posit to you that what we're, what we're actually dealing with are, are fine points where it is possible to have disagreement, particularly where images are not preserved. So we move on to the next slide. Here we can see a whole series of examples of Anubis. These are all taken from actual Egyptian wall paintings or paintings on coffins. And you can see the posture of Anubis with, the, with Osiris in various different forms. Anubis can be holding a, 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 an instrument in the middle, upper middle, where he's, it's a, looks like an adze, which is used to symbolically open the mouth of the mummy so he will breathe and eat again. You can see it sometimes with bobbers floating above, sometimes not. And in the lower right, you can see him holding a cup, like what Lanny Bell restored in his example. So these are all reasonable possibilities. One can dispute them. The fact that it's Anubis hovering over the body, however, is indisputable. And the use of the four sons of Horus is pretty typical. Again, you can see that example on the lower right. So on the bigger image, there is not disagreement. But the bigger issue is that there is nothing I can do if some individual wants to say, ah, well, at one point there was an Egyptologist who said, well, maybe this one tiny little detail might indicate it's okay. Because the issue here is not whether one tiny little detail is okay with what Joseph Smith did. The issue, as I stressed before, is that you have to interpret the entire picture, not just one tiny little aspect of it. And that brings us to the issue of the four sons of Horus yet again. I, another reader suggested, oh, well, in a volume by Manfred Lucher out in Germany, the discussion of Egyptian religious symbolism, it is noted that the four sons of Horus can be linked to the four directions. Well, I pointed that out last time. Yes, it is possible to link them to the four directions. They do not, however, represent the four directions. If you want to actually represent the earth in its four quarters, i.e. what are the symbolic representations of north, south, east, and west, those I provided last time in extensive detail. The question is, can they not represent it but simply be linked to it? Yes, that's possible. And the bigger problem there is that the canopic jar, specifically linked to Elkena, is linked to the direction west of Egypt, not west of Syria, but west of Egypt in the one documented piece that John Gee indicates where it shows the linkage between these four deities and the cardinal directions. 
So the bigger picture doesn't fit because it would mean that Abraham going to Elkanah was going somewhere into Libya, modern Libya. And that's simply impossible. So it is the bigger picture, picture that makes the issue. I'd also like to point out that I've had a bit of uh, a revelation of my own while thinking about this material. If we could go on to the next slide. Okay, let me pull it up. Um, this is just a remark about why the images that we have are really, really certainly understandable as Anubis leaning over Osiris. This is a, a statement I made back in 2002 for a documented uh, DVD on the lost book of Abraham. And I said, if you took a painting of Madonna and child and you tore off the, the heads of both figures and you replaced them with a dog and a cat, it would be as obvious to us now that this is wrong as the replacing of the clearly jackal head with a human head on this Egyptian piece, because we know what these images actually look like. So we have in our own society a knowledge of certain iconographic images, the, to be redundant, uh, Madonna and child. Everyone knows a Madonna and child, whether you're Catholic or not. So we can recognize that because it's part of our common shared culture. So that if we were to substitute the heads on that with something outrageous, we would all recognize it as a monolith, despite what Syriac suggests. We would know that that didn't fit because of our own experience. And we can say the same thing about this Anubis figure. For Egyptologists to actually know what this material looked like, who've seen thousands of examples, there is no disputing those things. So the crux of this identification, that facsimile one represents human sacrifice, is destroyed if this image is proved to be fake news. Because there is no sacrifice being depicted in facsimile one, there never was. And that means that it doesn't really matter whether there ever was or was not human sacrifice in Egypt. Because it's not on facsimile one, it never was. And therefore there is no evidence to back up the notion that's, that's, being, that's taking place in the description of the book of Abraham which describes Egyptian use of human sacrifice in a Syrian city, not even in Egypt. And that is another fact which none of the apologists want to deal with, because why would Egyptian sacrificial rites be practiced in Syria? That would not happen. So first of all, they're rare to almost non-existent in Egypt itself. It, as a normal practice, it doesn't exist. And it certainly isn't being practiced by Egyptian priests who did not operate in some part of northern Syria, which apparently would be in Libya, according to Joseph Smith's designation of Elkanah as being associated with Kebesinueth, who only represents the West. So none of this works in the bigger picture. And that is what has to be understood. These sniping little remarks about, oh, well, if we only look at one tiny little part of it, we can squeeze that into making sense. That's an act of desperation. But as I concluded in one of my writings, 
that if you are willfully blind, there is nothing more like than I can say. If you choose to believe despite the facts, I cannot make you believe. And so the facts are what they are. And you have to deal with them as you will. If we can move on to the next slide. And this is not even, just really quickly, not even to mention the fact that, that you know, Joseph said that the papyrus were written by the hand of Abraham, but we now know that the papyrus date to 1700 plus years later than when Abraham would have lived, and that even the church and all its apologists now admit that the word Abraham doesn't appear anywhere on the source papyrus. And so it's absurd on on just all the levels. <laughs> on, on all levels. Well, what, doc, what Dr. Rittner is responding to here, John, is something that actually has been going on a long time in Book of Abraham apologetics for decades and decades. The argument is, uh, and I know Dr. Rittner just responded to it. I'm just reframing it in another way that I'm familiar with it. The argument is that if Egyptologists themselves cannot agree in every detail as to what these uh, facsimiles represent, then there's room at the table for any possible and anything goes. Anything and, goes at that point. And Joseph Smith's interpretations could be correct. Yeah. Well, that's, that's just a bridge too far. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. If we could go to the next slide. Okay. Next slide. One of the interesting things about, before we leave facsimile one, one of the interesting things about facsimile one is that there is at the bottom line of that, that facsimile, something I have referred to as a dado, as niched bricking facade, as a wall relief motif, which Joseph Smith thought was an indication of heaven. Well, it's a, it's a terrestrial, it's a landform, and it's one of the few examples of Egyptian and Sumerian interconnections. And the reason why that's actually important, it struck me, uh, is that it's not something you expect to find on these papyri. And I pointed this out in my book in 2011, that this was not typical of books of breathing. The full name, by the way, of the Egyptian text is the book of breathing that Isis made. Uh, and th th that particular book, we'll see examples of, of what they look like with parallels. But in most cases, those books do not show a wall pattern at the bottom. Where they do show a wall pattern was pointed out by my predecessor, Klaus Baer at Chicago, and my me, both in, in print, is that it's on the wall reliefs. For example, at the Temple of Dendera, which you, you're looking at here. Uh, for those of you who can see the middle scene, this is taken obliquely, but this is, an, this is a photograph of in the temple now with uh, even the modern lighting stuck down at the bottom. But you have the Anubis scene standing over the body of Osiris that I showed you in our very first of the podcasts. And here, if you look at the bottom, you can see the running wall pattern. And I want to show you this same scene in line drawing as done by French expeditions currently. So if we move to the next slide. So there you can more clearly see that we have a whole series of scenes that refer to the rising up of Osiris 
in the Egyptian month of Koyak. And here in the center, the dead center top row, uh, you've got Anubis over the body of Osiris. And you have the erect Osiris on the right-hand side, and you've got Anubis in two flanking scenes directly below that, ministering again to the body of Osiris on the lion bed. Again, all of these are parallels to facsimile one. And then underneath the, the bottom lay line of standing figures, you have this wall facade design, which is used as a decorative design at the, as the baseline of temple walls regularly in the Ptolemaic period, which is the time in which our papyrus is being done. And so, yes, I recognized it as a wall scene. Joseph Smith's interpretation is entirely incorrect. But what hadn't struck me before and came as a, a bit of a revelation as I'm thinking about it uh, is that the artist of the Joseph Smith papyri did something really quite special in that I think what we have preserved on the Joseph Smith papyrus is not merely what would typically get at the beginning of a book of breathings that Isis made. Because there, it shows the deceased being, uh, in some fashion, introduced to the god Osiris. Here instead, the artist of the Joseph Smith papyrus has shown Osiris and by implication Horus coming back to life in a scene that is extremely restricted in its usage. This is something that's only found in the special Holy of Holies of the chapels like the ones that were at that are currently at the Temple of Dendera that I'm showing you now. This is almost a direct parallel with what you have at Dendera, though there are, there are features that are different. Uh, there's no bird, for example. Uh, in the image I'm showing you right now, you're, you're not seeing an example where there's one hand upraised, but there are other examples where that is true from this very temple, and I showed those to you two times ago. So what I'm actually saying to you is to simplify. When the celebration that you see depicted on this wall was celebrated in Egypt, it was actually celebrated in temples all across the country. There would have been a local celebration in the month of Koyak in Egyptian, which is roughly about the month of October in the modern calendar. This was the celebration when the waters are beginning to recede and this is when vegetation begins to sprout. And that is the rebirth of Osiris in the Egyptian understanding of symbolism. So all temples all around Egypt would have had relief scenes in which Osiris was coming back to life in the form of his erect penis, which corresponds to the erect grain that's coming up out of the new ground that rises up out of the flood waters in the month of October. Now, why this is significant is there would have been one in the Theban area. It would not have been exactly like what you have in Dendera, but it would have been close. And what I'm suggesting to you is the, the artist, he was only a sketch artist because it's not, you know, this is not the greatest artwork on earth. But what the, the writer of our papyrus did was to actually copy a relief scene off of a local temple wall. 
And I think we have on facsimile one, equaling the actual papyrus, what, with the, what the actual papyrus is a preservation of is a lost temple wall scene from the Theban area that is indicated as being a wall scene by having that dado that runs along the bottom and having a very specialized scene directly above it that you would only find in such a temple setting. So what we've got here is like a Kodak moment that's been taken of a now lost temple. And I think that makes this papyrus extremely valuable and should be for my colleagues. And I intend to announce this at a, at a future meeting. But I think this is the witness to a lost text on a wall. And that's why we have these decorative elements that we have. I notice also, by the way, by going through my own writings, that uh, the, the link of the crocodile to, to a form of Horus and Sobek together is something I had pointed out in my own, in my own book. Uh, it refers to a myth about the gathering together of the body parts of Osiris. So that's probably who that is. And it had been noted also by Klaus Baer in his article, which preceded mine. So I just want to point that out. RFM, any, any responses? No, but I think what you're saying, I always say no, and then I have a response. <laughs> <laughs> have you noticed that? Do you have any questions? No, no. except for Here's these, my response. Except for these five questions. Uh, <laughs> no, I think it's fascinating what you're saying about this, uh, the Joseph Smith Egyptian papyrus facsimile one being a potential Kodak moment of a now non-existent temple in Thebes, which is where, of course, the, um, the papyri uh, came from in the first place with the mummies, I believe. But um, the last comment you made, Dr. Rittner, were you saying that there, there may have been a connection between the crocodile in facsimile one or any crocodile and it being a representation of the God of Pharaoh? Well, this is the one that I, this is, this is the one hit that we've all agreed upon insofar as this is a, a, a deity that would have been worshiped by Pharaoh, then yes. Right. And I just want to add here, John, and for Dr. Rittner, too, there's been a whole lot of research recently coming to light about Joseph Smith's reliance on the Adam Clark Bible commentary, which was very famous and very popular during the time period that Joseph Smith was living and writing and producing scripture. And actually, on in the Adam Clark Bible commentary, which has now been proven, actually, he relied on, at least in some instances, and there's more research forthcoming on that. But... In Adam Clark's Bible commentary under Exodus chapter 1, verse 11, where it talks about Pharaoh, he comments in there that Pharaoh, that the crocodile, excuse me, Pharaoh literally means crocodile. And he's relying on another scholar, Beauchart, or B-O-C-H-A-R-T. Now, that may or may not be correct. And I think it's probably not correct that Pharaoh literally means crocodile. The point of it being that in a noted Bible commentary that Joseph Smith did access and did use, that there is that equation directly drawn. And so that might be a more direct link to Joseph Smith's identifying the crocodile in facsimile one as the God of Pharaoh. Yeah, and if I could just make sure I understand. What I think I hear you saying, RFM, or at least partly, is that even if Joseph made some sort of a connection that has some meaning or significance, we can find a likely or a probable 
source for his interpretation in the Adam Clark commentary, which we've already demonstrated, was a, a large portion of the source for his, you know, 1830-ish translation of the New Testament. Did I get that semi-right? Well, right. When you're talking about proving a person actually has God-given powers, i.e. of translation for Joseph Smith, it's always tempting as an apologist to want to go for an ancient connection that Joseph Smith could not have known about and overlook the contemporary sources that said the exact same thing. But really, logically speaking, that's really not fair. If Joseph, if there's a, if there, if there's a secular source that Joseph Smith could have had and actually did use, and it has the same information in it, then, well, all things being equal, it's probably more likely that that's where he got the idea than that he received it by revelation. I should jump in here and say the word Pharaoh, just so that pe people understand, uh, actually means the great house. And the Egyptians used it the same way that Americans used the word White House, in the sense that the White House released a statement that X happened. It's only in much later periods that Egyptians begin to stick the title Pharaoh in front of a personal name. That happens uh, around the 800s, first with Pharaoh Siamon, uh, something I discuss in my one of my books be incurred in Egypt. Uh, if you find a pharaoh used as a title, that's already indicating a late composition, by the way. Uh, and the other thing to note that the literal meaning of it is great house. Got it. Okay. We can, go, we can go on to the next, the next image. Okay. Uh, next image. This is, again, mopping up some of the things we talked about last time in facsimile 3. We were discussing the lead plate, and I discovered in the interim that the lead plate has been put up on Wikipedia. So we can actually see what was used to make facsimile 3. Again, this is a reverse of the way it's printed because that's what happens when you stamp them out. You, your, your cut has to be the inverted. And so here we have the, the figure we know to be Anubis on the left-hand side instead of being on the right-hand side. And if we go to the next slide, there should be a close-up of the head of Anubis. And there you can see the pointed area, which looks like the nose was clipped off and it was hacked off and it was originally a snout. And you can see clearly he's got one ear of what may have been originally two that it was, it was being carved and understood as an Anubis figure, and then someone directed the plate maker to go in with a chisel and hack things out and adjust it from Anubis to a human figure who's got an odd point on the top of his head. But here you can actually, everyone can now see this for themselves. And... Either Dr. Rittner or RFM, just for our listeners who maybe didn't listen last time or who don't get why this might be significant, why might this be significant? Who might, you know, why might this have been hacked out? Why would Joseph Smith or anyone else direct anyone to be hacking off Anubis's nose? What might be the motive? Well, I don't, uh, I could, all I can suggest is this, is that first off in facsimile one, we have an Anubis figure, 
but because of wear and tear, that part from the papyrus had been broken off. So you've got a figure standing there with no head. It should be Anubis's head. It's always Anubis's head, except here in the restoration that Joseph Smith did where it puts a human head where Anubis's should have been. Um, that's what happens where there was nothing there and it has to be reconstructed by Joseph Smith. But here in facsimile three, we have something else. What we appear to have is evidence that the original papyrus for facsimile three, once again, we don't have that anymore. We don't have the original for facsimile three. We don't have the original for facsimile two. It's only facsimile one that's preserved in the papyrus. But it would appear then based upon this that the original facsimile three did have an Anubis's head there. It was not broken off. And more to the point, the production of the publication of this, which happened, I think, in the Times and Seasons in 1842, in March of 1842, starting then when it was published, it got far enough to where Reuben Headlock, who I believe, yes, that's his name right down there at the bottom, engraving by R. Headlock, Reuben Headlock, he had actually reproduced it with the jackal head on the lead plate. So it hadn't been changed prior to that. He reproduces it with a jackal head, and then somebody, and one would expect that someone with authority to do this. It's not just going to be Reuben Headlock doing it. His job is just to recapture uh, this as best as he can. Somebody, and probably Joseph Smith, I'm guessing, directed him to cut off Anubis's snout, make it into a human person. And my guess is just because, I mean, Joseph Smith doesn't know what to do with a guy with a jackal head. It doesn't fit into what he wants this to say, and therefore he makes it into a person, uh, a black person, a slave, with a strange horn on top of his head because when they took off the snout, they didn't take off that last ear. So that's all I can guess. But what it shows is that Joseph Smith will not only recreate parts that have been lost, which require recreation, he will materially alter parts of the papyrus that were already there and still extant when he was viewing them. Brilliant. Thank you for that explanation, RFM. In fact, while we're discussing facsimile three, if we can go to the next. Yes. Uh, this is an example of what you're seeing is a full book of breathings that Isis made. So this is an example of what the Joseph Smith papyrus one would have essentially resembled when it was complete. You'll notice there are only two vignettes, two pictures. One on the far right, and you begin you write you begin this from right to left. So there we have our illustration that's showing the owner of the papyrus in front of Osiris. That's what's been replaced in uh, the copy that Joseph the Joseph Smith bought, because instead of the deceased owner in front of the enthroned Osiris on the Joseph Smith one. We know from the surviving papyrus that instead you had the resurrection of Osiris that I have now suggested to you is a copy from a lost temple wall. At the far other end is the final vignette, the final picture, which corresponds to what you have in facsimile three. So this is an example of what you, what you would have had. Now, the facsimile three here is the deceased 
coming before the court of Osiris enthroned after the weighing of the heart, which indicates that he has now been allowed to enter permanently into the world of the, the living gods of the underworld. That's what, what facsimile three corresponds to. It's what's on the left. Now, anyone wishing to see this particular papyrus uh, can do so. It's at Lafayette University in Pennsylvania. So this is an example of a, an intact book of breathings that is available in the library in Lafayette University in the United States. Uh, and there you can see how long this document is because the dimensions are, ex are written for you below. Now that's extremely important. 70 inches long. Is that, am I reading that right? It's just under 20 inches long. 20 or 70? 20. Isn't it? So Papyrus, tell me if I'm reading 12. it wrong. I see uh, 11 and 1 16th times 69. 69, 69. Okay. It's, it's almost, it's almost 70 inches long. Which is a little more than six feet. Is that right? Well, there's been a whole, whole lot of discussion about how long the Joseph right. Smith papyrus was. Yeah. Well, I show you this because this essentially answers that question. This is probably how long Joseph Smith's papyrus papyri were, correct? In order to get in all the sections that are normally occurring in this very standardized book, all the chapters, it needs to be this long. And you'll notice that this has two vignettes, the, the beginning and the end. Right. And so then the question is, how many vignettes does the, the Joseph Smith papyrus have? Two. Beginning and the end. So since we have facsimile three, and we know facsimile three corresponds to the end of the papyrus, and we know how long it takes to get from beginning to end in terms of the number of chapters. That tells us there's no room for any additional text anywhere. So the whole notion that the papyrus was somehow many, 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 many feet long uh, that had an extra text on it is highly unlikely because we have the beginning and the end. The beginning we have intact or largely intact, that came from the Metropolitan. And the end, we have the lead plate of. So we know Smith at one time had the whole papyrus, and there's nothing missing, or was nothing missing in that, in large regard. Now, so it must have been in broken shape, because he did not understand the difference. He himself didn't know the difference between papyrus this papyrus and the hupocephalus, which he thought was part of the same document, which could never have been. That would have been a separate round piece of papyrus. So he, all sorts of explanations have been made to try to explain away why the surviving text of papyrus number one does not correspond to the book of Abraham, which everyone, including the apologists, apologists agree is not the case. But it can't be huge because you've just seen the examples of a surviving length, and that's what they look like. And we have the beginning and the end. And since we have that, you can calculate exactly how long it can be. 
and the calculations that were made by Klaus Baer uh, in his article in, in 1968 are still valid. And I don't have those committed to memory, but it's roughly the same size as what you have here because these texts all fit the pattern. I love it. This is just all coming together for me now, and it's it makes perfect sense. So reading right to left, we can think of this as the the scroll that Joseph Smith primarily used to translate from. The image on the right, the beginning of the papyrus corresponds to facsimile one. The the image at the end on the left corresponds to facsimile three. And then the facsimile two that we have is merely the hypocephalus, which was found, what, under the head, literally? On of one the of the other mummies. That Joseph confused and figured it was part of the papyrus when re in reality it wasn't even Which means the papyrus undoubtedly was broken up in pieces. Yeah. Uh, and so that he wouldn't know what went with what. Yeah. Arfim, anything you want to add to this? Yes, if I can just clarify the you difficult... Said yes. You said yes. I'm, I'm trying to learn from experience here. <laughs> it's a slow process, believe me. But no, uh, I just want to clarify and underscore the problem this raises for the apologists for the Book of Abraham. Because what they have been forced to do, at least in many respects, and I think John Gee has along with Carrie Muelstein, is the idea that they are by and large committed to this papyrus role. And the reason they're committed to it is because the book of Abraham presents facsimile one and facsimile three as being translated as part of this scroll. It's a hard thing to say that the book of Abraham text is on a different scroll from the same text where facsimile one is describing the attempted sacrifice of Abraham which is written out in chapter one of the book of Abraham. You see the connection there. So having now being in that position and recognizing that facsimile one is the beginning of this scroll, this typical common funerary scroll that we have many, many examples of, including the one that's on the screen and that Dr. Rittner has been talking about. If you've got facsimile one at one end, facsimile three at the other end, writing in between, then number one, they have to start arguing that the scroll that Joseph Smith had was extremely long. It was much longer than any of these other examples of the same kind of role that has been found. And they have to further postulate that in the additional portion of the scroll beyond what is facsimile three, you've got writing beyond it, or maybe writing in between, who knows. But basically, that the entire text of the Book of Mormon, excuse me, the Book of Abraham, as we have it in our scriptures, was actually written in Egyptian in that additional portion of the scroll. So that's why John Gee has to write articles arguing for mathematical uh, calculations about the scroll and trying to argue that the scroll was actually much longer than a common scroll, maybe up to 20, even up to 40 feet long are some of the um, guesses that he makes, or some of the assertions that he makes anyway. And the reason he has to do that is because he has to find room in this scroll for the book of Abraham to be present when we know that it's not in the text that's between facsimile one and facsimile three in the customary scrolls that we have so many examples of. Love it. Thanks, RFM. If I could point one other, one other thing, and that he has, has, in one of his earlier books, tried to indicate that this could be as much as 30 feet long. And the reason why he picked that number is that that is the length 
in which scrolls were manufactured in the royal factories that had a monopoly over the making of papyrus in ancient Egypt, in, in the Ptolemaic period as well. Now the problem is that yes, at the manufacturer's workshop, they might have made a scroll that is that long, but no private document would ever have used up that much papyrus, which was extremely valuable. It was a royal monopoly. Uh, it, is a, it is one of the most valuable things in ancient Egypt to be able to purchase. That's what hey, drives up the cost of books of, books of, the, of the dead, for example. So no one is going to have something as long as he remarks on. And so the idea of saying, yes, well, they manufactured rolls in this length is not the same as saying anyone actually used that amount. So that's, again, a form of specious argumentation that is just totally unreasonable. So just to restate, if, if, if I were to ask you, Dr. Ridner, how common is it to find an Egyptian scroll that's 30 feet long with writing on it for 30 feet, what would your answer be? You wouldn't find it. The average length of a papyrus, you it's, would guess. Much, is much shorter. Well, it's, it's not easy to give you an average figure because sometimes what you do is you cut off sections of it. So for a will or a private document, it might only be a few inches wide. Uh, for a longer per prop, property document, it could be several feet. 30 feet, no. But for, and for an average book of breathings? Well, an Agilist book of breathings, I just showed you. Right. About, about six feet or a little shy of 72 inches. Exactly. Yeah. That's, so that's brilliant. That's, that's so valuable. That example, because it's, it's, a, it's an intact example with beginning and end, and it, it tells you what the size would be. And if an apologist said, well, Dr. Ritter, you just picked a short scroll to prove your point. It's got you all say? the chapters in there. What's that? It's got all the chapters in there. And I should point out that Lafayette University is in Easton, Pennsylvania. So it's available for consultation by anyone in the U.S. who wants to drive to Pennsylvania. Right. Brilliant. Thank you, Dr. Ritten. This is really important, valuable stuff. Thank you. Well, it is because, once again, this is just an example, just one example of how it is that Mormon apologists will go outside their field of expertise, general consensus among Egyptologists in order to argue for a 30-foot scroll when there's absolutely no basis in the historical record or the Egyptological record for a roll that long. But they do it for one reason and one reason only, because they have to find room for the book of Abraham to be true. Yeah, and so they always have to move the discussion to the the possible or the plausible in their minds because the evidence is continually destroying their extant, you know, existing positions. Right. The only, yeah, I was saying the only reason John Gee would ever make this argument is because he has to find room for the book of Abraham to be on that scroll. And in doing so, he comes out in contradiction to all the discoveries in Egypt in the profession that he has a doctorate in. And I, and I think this is a, uh, unless Dr. Rittner, you have more to say about this, I think that's a great segue into kind of discussing now the history of the papyrus and the book of Abraham post Joseph Smith's life. Is there anything else you want to say, Dr. Rittner, before we move to the history of the book of well, Abraham? I, I, I think my preliminary comments are, are done. 
Okay. So RFM, thank you, Dr. Ridner. RFM, if you don't mind, can you now give us sort of a, tell us, tell our listeners chronologically what happens. At some point, Joseph Smith stops trans, quote, translating the book of Abraham. It gets published, you know, in the times and seasons, wherever it gets punished. Take us through the late 19th century and early 20th century to tell us how the story of the book of Abraham continues. Okay, I'm going to do this so quickly because I really want to focus on what Dr. Rittner has to contribute to this discussion. Very briefly, historical-wise, the um, the papyri themselves end up not going west with the saints, with Brigham Young, but staying east in Illinois with um, his mom and with his wife, Emma. And they end up being sold. They go through a number of buyers. They end up in Chicago, Illinois, which really isn't that far from Nauvoo, where they uh, were, I think, still located at the time, ends up there and just in time for the 1871 fire in Chicago. And it had forever been presumed that the papyrus scrolls had been lost and burned up in the great Chicago fire of 1871. But I do have to bring up, we all know that they get rediscovered again in the uh, New York Metropolitan Museum of Art in 1966, I believe it was, or 67. But in between this time, there's something else that's going on because even though the papyrus themselves are no longer available for examination, the fact is, is that evidence has been left in the published version of the Book of Abraham because all three facsimiles have been reproduced and published there. I think it was canonized in 1880 in the LDS Church. Previously, I may have misspoken and said 1860, but it's part and parcel of the LDS uh, lexicon, later the LDS scripture, that we have these three facsimiles. And those three facsimiles, because they are reproductions of actual ancient Egyptian vignettes, together with their interpretations that were given, are able to be looked at by Egyptologists and be evaluated by Egyptologists. So you don't have to actually have the papyri. You've got the reproduced facsimiles themselves. And And RFM, let me pause you. Dr. Rittner, tell us, you know, when Joseph Smith gets these papyri in 1835, you have already told us from from episode one that uh, the the understanding of the ability to read Egyptian, the Rosetta Stone had been discovered, but there had not been a mature ability to translate and understand. Fill into doctor, fill into RFM's timeline, and just tell us, Doctor Rittner, in the 19th century, when do we start seeing an emergence of the ability to to truly read Egyptian? To, and tell us how that kind of when that emerges. Well, Champollion was able to make his major discovery with the Rosetta Stone in 1822. Right. So that knowledge was beginning already in Europe in 1822, well before Smith acquired the papyri. But that information was not available in the Western Hemisphere. So no one in the United States knew that. And by the time that we're reaching the 1840s, it would be well known in Europe. And so you had the beginning of explanations of standing Egyptian monuments. There was an obelisk that's in in Britain, uh, Banks Obelisk, which had the name of Ptolemies on it, and that was written, that was recognized and was deciphered about this time. So, when the Book of Mormon is published, okay. 
and copies are received abroad, then they can be compared with what the Europeans knew about Egyptian, and then you're going to get a European reaction. And I, I think that's what Arvim is going to tell you, that we have a reply from a French scholar, Théodule de Veria, uh, in the 1850s. His book was published posthumously in 1881, uh, where he gathered together documents from the Louvre, the, the major collection in Paris. And there, de Veria had noticed parallels to the Anubis over the bed, which are a regular feature of books of the dead. And consequently, he concluded that Smith's explanation was, as you see on the screen here, that Smith's ideas were rambling nonsense, quote unquote, uh, roughly 1857 when he first examined these. So by 1857, legitimate Egyptologists in Europe can, can actually make sense of the facsimiles and they're calling Joseph Smith's interpretations rambling nonsense, correct? To the best of my knowledge, de Verius was the first, to actually, first professional Egyptologist to actually take notice of the Joseph Smith book and yes, by, by 1850s, it was already well known in Europe that this was nonsense. Okay, take it away, RFM. Keep going. Thank you for letting me jump in. Oh, sure. I was just going to say that this quote from Deveria ends up being picked up in a rather popular book called The Rocky Mountain Saints, which I think was published in the 1870s. The author was Stenhouse. And this brought uh, Deveria's opinion about the facsimiles in the book of Abraham to a public in the United States, including the Latter-day Saints. By the way, what I find out is that the book of Abraham has been a bugaboo for the Latter-day Saints almost since its first publication. It's just that we don't know about it very much because, believe it or not, it's not talked about a lot in Sunday school at church. <laughs> and, but this was brought up, and a pamphlet was apparently issued by the church in response to the various comment published in that book, Rocky Mountain Saints. And basically what it said was, well, look, there's two kinds of ways to interpret Egyptian. There's the common kind, the kind you can just read through scholarship, but then there's also this esoteric kind that's only available through revelation. And Joseph Smith obviously didn't do it the scholarly way. He did it through revelation. He did this alternate kind of interpretation and translation. That was their position at the time. So this dies down for a while, and then 1912 comes along. 1912 comes along, and Reverend Spaulding, who I think we mentioned before, I honestly am getting confused as to what we've actually recorded and what we've talked about off camera, but Reverend Spaulding, who was, uh, what kind of minister? Was Episcopal. it a Presbyterian? Episcopalian. He was the Episcopal Bishop of uh, Salt Lake City. Yeah, he got this great idea once again, it involves the facsimiles, and he decided he would approach and get the opinions of eight prominent Egyptologists and I think also uh, Semiticists, one of them, by the way, being Breasted, who I know has a special place in Dr. Rittner's heart. Well, he's the founder of our institution, and it, it's because of Breasted's involvement that I am involved myself. Right. So he gets all of their opinions, and basically, believe it or not, None of them agree that Joseph Smith got it right, and all eight of them 
to one degree or another, poo-poo and lambast and disagree with Joseph Smith's facsimile interpretations. And then Reverend Spaulding uh, published this or brought it to the attention of the media. The New York Times picked it up, had a big front page paper, uh, excuse me, newspaper headline and front page article about this, uh, this fact, these eight Egyptologists and Semiticists. And it was a big news among the world. It was big news among the Mormons as well. I let mean, me just, let me read, let me read the headline RFM if it's okay. Yeah. It says, museum walls proclaim fraud of Mormon prophet. Sacred books claimed to have been given divinely to the first prophet are shown to be taken from old Egyptian originals. Their translation being a work of the imagination what a comparison with Metropolitan Museum treasures show. And I read through this this morning when I woke up, and you could literally take 20 or 30 of the main points Dr. Rittner has made to us over the past nine or 10 hours of a recording, and they are mentioned in this article. Um, Dr. Rittner, do you agree with that? And is there anything you would want to say about the substance uh, of, of this article and the importance of it? Well, the, ar- the article is extremely important, and it, it was accompanied by a booklet that Reverend Spaulding made. We have a copy of this in our uh, research archives. It was part of the Breasted Papers. So I, I know that Spaulding actually published this in book form, booklet form. The only thing that's essentially different between what we would say now and what my predecessor said back in 1912 is that we now know that the text that the that represents Joseph Smith's papyrus number one is not technically speaking what we would call a book of the day. It's a funerary document, but we now know it's a subset of that organization of texts called the Book of Breathings. So in these early 1912 discussions, it's, it's lumped together with the Book of the Dead because they didn't know that fine distinction between those texts. But what did they but get I, right? All, everything else. Uh, basically, they, they, and, and that is not wrong either because the, the, the Book of Breathings is a late development from the Book of the Dead. So it is a version, a slimmed down version of the Book of the Dead. Um, and the, the four sons of Horus were recognized clearly, as is indicated in the illustration that you showed there on the, uh, the photograph of the New York Times exhibit with photographs of four sons of Horus from the Metropolitan Museum collection. So they're, basically all of their interpretations were correct. Osiris, Anubis, all that stuff is is discussed, correct? Largely, what what, what I've been telling you now is is uh, I, yeah, exactly. So all of this was known in 1912, and, and and most of it was already known to Deveria even earlier than that. Yeah. So it, it's an unbroken chain of everyone saying the same thing. And and just like we talked about this in the B. H. Roberts episode with Shannon. Um, Caldwell Montes, this is really important to the discussion because for so many decades or even over a century now, one of the big questions is, what did the brethren know and when did they know it? And now we see a second major instance 
that achieved international recognition where major scientific scholars and professionals uh, lay bare the truth about uh, the inaccuracies and the lack of credibility of Joseph Smith's translation and its global news. And the church does not choose to do the honorable thing, which is to acknowledge the, the credibility of the scholars and, the, and thus the inaccuracy of the translation. Um, but instead, what do they do, RFM? Well, they find different ways of responding to it. In fact, this, uh, this created such a sensation among the Latter-day Saints that a special issue of the Improvement Era was published, which had, I believe, a number of different articles in it by a number of different authors responding in a number of different ways to this uh, this finding. This, um, the, the, well, I, I'm saying the newspaper article, but also this brochure by Reverend Spaulding, this huge explosion. I mean, I was around in 1984 and 85, and I know you were too, John DeLynn, when all of a sudden those Hoffman letters are appearing. And people's testimonies are suffering body blows. I've been through that myself in the church because of those Hoffman letters, the Salamander letter, those other letters he had. I can only imagine that the members of the church in 1912 were feeling the same kind of things, and they were having severe doubts. So the church wants to respond to it. The church has to respond to it. And basically what they end up doing is, without saying that these guys don't know what they're talking about, they say a number of things. Two of these, two of them I want to mention here. The first thing is they resurrect the idea that, look, these guys are experts, okay, but they still disagree on certain details of what these uh, facsimiles mean. And in fact, in their, their reports that each of these eight fellows did, they have places where they differ as to what they mean. And so it's the differences that are latched onto by the Mormon apologists to say, if they can't agree amongst themselves as to what they mean, how can they give judgment on whether Joseph Smith's translations were correct? So that's one thing they say. And that sort of plays into that monolith uh, argument that Hannah Syriac was talking about earlier. If they don't agree in everything, then Joseph Smith still has a seat at the table because any possible interpretation. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that was said, which was really interesting to me, is that one of the writers who actually falsely presented himself as a PhD, unfortunately, but one of the writers said, hey, look, this is not based upon the originals. This is just based upon Reuben Headlock's attempt to copy the originals. And who knows how many mistakes Reuben Headlock made in copying from the originals onto the facsimiles and getting them published. And therefore, because these experts, while giving them all due deference as experts, they're not going off the originals. We don't have the originals, and they can only go off of the copies. So therefore, we have to defer our final judgment on whether these are accurate translations until such time as we find the actual originals. Well, of course, the originals have now been found. That, <laughs> that happened in 1967. And so um, then you had, Hugh, you had Hugh Nibley do a series of articles, I think also in the Improvement Era. D- Dr. Ritter, can I, can I ask a question before that? 
Just really yeah, but I, I wonder if well, this is directly relevant okay. to the Spalding yes. material because Please. what what Nibley does in the '60s is to do an ongoing series of articles going one by one through the authors of the Spalding book and disparaging them in an ad hominem way. In other words, one of the one of the people involved was Petrie, and I will never forget that one of the criticisms that Nibley made about Petrie was that he didn't like poetry. <laughs> and that because Petrie didn't like poetry, he was somehow disqualified from making an assessment of the visual image which he saw in front of him and which he had excavated from the ground thousands of times on papyri and on coffins. Um, the, the whole point of Nibley's ar articles was ridiculous. I mean, it was horrendous scholarship that we will try to tear down what you say by attacking you personally. But that, of course, has been the signature methodology used by all the Mormon apologists. It's, it is their first line of defense. And it started with, with Fawn Brody when she releases No Man Knows My History in 45 or whatever. Nibley releases a response to that no, ma'am, that's not history, doesn't deal with the substance of the biography, which Richard Bushman has now vindicated. But instead, he just attacks Fawn Brody. And so really, Nibley's, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but Nibley sets the course for what becomes modern Mormon apologetics 1.0, which is to attack the scholar who's credible and thoughtful and earnest with disingenuous arguments and with personal attacks. But what's notable is at the time of the rediscovery of the papyri in the 60s, that Nibley has to still be arguing against all of those opinions expressed in the Spalding book. Mm. So that is his first, th first action, is to start trying to tear apart the reputations of these well-known individuals. Yes, right. he could have called that series, No Ma'am, That's Not Egyptology. <laughs> But by the way, uh, I think we all would agree that when a person gets to the point of having to actually try and attack the character of somebody, the ad hominems, instead of addressing the merits of the argument, that generally that's a sign the person has lost the argument. I just wanted to bring this up in terms of the fact that I understand, Dr. Rittner, that you've received a lot of really, really positive emails over the last few days. But there's one you shared with me on the phone that did not fall into that category, and that may have been considered somewhat ad hominem, and perhaps in the tradition of Hugh Nibley. Could you share that with our audience? Um, yes. Uh, it was the only negative out of, I, I don't know, 40 or so replies that I have, I have now received. Uh, let me... And while you're looking for it, I just want to thank our listeners for writing Dr. Rittner. I promised Dr. Rittner that the ratio of positive to negative emails would be 100 to 1. Uh, so many of you listeners have responded and sent Dr. Rittner positive emails. Our ratio is now 40-ish to 1, which is good, but I'd like to, I'd like to um, come for, I'd like to uh, make good on my promise. So that means listeners, about 60 of you at a minimum, need to email Dr. Rittner. His email address can be found on the mormonstories.org uh, post for this episode. Email Dr. Rittner. Please send him effusive praise and gratitude for his willingness to do these episodes. And we can get that ratio to be 99, 99 to 1. 
Now, have I stalled enough to allow you to call up that email? I've, I've found it. Okay. I hope so, John. You, you look like a bitter fool hanging out with two clouds. Nice. So we do not escape calumny either, John. No, but I mean, it just goes to show Dr. Rittner is a world-renowned, top-notch Egyptologist at the number one Egyptology institution in the Western Hemisphere. His reputation is beyond reproach. Then we've got people like Guy and Molstein and others that have little to no credibility, and yet the followers of the Mormon apologists are willing to defame and smear and malign a, 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 a true world-class scholar just because he gives his honest, earnest, earnest, unbiased, with no monetary compensation motive at all, he gives his opinion on what is obviously uh, false and fraudulent documentation and what he receives in response by apologists is personal attacks, which is the example Hugh Nibley set that Daniel Peterson uh, continued, and, you know, it's, it's continued on from there. And it's really sad and deplorable, in my opinion. So, uh, RFM, do you want to take us back? I, I think it's worth mentioning what happened with the Tanners in 65 before we talk about the emergence of the papyrus in 66. Is that okay? Oh, sure. But by the way, uh, I, I don't know if you've selected the closing music for this podcast, but can I suggest something that has the line in it? Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Steve Miller Band. I love it. Okay, absolutely. <laughs> um, by the way, as a world-renowned clown, I kind of object to that, that email as well. So what, what ends up happening is everybody knows about the fact that this was discovered uh, at the New York Metropolitan Museum, these uh, papyrus, uh, at least fragments, of the original Joseph Smith papyri, including facsimile. One, what I did not realize until relatively recently when I was closely reading Dr. Rittner's response to the church essay, which he produced in 2014, is that the actual, jo the Abraham Egyptian papers, right? The Abraham Egyptian papers, the churches had possession of continuously. They got the, they got to keep the Kirtland Egyptian papers, but the, the papyrus stayed behind when they went out West under Brigham Young. They've had those. They've had those in a safe. They've had them very, very carefully kept, very carefully, I would even say, hidden to the point where... But really quick, RFM, just so our, our listeners who aren't familiar can understand, I know we're going to actually show them. Yeah. Give our listeners a brief description of what they actually were, which will help us understand why it's significant that the church was hiding them for over a century. Okay, well, there are a number of different things, including apparently an Egyptian grammar and alphabet that Joseph Smith was working on, modeled after a more secular scholarly approach, though apparently the interpretations were being given by revelation or some source other than a secular approach. But the main thing about them is that they pretty much prove I would say conclusively, at least to your average person, not to John Gee or Kerry Muelstein, but they sure look like the Abraham Egyptian papers show that Joseph Smith was producing the text of the book of Abraham from characters that were on the papyri. And the reason we know that is because in the papyri that was recovered, we have the fragment with the characters on it in sequence 
that then show up in the margins of the Abraham Egyptian papers, together with translations from the book of Abraham to the right. And we're going to show that in just a second, but my summary would be, these are the working documents that Joseph Smith and his scribes were using to do the quote, I have to always use air quotes, the quote translation. It's basically the documents that were in front of these gentlemen as they were quote, translating the book of Abraham. And it, you know, I just want to make this point that the church had these documents in their possession for over a century. And as you mentioned, RFM, they were keeping them in a vault or hiding them from the membership and not acknowledging that they even existed. I would only assume, just like Joseph Fielding Smith ripping out, you know, pages from Joseph Smith's journal of an inconvenient 1830 account of the first vision that, uh, that it, you know, doesn't correspond with the later accepted, what was it, 1838 version of, of the first vision. We've got Joseph Smith hiding, Joseph Fielding Smith hiding evidence that could ever destroy faith that's actually factual, just like Joseph Fielding Smith or others did with the First Vision account, 1830 version of the First Vision, 1832 version of the First Vision account. We also have these same sorts of people hiding evidence about the Book of Abraham when they've known for almost a century that the Book of Abraham is deeply fraught and problematic. They've got source documentation that is likely, and we'll show in a second, in fact, does prove um, deep problems with the book of Abraham. They're sitting on it and hiding it. And it isn't until the Tanners, heaven bless, or, you know, clowns bless, or whoever you want to say bless, the Tanners for, ironically, coincidentally, a year before the papyrus are rediscovered, what can you tell us about the story of how the Tanners found out about the Abraham Egyptian papers, RFM? Well, it appears that the good ship Zion has leaks in it like a sieve. (laughs) Because once again, somebody inside the church at a relatively high level with access to these documents made two successive leaks to the Tanners. The first was a leak that purported to be a transcript. So in other words, like typewritten out a transcript of the Abraham Egyptian papers and saying, this is what the church has. This is what they are. But it wasn't an actual copy. That was for the second leak. And the second leak was on this ancient thing they used to have. Uh, John, I don't know if you've heard of it before. It's called (laughs) microfilm. (laughs) And so they had images on the microfilm that purported to be from the actual Abraham Egyptian papers themselves. And that was leaked out. And the tanners made the hay out of it that they could. And then in the following year, the discovery was made in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So like you say, serendipitously, all of this happened the year before they actually found the papyri. And so I see you're doing something there with the screen. Yes. So anyway, the whole thing is this. And the reason this came to my understanding was through Dr. Rittner's paper, because even though the tanners came forward with this information and made it public, the church did not yield to it. They did not disclose the actual uh, Abraham Egyptian papers at that time. Instead, they continued to keep it under wraps and continued to keep it under wraps until even as of 2014, six years ago, John, when Dr. Rittner is writing his response to the church's essay, Dr. Rittner cannot get access to actual uh, copies or photographic images of the Joseph Smith 
or I should say the Abraham Egyptian papers, because the church is still holding on to it. In fact, Dr. Rittner, I think, will tell us he specifically requested the church to allow him access to view these so he could write his paper, and that access was denied. It's only in the, within the past six years and recently that the church has allowed images of the Abraham Egyptian papers to be published as part and parcel of the Joseph Smith Papers Project. Take it away, Dr. Rittner. And, and, and just really quickly, Dr. Rittner, before you jump in, what I'm showing now on the screen is an article, again, written around 1970 timeframe by the New York Times that, that's headlined, Mormon's Book of Abraham Called Product of Imagination. Can you tell us about the involvement of your mentor in this 1960s sort of a discussion with Hugh Nibley and anyone else who was involved? Well, Klaus Baer, my, my own professor, was the next Egyptologist who was consulted uh, regard after Rusted on the, on the veracity of the Book of Abraham and the translation from these papyrus documents. He was called in in the 60s uh, after the rediscovery of the papyri in 67. Klaus Baer was originally, like myself, working entirely with photographs. Uh, how he got them, I, I don't know. And eventually, when he had completed his work, he was allowed, by virtue of his friendship with Hugh Nibley, he was allowed to see the originals, and that confirmed some of his readings. I've never been able to see the, the originals, unlike Klaus. I did apply when I first began my work in 2002. I wrote to Brigham Young and to the, the keeper of the museum there in order to be able to make use of the papyri, and I was denied permission. So I, I've, I have never actually seen the papyri. I've only worked for good quality photographs. Dr. Ritter, I'm curious, how would Hugh Nibley and and Dr. Bear have had a relationship? What would have been the reason for and or history and or nature of that relationship? Well, I don't know all the details, except that Hugh Nibley was a student of Klaus's and took, took, took hieroglyphs with Klaus Bear. Where would that have been? Uh, in Chicago, presumably. Klaus would also regularly spend his uh, summers in, in Utah. And so perhaps they encountered each other on social occasions then. I don't, I don't know. Do we know, do you know RFM, was, was Hugh Nibley's PhD from UCLA or California? Oh, I think so. I think it was in something having to do with classics. I think his dissertation was about uh, something to do with uh, Roman Greco culture in, of some respect. Okay. But he had a relationship with, with, uh, with Dr. Bear. And, and that's how he gets brought, that, that's... Klaus Bear for a time taught at Berkeley. Okay. So I, I, this was all when I was a child. So I, I don't Got know it. the details for this. So tell us about the 1968 article by Klaus Bear. In, in 1968, uh, Klaus did, a, was part of a series of articles that were done for the, the new journal Dialogue. There were, there were articles that were done by all of the major Chicago Egyptologists at the time of the, the rediscovery of these papyri. Hugh Nibley was also part of this process. Uh, it is when Hugh started doing his personal ad hominem attacks 
uh, that only the Mormons saw. Dialogue uh, might have had a slightly broader audience. I don't know. I found these articles in Klaus Baer's papers, which we have in the Oriental Institute. But there were articles by John Wilson. There were articles by Richard Parker and by Klaus Baer, also by the Tanners, all part of the dialogue sections that came out in, in 1968. Would it be accurate Klaus to say Bears was the most important of, of them in terms of the translation? He actually went thoroughly trying to, to give a complete translation of Papyrus Number One. He didn't work with any of the others. Uh, John Wilson made some attempts at the Book of the Dead of Tasharet Men, which is also included among the sections. And Richard Parker only had a few remarks on the papyri collection. The, the Tanners were able to point out what was wrong with the hoopocephalus, and we've talked about that last time. And the, the year before any of this happened, in, in 1966, the Tanners had come out with their microfilm volume that RFM was just discussing. And that volume is still available, I believe, at least it was available to me, because when I worked on trying to understand these papers, which go by multiple names, we'll talk about that too, uh, the only access I had for those was what's in the microfilm volume. And they've been reproduced now in full size, but they're extremely faint, they're hard to work with, and obviously seeing the originals would be better. Microfilm is not a very good quality material, and you make a Xerox off the microfilm, it's even less valuable, but that's what I had to work with, was the Xerox off a of microfilm that was the so-called perfect binding, which is just slapped together with some glue. Uh, and and that's that was my source for these. These are extremely difficult texts to work with because they are faint and because they are many, many hand copies. So I wasn't sure initially what to do with them. Uh, they also included one other thing that was in the church's possession. It, it had lost possession of the papyrus, except for one sheet. When the papyrus was broken apart, what the Mormon holders did was to glue pieces back together again, usually in the wrong place, upside down and sideways. I've got all the patches indicated in my book showing exactly where they go and highlighted with color, et cetera, just so that you can see them. It's a really complicated crossword puzzle. But there is one plate known as the church historian's fragment that was maintained by the church because it was separate from the rest of the papyri. And that example of actual papyrus bits that were pasted onto a, a sheet that survived together with these uh, initial scribbled attempts at translating the book of more the the, uh, the book of Abraham. All of that was together in the church archives, and it's in the Tanner material. And so I was able to work at things through that. And sometimes they're referred to as the Kirtland Egyptian papers. We're going to refer to them as the Abraham Egyptian papers. I have a real quick question for you, Doctor Rittner. You hear the story as a Mormon or as a, a questioning Mormon, that when the papyrus were first rediscovered, that the church was excited because they thought, wow, this is great. Now we, now we can read Egyptian. Now the papyrus have been discovered. Now the Egyptologists can read the papyrus and prove that Joseph Smith, in fact, did an accurate translation. 
it, it, now, now I wonder about that because we already have 1912, uh, you know, all the, all the criticisms reemerging. But do, do you, is it your understanding that when Dr. Bear got involved, that the church was excited uh, with the prospects of Dr. Bear or others vindicating Joseph Smith as indeed having the power to translate Egyptian? I think probably so, but already in the, in the same dialogue articles, uh, Nibley was beginning to back off of that and trying to find multiple explanations. So the idea that this was not really a translation, that the word translation that was printed by Smith didn't mean what, he, what we all think it means. That there was some sort of inspiration that was coming through the heavens despite what the Egyptian text actually said. So that was already beginning in the 60s. Because you had then in the 60s arguments by the Egyptologists Wilson and Parker and Bear, the most devastating, as I pointed out, being Bear, who gave a thorough translation. And Bear says in his article specifically that the surviving papyrus, fragment one, and some of the other fragments are the source of the book of Abraham. He makes that explicit. And he was the first to make that claim that we can now say without a shadow of a doubt that the translation was coming from the surviving papyrus. He did, however, leave wiggle room at the end of his article for saying that, well, in the eyes of Egyptology, it would be this, but the faithful might, through some other means, come out with a different meaning. So he allowed Nibley to have his translation by faithful inspiration. The problem with that, of course, is that you might as well be reading a telephone book because then there's nothing special about the papyrus. Right. And then there's the problem with the word translation, which is used explicitly to mean translate from one language to another several times in the facsimiles. Facsimile one, it's referred to specifically in the body of the text, and it's said again in facsimile three, and we've talked about all of those examples in previous recordings. And not just that, in the Doctrine and Covenants in April 6, 1830, when the church is restored, I think it's section 21 of the Doctrine and Covenants, it says Joseph Smith is a prophet, seer, revelator, and translator. So it uses that word in scripture. It doesn't say revelator. It doesn't say inspired syncretist, as Terrell Gibbons wants us to believe now. It literally, God uses the word translator in section 21 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And something that I'm realizing, and I got this from the New York Times article, it was really important for Joseph Smith to make people believe he had special powers. So this power to translate isn't just some side hobby that Joseph Smith was engaged in. It 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 it. It, it was part of the lore of the Book of Mormon that he had the power to translate, you know, Reformed Egyptian into the Book of Mormon. Unfortunately, inconveniently, the plates were withdrawn. But then again, with, with the Book of Abraham, he's claiming these special powers to translate. And as I understood from the New York Times article, when Chandler shows up in Kirtland with the scrolls, it's because he had been Heard, he had heard about Joseph Smith's special powers, and he was excited to find a buyer in the papyrus and the mummies because he knew that Joseph Smith had claimed to have the power to translate Egyptian. Because, again, that was part of what made Joseph Smith famous and sought after 
in in those early 1830 years. Correct me if, if I'm I could, wrong. If I could just throw in something here. The, the church has recently released a statement now to which I replied some years ago. But in their statement, they tried to point out that Joseph Smith was not known as a translator, that he hadn't claimed to know Egyptian. And I have rebutted that because in Smith's earlier work, he actually pretended to speak Egyptian. And there is an oration to the Green Mountain Boys, Vermont, uh, in which he claims to speak Egyptian and gives an Egyptian word that's gibberish. And John Gee has even gone into print attempting to justify that Egyptian translation. And that's pre-Book of Abraham. So Smith has been doing this all along. Uh, in that same oration to the Green Mountain Boys, Smith also claims to be able to translate multiple other languages that he clearly couldn't have known. So the idea of Smith as a translator is something that he made use of falsely from the very beginning. That's contrary to the explicit church statement, and it's contrary to the express publications by Guy, where they tried to justify these things. And we have just on the screen, for those interested really quickly, just a mountain of quotes from church history. History of the church, as Mr. Chandler had been told, quote, Joseph Smith, I could translate them. He brought me some of the characters and I gave him the interpretation. Um, you know, there's there's eight or nine, at least 10 different quotes in the history of the church where it's basically saying over and over again, you know, with W.W. W. Phelps and Oliver Caldera scribes, I, Joseph Smith, commenced the translation of some of the characters or hieroglyphics, and much to our joy found that one of the roles contained the writings of Abraham. And it's just history of church quote after history of church quote, where in fact, it's not just saying, using the word translation, but it's literally talking about translating the characters of the hieroglyphics, and it just leaves no room for, for someone to then try and walk that back and, and claim that the translation wasn't an accurate, you know, word uh, that was, that was being used. Some other word should have been in its place. God, angels, Joseph Smith, and everyone around him all called it a translation referring to hieroglyphics and characters. And we're about to prove to you all um, that, that even the Egyptian Abrahamic, Abraham Egyptian papers confirm uh, the same thing. So let's talk about... Before you um, go there, John, I'm sorry. Please. Can I mention something here? And could you... Thank you for doing that with the screen. Um, this letter to the Green Mountain Boys is very important on this issue. I'm not going to belabor this point very much, except it is available on the Joseph Smith Papers Project, where I have pulled it up, just have to do in Joseph Smith's letter to the Green Mountain Boys. By the way, Professor, uh, this was actually written in December of 1843. So this does post-date the production in print of the Book of Abraham. But this is where he's appealing to different people to come and help him out with the Nauvoo Legion because they're getting so much uh, flack and persecution and things are looking kind of precarious. But as part of this appeal and trying to get them to come join the cause, he, Joseph Smith, decides that he is going to show the recipients of this letter his abilities as a translator in a number of different languages, including Egyptian. And he gives the translation along with these. And I'm not going to go into a whole lot of these, but basically he says, first off, were I a Chaldean, I would exclaim, 
Kied now ta merun le hoam olau haya de semaya ve. And then it goes on for a little bit further. And I'll let you read it for yourself if you want to look it up. But then it gives a translation for this saying, Thus shall ye say unto them, the gods that have not made the heavens and earth, they shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. And then he gives a quick snippet from Egyptian. By the way, he'll go on to Greek, French, German, Syrian, Samaritan, Hebrew, Polish, Western Indian, and Roman doing the exact same thing in this one lengthy paragraph where he gives a brief snippet in these foreign languages, which he presents as being a master of, or at least enough to be able to throw off translations willy-nilly. So here's what he says in Egyptian. Su-e-e-ni. And he writes that out, and this is for you, Professor Rittner, so you can compare this with your knowledge of Egyptian. S-U-E-E-H-N-I. That's what he presents in the letter to the Green Mountain Boys as Egyptian, and he gives the translation in parentheses after it saying, what other persons are those? Question mark. So I've got to ask Dr. Rittner, is S-U-E-E-H-N-I Egyptian first off, and if so, does it mean what other persons are those? Um, the answer is no and no. Okay. In, in, I believe both John Gee and Michael D. Rhodes have attempted to create an Egyptian creation for it. Kiwi u za u naiu would be Egyptian. And that didn't sound alike. You have some S sounds, you have some N sounds but there's no K sounds in the Smith version. No, there so are he not. He doesn't have a word that would, and that's critical because that's the word for other. Kiwiu, others. So if you don't have the word for others, you can't translate it as others. So the simple answer is no. Do, 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 do those words that Joseph Smith uttered mean anything in Egyptian that you're aware of? Not to me. So it's, again, gibberish. Is that fair it's to say? Gibberish. It's gibberish. Okay. And the reason I went into such detail, John, is I think you'll understand it's because this is a place where it's pretty hard to argue that Joseph Smith is doing anything other than stating, number one, here's an Egyptian word, and number two, I can translate it into English. Right. Right. Well, if, it's, if this was published in the 1840s, I don't remember the context because I think I got this, I think I got this out of the, uh, the, the Brody book. That's where I read it. We may not have had the full context for it there. But I actually refer to it in my response back to the church statement because it's an example of him claiming that he can, in fact, translate, as you say, a wide variety of languages. Yes. And if it's, in, if it's in 1841, you say, well, that's at the time that he's still putting the finishing touches on the Book of Abraham. Right? He began writing it in uh, Kirtland and finish off elsewhere. So. Yeah, this one's 43, actually. So it's after it's done. A year before he's oh, dead. But it's, it's, it's within that same time period. Then. Right. Right. Um, by the way, I just want to say this other thing, because now we're talking about 67 and the coming forth of the papyrus. And we're going to talk about how they show that apparently Joseph Smith was using the papyrus to translate the book of Abraham as we have it today. But it does occur to me as I was reading that New York Times article that you had up there on the screen, John, 
that we have a church, and by the way, Dr. Rittner, I'm sure you know this too, but we have a church in the LDS church that unfortunately for over 100 years had a priesthood ban on men who were of African, or I should say American descent. It's sometimes called the priesthood ban on blacks. It included their being able to go to the temple or uh, black women being able to go to the temple as well, frequently just abbreviated as the temple ban. You were aware of that, correct? Uh, I was. I pointed this out in my, my own first article in Dialogue. Oh. That's, that's one of the side effects of the Book of Abraham. Because in the story that Smith has created, he, he disparages the sons of Ham. And in, in, in there, that is the origin of the ban. Right. That's exactly what I was getting to. So trying to put myself back in 67 when all this is happening. I mean, it would have happened to a lesser extent, maybe in 1912. But in 67, you were right in the middle of the United States of the civil rights movement. And the church is getting untold amounts of flack from non-Mormons, obviously, for continuing its priesthood ban on people simply because they are black. And so this is the 1960s. All this is happening. The fact is, is that the main basis that the LDS Church has for restricting the priesthood from black men is found in the Book of Abraham. And so in the context of all this going on, here comes this discovery and these scholars analyzing the papyri and it is looking like the main basis that the church has for restricting the priesthood from blacks is looking more and more like something that Joseph Smith made up out of whole cloth and is not a translation from the Egyptian. And, well, and that, that, that is followed not long thereafter by a revelation at the top of your church's leadership in which they decided to change that rule. Ten years later. <laughs> well, so, yeah. But that's that's fast for a church. <laughs> but 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 I think it's super cool. So I'm showing I'm showing this 1970 New York Times article now, and you know paragraph five of this New York Times article, it begins with the with the headline. And again, the, this article is entitled, headlined Mormons Book of Abraham called product of imagination, and paragraph five starts with the title Negro resentment. And it says, the growing social impact of Negro resentment of the Utah Mormons' exclusion of them from full participation in the church has served to focus further attention on the credibility of the Book of Abraham. This is because there's one short phrase among its thousands of words that is cited as the reason for prohibiting Negroes from entering the priesthood orders to which all Mormon males of other races are readily admitted. The phrase says that persons with Negro blood are barred from the priesthood. Then it goes on to say, black athletes at the University of Wyoming have refused to play against teams from Brigham Young University, the Utah Mormon School. Stanford University has served notice of intention to sever athletic relationships with the school, which is in Provo, Utah, as a protest of Negro exclusion practiced by the church. So this is something that I just am now putting together that the the book of Abraham figures prominently in the discussion about the black priesthood ban and its lifting between the mid 1960s and 1978, when eventually the priesthood ban is lifted. Thank you for calling that to our attention, RFM. That's super important. 
Sure thing. Sure thing. And I think, I guess it's obvious from history now that the church, when it had a really good reason, both sociologically as well as Egyptologically, to to distance itself from the book of Abraham as being scripture, chose not to. They maintained the book of Abraham as scripture, but then received the revelation in 1968, like Dr. Rittner said, lifting the ban. 78. The book of eight. Did I say 68? Yeah. Okay, 78. Uh, that's when I graduated high school. I should remember that. So lifting the ban, and but the book of Abraham is too much with us late and soon. It's not going anywhere fast. Because it strikes to the core of Joseph Smith's credibility. Yes, and his, his prophetic translation ability. Right. So, Dr. Rittner, should we now jump to how you got involved in all of this? By all means. Okay, uh, let's, let's hear it. In 2002, I was approached by Gary Bagara of the Institute for Religious Research out of Grand Rapids. And I didn't know... No, wait, Mr. I think uh, Gary was with uh, the Smith Pettit Foundation and... He, he, could, he could well be. So I think that's a separate group than the evangelical group. All right. was, so I don't, I don't mean to correct you. I just, I don't want Gary, who's of, of, well, of signature I, I, books. I can't go through my correspondence now. It's all in my office where I'm... I'm yeah, yeah. So Gary's with signature books, Gary Bajera. And then there's this evangelical group out in Grand, Ra- Grand Rapids, right? Well, I was, I was contacted if, to see if I would be interviewed okay on regard to the textual validity of Klaus Baer's translation got it so i was asked because i was now back in residence at the oriental institute again in chicago i had come back from yale and i was the direct successor of klaus baer i was working on religious topics and so i was an appropriate person to ask because Beer had been there before, and all those antecedents that we talked about in the 60s, John Wilson had been there, who had dealt with it. Parker had dealt with it. And before him, Breasted had dealt with it. So all of the Egyptologists in line, basically, had, had dealt with this subject. And so I was asked, would you look at the Klaus Bear translation, look at photographs that we can supply and tell me what is your evaluation of it. And so I looked at it, and so I was able to give a reply, which was filmed as part of a documentary entitled The Lost Book of Abraham, A Remarkable Mormon Discovery. That was in 2002. And later in the same year... And so that's a, that's a DVD, is that right? That's, a, that's, that's now a DVD. It was originally a VHS, which was widely distributed, but also in DVD form. And you're showing the DVD. It's on the screen. That's 2002. Right. And uh, I already quoted from that at the beginning of the lecture today, uh, where I referenced to the taking off the head of the Madonna and child and replacing it with a dog and a cat. That, that, that's a clip from my remarks back in 2002. What was was the reception of the VHS tape and the DVD? Do you have any recollection of that? I have no idea because this was simply something that I did for them. And by the way, they did not in any way influence my remarks or ask me what, or to suggest to me what I ought to say. And I was not unique because Lanny Bell was also uh, involved as well. And he had been Chicago also. So they, they asked out, they asked two Chicago people basically. And did your involvement in that DVD slash videotape make you a wealthy man? 
<laughs> no, I was not paid for that. You weren't paid at all? Nothing. So you, di- you didn't have some sort of monetary incentive or some axe to grind? No, I've done a number of recordings and I've, I, for various uh, groups on historical religious matters. I have never asked for payment for any of them. That's amazing. I, I've never received an honorarium for any recording I've done, not once. You should have. That's my opinion. <laughs> okay, what came next? Well, within the same year, uh, I was asked if I would consider doing this in print, basically responding to, now more specifically, responding to the issue of was the Klaus Bear 1968 translation still valid? And so I, I said I would, but I decided to do it only on one condition. Uh, the condition again was, well, the condition was that I would make this analysis for dialogue, which is where I was requested to do it. Uh, this would be the same journal that Klaus Bear had published in, so it would be a logical place to put a response. Uh, I had the manuscript finished it was actually done, I had actually been contacted, I, my, my chronology is off, I'd been, I'd been contacted at least in 2000 because I had, I had looked, I, I had done a full translation of it by 2000. It didn't get printed till 2002. And so, how similar was your translation from, from Dr. Bear? Very, very similar. There are only a, a few words here and there and, and some changes in column designation. But in terms of content, no difference. And in terms of conclusions, we are essentially the same. Um, that the, the, the Egyptian text is very specific. And I would rule out an inspirational reading because I, I don't think this is the same thing as translating the phone book. So my ending is not the same as his. But it was a 2002 publication. I did it for dialogue, but my, I, would, I insisted that it also, if I was going to go to all this work, to read the papyrus, but I would also do a corresponding one that would reach the scholarly community and not just Mormons, because I don't think any of my colleagues have read anything that's in dialogue. So the work by Bear and at the same time by Wilson and Parker was only seen by people who would be reading the the journal dialogue, and that would be Mormons, but not Egyptologists. So I did another version at the same time that would be published in the Journal of Near Eastern Studies, which is our in-house journal for our department at Chicago. And it took an extra year for that to appear in print. That's called the Breathing Permit of Horror Among the Joseph Smith Papyri. Exactly. And so they, they are essentially the same articles with only with some minor improvements in the the later one. The first one. article was called The Breathing Permit of Horror 34 Years Later. Right. And the 34 references the time between that and the appearance of the Bear article. Wait, 34 years from what to what? I'm sorry, I'm, I'm missing that. For the 34 years is from the time of Bear's article to the time of this one. Okay. Oh, right, 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 because we're in 2000. Got it, okay. 
So in other words, it was just a, that was just a, a specific reference back to the bear article. Right. The 67. Yeah. Because it's in the same journal that the bear article was published in. And that was my original charge. It was the only charge was that, would you please take a look at this translation and would you from there compare it with bear? Perfect. Okay. That meant I had to read the entire document and that produced, that was complicated. And so I want, if I was going to go to all that trouble, I wanted to make sure that uh, there was an edition available also uh, for scholars because this text actually has some interesting features about it. And I had even cited this papyrus in an earlier article by my, by myself on the three times greatest Thoth. I had referenced a passage in the Joseph Smith papyrus where it refers to uh, Thoth Hermes, uh, the three times greatest. And the problem I had was that there was no good edition of it. And I wanted to be able to cite an edition that had an inclusion of the pictures of the papyrus. And so I was forced to use another version we haven't talked about, and that was the Hugh Nibley version. And so Nibley had done a version in which he reproduced images of the relevant sections of papyrus number one. And uh, he then had some strange and wonderful interpretations and his translation was word for word, which produced an odd result. It wasn't grammatically fluid and he used his own made up transliteration system, which no one would actually use. Uh, so it was problematic, but I cited it in an art and other passage because it was the only place where you could actually see the image. It wasn't an attempt to approve of Nibley's scholarship in general. I was approving his photograph. Got it. So when I was asked in 2002 what I had to work with, or 2000, actually, 2000, I keep forgetting that I had, had written this earlier before it was actually printed. Uh, the, the print date officially on Dialogue, by the way, is 2000, but it, it didn't appear till later. But they had the manuscript in their hands by 2000. So I was actually asked this before the, before the videotape. Um, although I don't remember now when the filming was, the lag time between the filming and when the video actually appeared, because it had you had to go through the editing process. Et okay, so you receive the call from Gary Bergera, you write, you do the translation, you write the article, but then it doesn't come out for a couple of years later because it takes time for these things to get published. In the meantime, exactly. you do right. the 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 videotape and the DVD. All right, got it. Um, and so then there was the option of, of possibly trying to do a book on the subject because I had, I, I don't know the backstory of how these individuals had the photographs, but I was told that they had the photographs, they would supply them. And would I consider doing a volume and I would be paid if I did a volume? Let, let me ask you that about that, Dr. Rittner. So, you're you're at the most prestigious Egyptological sort of institution in the Western Hemisphere. There are all sorts of important things you could be researching. There's this scrawny little, uh, what some would call kind of cultish religion in Idaho and Utah that's got this absurd claim about a prophet slash some say charlatan from 100 plus years before. 
when when your let's say department head or your colleagues or whoever else finds out you're engaging in this subject of Joseph Smith's and I have to use air quotes translation of the book of Abraham I imagine at least two possible responses might emerge one would be this is silly why are you wasting your time and then a second would be religion is scary volatile sensitive territory why why would you want to wade into kind of people's sacred weird sensitive religious beliefs there are all sorts of i would imagine there'd be all sorts of academic pressure to run from not just avoid this work so i'm curious what made you decide to do it and how it was received by your peers by your department chair by the tenure committee by other scholars and and even board board chairs or the university president or anyone who might be worried about offending the mormons well it's an interesting story uh i should back up and say that i didn't know anything about the mormon religion to speak of when i began this project so when i was reached out to uh it was uh, there were no preconceptions on my part or on the part of the people who reached out to me because i they didn't express any specifics to me except they had these papyri and would I be willing to work on it. Uh, working on Egyptian documents is what I do. And I had already cited it in an earlier article I had done because of a, an unusual title of a, of a god that I, I had to cite Nibley's work. So I had, I had shown, ex I, I knew of the existence of it and I knew that we had the papers of Klaus Baer that included some of these complex matters uh, in regard to past interpretations. Because one of my colleagues, John Larson, had done an article for a memorial volume after the death of Klaus Baer that, that specifically concerned the papers that he had uh, in the Baer archives. John Larson was our, was our archivist. He was the keeper of our personal records. And so he had all of these files from Klaus Baer that included copies of the Improvement Era and correspondence with Nibley, et cetera. So uh, it was a huge amount of material there. So I knew if I was asked, when I was asked would I be willing to do it, I knew that there were resources I could go to within our own building that would help. And I was now being offered extraordinarily useful digital images which could be blown up to where you could see in tiny pixels the, the high quality of the papyrus, just as if I was working with the original. So it was hard to turn down. Uh, there, were, there were no restrictions placed on me. So what I did is I put together a proposal and I submitted it to our press, which had to be approved by our director. And it was sent out for peer review, which is a thing we regularly do. And we got back word from colleagues in Germany who had looked at the manuscript that this was a silly waste of time. So exactly what you're saying is that it was, it was treated as being, it, it wasn't worth my time to do something like this. Um, as I've tried to suggest, it's actually an interesting papyrus and even my own feeling about the first illustration 
that's to say the real papyrus illustration that, that underlies facsimile one was changed even today when I made my announcement that I think this is a this is a unique witness to a wall scene that we don't have otherwise preserved. So this actually is an important papyrus. Uh, and it's a, it's a rarefied category of Egyptian religious documents from the latest periods, which is when I specialize. So it's a, it's a natural fit for me. It was a natural fit for me because I was the next in line for Egyptologists at Chicago who had worked on it. So that seemed to be reasonable. But the word coming back was, don't bother, it's a waste of time. And our director at the time immediately pulled me aside and said, we're not going to publish it and did not give me any reasons. Uh, I had been warned by John Larson uh, when he published his small article that if you get involved with this, it's, it's a very complicated matter and you will be wading into problems. But I don't, I don't apparently pay attention to good advice because I went ahead and waded into it anyway. Um, so the book project was then turned down. Was, there, the was, there a moral, was there a moral or an ethical motivation for you? I was simply interested in understanding what the papyrus had to say. It was an intellectual task. Uh, the religious aspects of it were entirely aside. Uh, I should point out here that I had a student who was Mormon, and I had more than one. And the most famous of these is John Gee, but I had a female student who was Mormon uh, before John ever appeared at Yale. There were also two advanced students who were Mormon who were in Chicago when I was a graduate student there as well. One of them is Ed Ashman. Um, so I knew of the existence of Mormon, but, but it, it was not something that impinged on my existence. I knew that my professor, Klaus Baer, had worked on the Mormon papyri. And I knew that my colleague, John Larson, had talked about these after Klaus's death. I knew that we had papers on the subject. But basically, that's, that's all I knew. Uh, when I was in elementary school, there were a couple of individuals who were Mormon, but they seemed to be normal like everybody else. And so we were not close friends and they, they didn't stand out. So it, 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 And you it weren't trying to take down the church or attack the church? or No, no, the on the contrary. Uh, the, the most forceful Mormon I had was John Gee, who made a point of expressing this, unlike all the other students. Uh, he would regularly wear to class a Hugh Nibley fan club T-shirt, which had the name Hugh Nibley prominently inscribed across the front of it. And uh, I knew who Hugh Nibley was because I had cited his book in an article I had done before John ever came. Um, I found out later that John was actually quoting my reference to that to Nibley in my article as an attempt to say that I was justifying Nibley's scholarship by citing Nibley's article when I was only citing it for the photograph. And so in an article subsequently, in my dialogue article, I pointed out that my citing of Nibley through John uh, was, not, was not a validation of Nibley's work or of John's work because I also referred in that dialogue article to other 
strange publications that John Gee had done justifying things that I was disagreeing with. And I wanted to point out in the article that although I was a professor, I had not seen when he was a student. He didn't show them to me. And that was normal for most students. Before they would print something, they would show it to me before putting it in print. But John never did that. So I had no, no knowledge of these except uh, from John. I did, however, get occasional emails from people like Ed Ashman, who told me, do you know that your student is publishing a strange article on fill-in-the-blank? So I knew John was doing things of this sort, but I, I didn't interact with him on those. They didn't come up in class. Uh, I taught the required religious seminar for all graduate students in the Department of Religion one year at Yale University. John was one of those students. I'm sure he wrote on a Mormon-themed topic, and I didn't criticize him for it, and I probably gave him an A. He got nothing but support and good grades from me. Okay, so no extra grind. Uh, I still don't. Okay. Excellent. At RFM, do you have any... Quick, quick questions before we jump to his book. Uh, no, I don't. Okay. So here is um, here is a, a view of the cover of the books that were published around, you know, nine, nine years later. Is that right? Yes. Well, the problem is that my book project with the Oriental Institute Press failed. And so then I got correspondence asking me, would I be willing to let another press do it? And that was the Smith Credit Press. And they would give me a small honorarium if I worked together to put the book. But I would have to do all the work to make it as a book. And I would have to go out and find the, uh, someone to act as the, the book manager to actually do the press mock-up. And they would pay for the printing. And they would give me a small honorarium for the book. And uh, because I had already pulled the material together, I was happy to do it. And the honorarium was fine. It was what I'd get for, you know, I've made more for a lecture than I made for making that book. For a single and, lecture? Yes, for one lecture. So and the amount of time I, that I, I'm not going to retire on this book. And this book was only limited to a very small number of, cor of, of copies. I think 500 copies maximum. But the and number so of hours or years you would have spent. It was a huge amount of time. But like a year, two just, years? This is, this is something that I do. This is part of my, part of my uh, experience. That the Oriental Institute was supposed to be a co-sponsor of our Cleopatra exhibit that we had in, the, in Chicago. It was, Chicago was the only venue for this major exhibit coming from the British Museum. The, the Chicago pulled out, or rather the Oriental Institute pulled out. But our field museum still wanted to do the exhibit, was still going to sponsor it, and they had no Egyptologist who was willing to work for them. So I volunteered, and I spent all of my time for a full year rewriting all the labels coming in for the exhibit, coming in regularly to do the mock-ups, all of this, and I didn't get, I, I, I was paid a lunch. So I didn't do it for the money. Uh, when I'm asked why, or why did you become an Egyptologist? Uh, you had asked me this in our first interview. But my usual stock answer is poor financial sense. <laughs> 
Now, I do things because I have interest in the topic. Uh, I think Cleopatra is an amazingly wonderful queen of Egypt, which is why there's a painting of her death in my study room here. But for the same reason, I was fascinated by the issues of the ancient Egyptian religion in this period, and I wanted to do the book. Uh, and I had already tried through my own press. They turned me down. So here was an option to do it. No one had an ax to grind. No one was saying, you have to prove X, Y, or Z. I could say anything I wanted to. They would still pay me the tiny sum. And I would get the book out of it that I had tried to do already. And this book was such a success in 2013 that, in 2011, that I was asked in 2013, could, I, could we do a paperback version? And so the paperback version uh, there, as you see, has a mock-up of uh, facsimile one there on it, showing you the actual papyrus with the restoration. And it's essentially the same as what was in the earlier hardbound version. Uh, it's sold a lot more copies because the paperback is far cheaper and it's in wider distribution. So none of these were motivated by a desire for profit since there isn't any. Uh, I'll not be retiring on these. Got it. Right. And Dr. Rittner, even though this seems to have been beating a dead horse, maybe in some respects, about your pecuniary interests in pursuing this line of research. I think the reason that John is asking you these questions is because it is very typical and customary to find apologists for the church attacking you and saying, well, the only reason you don't agree with their arguments and you continue to be critical of the book of Abraham is because A, you've got an ax to grind and you're an anti-Mormon, or B, because you're doing it for the money. Well, let me respond to both of those. Uh, yeah, if, if I were doing it for the money, I would have retired long ago. And I'm not getting anything on this that would, would actually influence my, my uh, life in retirement. This is, this is not a money-gaining experience, and it's been extremely time-consuming. My most important comment on the subject um, is, I suppose, the this, this statement I made in response to the church's statement, which we will get to in a moment, that's not been published in anything except on my Oriental Institute website. It was then picked up by Signature Books and repeated on some of their websites. Uh, but for that, I was paid exactly nothing by anyone, never have been, because it's not even in book form. And once again, I encountered opposition. That there, there was resistance from our director for my posting that on our website because it linked my name to the Oregon Institute. And my suspicion, although never explained to me, my suspicion is that the, there is a fear or there was a fear of losing donations. So money is a factor, but it's not a factor for me. Money is a factor for Guy and Milstein, who are full-time employees of a fundamentalist branch of the church, which supports the Book of Abraham. They are paid to make these statements. I get no money to make my statements. So I am monetarily at an extreme disadvantage because I get exactly nothing. I mean, I mean <laughs> nothing to do all of this work that I have done uh, in terms of a monetary reimbursement for my time and efforts. So I'm doing this entirely out of interest. 
And the issue of being anti-Mormon, um, essentially for John, anyone who is not pro his variety of Mormon is by definition anti-Mormon. Uh, I'm Mormon and different. My background is a wide ranging of religions. I teach religion. I don't, as a point, disparage the essence of religion, which is why I'm not going to say that people should believe X, Y, or Z. People can believe what they like. All I can do is point out the facts. It's the old remark about you can bring a horse to water, you cannot make them drink. And if people want to take my facts and see what that does for their understanding of the book of Abraham, fine. Uh, if they don't want to do it, fine also. That's a personal decision one has to make. Right. So let me just uh, ask you this question. I understand how you got brought into this subject, why it's a matter of professional interest to you being based upon legitimate papyri that were discovered that deal with your time period of interest and focus. And your book that you wrote, which was then made into paperback form, which you just talked about. Then 2014 rolls around, and I'm not going to get too much out of chronological order, John, but uh, the church puts out its essay on the website, and then you write the response, that response that you were just talking about that you did not get paid any money for, right? That's correct. So you don't get paid any money for it. You're not doing it because you're an anti-Mormon or because you have an ax to grind. So what is your motivation in writing a paper in response to the church's essay, and specifically those claims about how Egyptian the book of Abraham is. Uh, I know you must have spent many hours writing that. You didn't make any money off of it. What was your motivation in writing that response to the church's essay? Well, my, the reason why I wrote the reply is that the church had, had basically denied the conclusions that were in my book. They had also, in the meantime, co-sponsored a series of additional volumes that failed to do me the dignity of acknowledging the existence of my work. So they had published volumes by Michael D. Rhodes on the, the initial papyrus on the breathing permit of horror. And as I pointed out last time, they had plagiarized aspects from my book without actually ever acknowledging its existence. Not even my articles and dialogue or JNES. They had used them, they had appropriated portions from them, and they didn't even cite them. They pretended I didn't exist. Rhodes would go on to do a version of the Book of the Dead of Tasheret Min, which is also part of the collection, and the Papyrus of Amenhotep, which is only found in the uh, surviving scribal hand copies from the Abraham documents that were in, always in the church possession. He did all of this in multiple volumes, and he never cites any of my work. So I was genuinely irritated that my conclusions were being disparaged, my work was being pillaged, and I was not even being acknowledged. So that's a major motivating factor. Uh, in addition, there was the intellectual feature that I had encountered as I did my, my initial book. In that, I was asked, as I said, to, to work with papyri, but that was different from the earlier articles because this was the first time anyone had ever decided to work with all of the surviving Smith material. That's to say, 
not only the papyri, but also the sheets that were in the uh, church's collection, the whatever you want to call them, the Kirtland papers, otherwise known as the uh, Egyptian alphabet and grammar, which is how the tanners call them. Uh, as we shall see in a moment, I call them valuable discovery because that's how they're listed in some of the documents that are in that group. Um, so these, this then allowed me to do a complete reconstruction of the Book of the Dead, which, which required hours and hours and hours to try to figure out uh, and reconstruct from pieces that were wrongly placed elsewhere in the text. Um, and having invested all that much energy in it, I wanted at least the, the response to acknowledge my work because that was huge amount of work. Uh, I didn't want money for it. What I wanted recognition for the work that I had done. I mean, it's nice to see my work being used even without my name when they ape my conclusions about what's on the missing uh, facsimile three and they, they borrow an epithet of Anubis that I alone had found. And yet there it appears in an extra column, as I pointed out last time. But my motivation was I wanted recognition. And by looking back again at what I had done, as we shall see in a second, with some of those surviving papers from the valuable discovery, I realized that the methodology that Smith had used to create the story of Katumin was exactly the same methodology he had used to create the Book of Abraham. So between the time of the publication of my book and the new article that I did on my own website, I made a major discovery. And that is, I could actually now understand what Smith's scribes were doing in those pieces of paper that the church had held that I had only seen in, in photograph. And I had, I, re, I realized this was, a, this was a new discovery from what I had put in the book. And so that was the crux of my discussion online, that I had now a new explanation, I could go one step further, and I could actually say, this is how Smith did it. Not merely that he had made up a translation, but I could tell you how he made up a translation. And unbeknownst to myself, I had shown he had done exactly the same thing with the Katumin material which you can see by looking carefully at the Smith papers that are part of this collection. So it's because I had something new to say and I had a motivation to say it that, and I, that I wrote this other article. It was what I should have put in the book if I had realized it. Uh, the problem with the Kirtland papers or however, whatever you want to call them is that there's so many of them. And some of these had even been worked with by Klaus Baer. I looked back again recently at the Klaus Baer 1968 article. And at the end of his article, he says, 
what the Egyptologist says is as follows, and he gives an Egyptian a translation from the actual Egyptian. And what Smith would say, and he gives that. And what I realized by looking at it again recently is that Bear had made probably the same recognition that I had, but he hadn't explained it clearly. That what Smith was doing was to take one little bit of a sign and creating an entire paragraph of it. Now, in Bearer's 1968 article, instead of using the sheets of the scribes, which recopy the hieratic, Egyptian, he's using sheets where Smith's interpretations are there, which are, so it will have the Egyptian and it will say the third degree of blah, blah, blah. I forget now what, it, what the wording actually is with Smith had all of these comments about the X degree of the something or another, astronomical things. But these are, comp these are complementary sheets to, that are to the ones that I would use. Because what happened is if you look carefully at all of these extra sheets, that Smith would go again and again back to the same few hieratic signs. So some of them are explained astronomically and others are explained with the text of Katamin. Bear picked up on the astronomical ones. He didn't go far enough in the group to talk about the ones that actually link up the translation in the same way that I did with the Egyptian sign. Uh, but he was on the right track. But I, I was directly on the right track when I did the Katamin where I could see that the hand copy of what Smith or Smith scribes was recreating out of the now lost Amenhotep Book of the Dead. We have just the beginning of that and just the initial phrases, words said by, or the saying of words by, uh, is spills out an entire paragraph about Katumin and Onitas before Smith decided to quit. So, so as we're about to launch into a discussion of, um, of uh, this in detail and actually view the images that would help our listeners understand what, what you're saying, I just want to set this up to let listeners know and viewers know why this is important. And RFM and Dr. Ritner, I want you both to uh, either, uh, you know, I want you to correct me or confirm what I'm about to say, which is that there are certain arguments that apologists make um, to try and save the book of Abraham. One is that the, the papyrus that we have weren't the ones that Joseph Smith used to translate what we now have as the book of Abraham. Uh, another is that the scroll was so super long that he must have been reading from other parts of the scroll. And then another is that he didn't use the papyrus at all, but instead it was just a catalyst. So he just needed the scroll there, like the Book of Mormon, incidentally, coincidentally, like the Golden Plates. He didn't actually translate from them, but he needed them there to inspire him to reveal through revelation what ends up becoming Scripture. Are those the main arguments we're about to address and or destroy RFM slash Dr. Rittner, and are there others? No, I think really what we're going to talk about here is the position held by John Gee and Carrie Muelstein that, in fact, what Joseph Smith was doing 
was translating from uh, an actual ancient Egyptian document that really had the Book of Abraham on it. And actually, um, John, the reason why I think this is different from the catalyst theory is the catalyst theory, it doesn't make any difference what's on the Egyptian documents. It recognizes that there's no Book of Abraham on the ones we have. There didn't have to be a Book of Abraham on anything that Joseph Smith had because it was totally revelation being beamed down into his head, even though he thought he was translating, he wasn't really translating. But what Dr. Rittner is about to point out to us is how he discovered the fact that the documents themselves, the Abraham Egyptian papers, which are so damning and so explosive from an apologetic point of view, because they do appear to show to a, an unbiased mind that what Joseph Smith was doing was he was using the characters that were on the scrolls. In fact, the scrolls that have been recovered in some instances in order to translate the text of the book of Abraham as we have it today. Okay, well, should we take it away, Dr. Rittner, and, and have you talk to us about uh, the documents themselves? Okay, well, we go to the next slide. And I'll encourage listeners to jump to YouTube or Facebook for the visuals. They'll help you understand what we're about to talk about uh, much more readily than if you're just trying to imagine in your mind what we're talking about. So what do we see here, Dr. Rittner? So here we see one of the sheets that was microfilmed. This is directly out of the Tanner publication that I, that I worked with. Uh, and you have the document itself is up the top in handwriting. Now, this I would leave up to Michael Marquardt to decipher whose handwriting that is. I think it's Smith's, but it might be one of the so-called scribes. It contains, by the way, a number of spelling errors. So it is labeled the valuable discovery of some hieroglyphic texts. Sorry, the... Writing is valuable discovery of hidden records. Hidden records that have been obtained from the ancient burying places of the Egyptians. Burying is misspelled, Egyptians is misspelled, hidden is misspelled, and then signed Joseph Smith Jr. So it is actually signed as being in the handwriting and terrible spelling of Joseph Smith. So let me read that once again. Valuable discovery of hidden records that have been obtained from the ancient burying place of the Egyptians, Joseph Smith Jr. So this is the title page that he has written that includes a ver various hand copies as he is figuring out what the translation is and creating the Book of Abraham. This is the written witness of the translation process. Now, one of the remarks made to me in some of the letters that I've gotten back from emails, and again, thank you for all of those. I've enjoyed reading them, including the clown one, um, that there's that Rittner has no evidence proving that this is the translation process. Well, I think actually I do have evidence that this is the process. This is one of the motivating factors to go back to, to John's comment. You ask me, why did I write the long rebuttal? And the reason I did it. Dr. Rittner, can you, in the can church, you, can you, real quick, can you have your, your camera is pointed up a little bit and your head's kind of out of frame. Thank you. 
Sorry, for our listeners, I don't want them just to see the top of your head. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no problem. Uh, in, in the church statement, it says that there is no witness to the translation process. Therefore, we can dismiss basically my book, which, of course, is never referenced specifically by name. My name isn't mentioned. Uh, I have persona non grata. I can't be mentioned ever by any of these people, except when they're uh, questioned at a, at, a, at a session. So anyway, what I was looking for then was, was there a witness? And this document, which says, here's the valuable discovery. Here's the title page. Here's Smith's own handwriting, his own signature, leading into the next pages that we will see. So let's go to the next pages. Can you see it? Uh, not yet. Uh, so we go from the cover sheet. Okay, here we go. Here we go. There, it there it is. So there we have a sheet, and you can see this is the same size as the cover. This is part of a group, which is why I refer to these in my book as the name Valuable Discovery. Since I've never seen the originals, I'm assuming that this is a small packet that's part of a larger group. And so the so-called Kirtland papers or Abraham papers include a, a variety of different documents. And this is one of the subsets. And here we have a sheet that has in the upper left-hand corner some doodles that are attempting to copy Egyptian hieroglyphs. They are on the left-hand corner in both sides. And then to the right of it, you get the transcription. You get a handwriting. You notice it's marked as page three. And you got the transcription in Joseph Smith's handwriting still. This is still part of that same document. This is the third page after the uh, title page signed by Smith himself. So here we can look, if you have trouble making out the handwriting, that presumably is Joseph Smith's. We can go down to the actual writing that is put by the tanners where they have made a transcription. So this is out of their microfilm book. Katumin, princess, daughter of Onitas, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who began to reign in the year of the world 2862. Katumin was born in the 30th year of the reign of her father and died when she was 18 years old. 28. I think it's 28. Sorry. 28. Okay. Um, well, if to see the problem, I've moved my screen to accommodate my viewers, but now I can't see the screen. No problem. I can read it too. Uh, so anyway, what which you was got, the, It says, which was the year 3020 after that. All right. So what you've got down at the bottom, for those of you who can see the screen at whatever angle you like, uh, that is the, that it's a direct equation of what you've got up above it. And if you look up above, what we've actually got are the Egyptian, which I can recognize as being garbed, garbled words that are the beginning of the Amenhotep papyrus. And we have the corresponding Egyptian English next to it. So what Smith has done 
is say is taken three words in Egyptian. That means what? That mean- the saying of words by. That's what it says in Egyptian. And the entire paragraph that I gave to you that's in English and available both in, in Smith's own handwriting and in the Tanner transcription beneath it makes a correspondence between those few hieroglyphs and an entire paragraph spun out. And so when I went back and found these other sheets, I had, men- I had ignored the sheets that Bear had looked at that talked about the the nth degree of something because I didn't know what to do with those. But Michael Marquardt in his large chapter in my blue bound book, that's also in the paperback book, talks about the scribal copies that are also among these group of papers. And he could distinguish different handwritings. That explained to me for the first time why there were so many copies is you had, Smith had different scribes who were engaged in copying the same things over and over again. And so that's why the same hieroglyphs kept appearing over and over again in order on these sheets and little chunks of the text. And then I realized, well, of course, that's why. So so that explains why there are multiple copies, because now I know from Marquardt there are multiple scribes, which I didn't know. Uh, now I can distinguish what's the difference between them, and I can even see the variable abilities of the different scribes. And I can see they're all attempting to produce Smith's narrative by, by making the hieroglyphs correspond to the narrative. And I'm saying hieroglyphs, but technically they're hieratic. It's cursive form of this. And the form that is taking place in these manuscript sheets, which are a witness of dictation. Smith is telling him, write this, write the next hieroglyph. Now here is the corresponding definition of that, is just what Smith himself personally did in this small subsection of text that's a valuable discovery by his own hand with his own signature on it. So there was the working mechanism. And having the sign next to the full-flung discussion of it definition of it is no different than a Webster's Dictionary, where you look up something now and there is the word, and adjacent to it you have the definition. So any reasonable person seeing the one language on the one side and adjacent to it the English translation would put those two and two together and say the one is a translation of the other. And so it's a smoking gun. I think there's, there can be no question. And as you look at the pieces, and we can do that, I did that in my online posting. You can see the individual signs and how they correspond directly to surviving pieces on the papyrus. Should we do that? Or do you want to pause uh, RFM and ask questions or add something to what's been said so far? Um, I think we should just continue with what you're talking about here so that uh, Dr. Rittner can more fully flesh this out for the viewing audience. All right. Should we go to the next image, Dr. Rittner? Sure. Okay. So the next image is now on the screen. So we're still working with Katu Min. 
uh, just before we, we finish this off. And it shows you that what, what he is doing, what Smith is doing is looking back through his papyrus jumble and deciding what is possible to make this work with Katumim. So here is his hand copy of the Book of the Dead papyrus of Amenhotep IV. This is all that really survives of it. There you'll notice there's no English in the main text. It's all the hieroglyphs. But you see there are figures that are also there. There is uh, a woman with an unusual snake that has legs. There is a bird flying figure, and there is a pot with a bird's head. Now, some of those our viewers will have recognized from having seen before. The figure of the girl with, or the woman with the snake, is actually from the Book of the Dead of Tasheret Min, which was also part of the collection that Smith bought. But Smith clearly had no idea which sections went with what, and he didn't know how many papyri he had, because they were undoubtedly in pieces. So he has copied onto the Amenhotep piece, which was completely separate, an illustration that actually comes from Tasheret Min, which is another papyrus. And it's so clearly another papyrus that if you go to the next slide, you can see it used by Michael Rhodes as the cover design on his publication of the papyrus of Tasheret Min. Now, I have the same illustration that's within the photographs that I was provided that are in the back of my hardbound book and also in the paperback book. But it's clearly a different papyrus. But the, my point is that Joseph Smith didn't know what he had, and so he's gobbling together images that are from a separate one stuck on here. And if we can go back to the previous slide again, if we look in the upper right of this slide, now I'll remind you, he's, Smith is in the process trying to make up a story for Tasheret Min. So he's got a fragmentary Egyptian document that's, that no longer survives. The only witness to we have it is the hand copies of Smith and his scribes. So this again from Valuable Discovery. And he, he recognizes that the figure here is a woman. Well, that's correct for once, because the woman in the Tasheret Min papyrus is in fact a woman. So here Smith is pulling it from a different papyrus in order to illustrate what Kat Katumin would have looked like. But in the upper right hand, he's also got images and we've seen those before as well. And John, I'm going to ask you if you could go back and find facsimile one. Absolutely. I uh, Let me jump to it right now. And here it's, uh, I have to resize my windows. Here it is, facsimile one. So, the bird that we saw in the upper right hand is the bird that's flying up above the head of Osiris on the bed. 
And the falcon-headed pot, which we saw in the upper right hand of the Katu Min story, is the canopic jar that's on the far lower right, under the head of Osiris under the bed. So again, Smith is copying together with one papyrus, bits and pieces of other things, including facsimile one and papyrus number two on papyrus number four. So he is mingling all these things together to creating the story, and it's done in the booklet that's in Smith's own handwriting, signed by him, where he puts the signs that you can find on the sheet I just showed you, which was all hieroglyphs, then he extracts a couple of them, and he makes his first paragraph of Katumin. Then he gets bored for whatever reason, and he quits. My suspicion is that this Katumin story would have developed into being the story of Joseph that he claimed that he saw when he first bought the papyri, that he recognized that there was a story of Abraham and one of Joseph, and the Abraham one he finished, and the Joseph never never was completed. And it was I the scroll Katumin. of Abraham and the scroll of Joseph, right? I suspect that this this Katumin thing would, was what would have become Joseph had he completed it. But here you can see the beginning of his work on the Joseph of Gospel, and it uses exactly the technique that you find, as we shall see in a moment, with the Book of Abraham. I hope I've made that clear. You have. Can I just say a couple things here? First off, yes, that connection with the book of Joseph was made clear by Oliver Cowdery, who actually described in words the image of the woman standing in front of the serpent with two legs. And also there's another figure on there, but I won't go into that. But Oliver Cowdery was struck by this, said this is on the role that is the book of Joseph, which he would have learned from Joseph Smith, of course, and that this is a representation of Eve standing in front of the serpent in the Garden of Eden before he had been cursed by God to crawl on his belly. So, of course, he actually had legs prior to the curse. So that's one thing. And John, John, if you could put up on the screens uh, that... uh, Okay, the image that has the first image on the book of Katumin with that translation that you, we looked at a couple before this. So I'll pull it back up, and then you tell me whether to go forward or it's, back. Is that okay? I'll try. Okay, so here's the first Katumin image uh, that I have. Uh, next one. There you go. Because this is so interesting that this is the first thing that appears in this booklet or whatever it is, these papers that Joseph Smith has, this valuable discovery. And he takes those two Egyptian characters you see up in the upper left-hand corner, and this is what Dr. Rittner's already described. But I want to focus on the text that he comes up with because he talks about a princess named Katumin, who is the daughter of Oneitos, who's the Pharaoh king of Egypt, right? It doesn't say much about her. In the second paragraph, it just says when she was born and she died when she was 28 years old. Well, it appears that there's a distinct connection between this mysterious character, Katumin, and the book of Abraham, as we have it. Because if you look in Abraham chapter 1, verse 
10, uh, excuse me, verse 11. You remember the three virgins that Abraham talks about being sacrificed before him because of their purity and their righteousness? Well, here's what it says. Now, this priest had offered upon this altar three virgins at one time who were the daughters of Onitah, O-N-I-T-A-H, one of the royal descent directly from the loins of Ham. So it appears if you put the connection there that this Katumin is a princess, a daughter of Onitos, Pharaoh king of Egypt, right? It looks like what Joseph Smith is doing is either making a backstory or a, an aside about one of these three virgins and giving us her name. One of these three virgins' name is Katumin. She's a princess, which means she's of royal blood, and she's a daughter of Onitos in the Abraham Egyptian papers, and it's Onitah, O-N-I-T-A-H, as it comes to be published in the book of Abraham. So there's this fascinating, to me, connection between this piece, this couple of paragraphs, and a character who does appear, although very much in the backstory, in the book of Abraham itself. I think they're the same characters, and he was certainly working on these things at the same time. Yes, I agree. And then you've got those two those two uh, characters that Joseph Smith is translating two paragraphs from, which you talked about. And then you're going to follow this up with how it is that Joseph Smith appears to do the same thing with paragraphs that end up be becoming the text of the book of Abraham, at least in the early chapter. Right. Can we go to the next slide? Absolutely. So the next slide, meaning this slide? This slide. So what we've got here, just as a, a, a reminder, this is an overview of all the papyri that Smith owned. So the top line is a reconstruction of the breathing permit of Hor. That's papyrus number one. The second one is the Book of the Dead of Tasheret Men. That's the one in which the tomb owner actually does confront the snake with two legs, which is one of the chapters of the Book of the Dead. The, the other example is we have a, a Book of the Dead of Amenhotep, and that is only preserved in those valuable discovery sections, and they're all the sheets. There are a total of four sheets, and you can see them there. Uh, four sheets with the, with the text copy alone. Um, and then we have the Hupocephalus of Sheshonk, and then our last papyrus is the Book of the Dead of Neferir Nebu. So that's everything. And the problem is that those are all distinct documents, or, and Smith is jumbling his copies, assuming that the Sheshonk one can be stuck in with number one to make the, the, uh, the, the Book of Abraham. And also pieces of number two can be used to insert in the now lost book of Abraham to make a second scroll. So he has jumbled all the pieces together of things that were originally quite distinct. So now let's look and see how he actually worked with the book of the dead, uh, the, the book, the breathing permit of four. And for me, this is one of the most important things anyone can ever see related to Book of Abraham veracity. Well, this is the thing that, that struck me as I was looking again through these 
microfilms after the, the church statement. And that was, if you lined up these scribal copies, this is on the far right of the screen, and you put them in comparison with the actual papyrus, what you saw is that on the upper left-hand corner, Smith's scribes would copy a small section of Egyptian. You could put that next to the papyrus, and there that section of Egyptian would actually be. But what Smith's scribes had done is they had copied that bit of Egyptian, and then they had spilled out a full paragraph. In other words, they had used the same format on these sheets that I hadn't looked at previously, as they had on the ones that were in the valuable discovery, which was a subset of those pictures. So this manuscript is a, is a different one, different group of, pic, of, of papers that are within this same large corpus. I hope I've made that clear. So the valuable discovery is its own small subset about the Joseph papyrus, really. Whereas these manuscript pages are bigger, they're part of the same collection. They were always in the church. I hadn't looked at them until after the church statement. But using my own working mechanism for how I understood the Joseph story to have worked, I could now look at these with new eyes and understand exactly how they worked. And I could recognize the hieroglyphs in, or, or hieratic here, and I could line them up one for one with words or parts of words that were in the corresponding statements. And so I got half of his manuscript only corresponds to two lines of Egyptian text. And you can see it all here. So in the far right, the scribe has attempted to copy what is a rectangle that's got two, some hatching inside with a straight line underneath it and a little tick below that. The copy done by the Smith scribe is really bad. It's in the ballpark, but you can see in the middle, adjacent to it, what the sign really would look like. And then to the left of that, you can see where that sign is in the papyrus. It's in the surviving part of line one of the horizontal text. Dr. Dr. Rittner, John, just to complete this loop, is it possible to see what the text is on the manuscript page next to that first character? I'm just... So to blow up, it's kind of to, to blow up the, the text from the handwriting? Is that what you're saying, RFM? Right, and all I mean is that from my view, our pictures, our head boxes are in front of that. Because that's actually the text from the Book of Abraham. Is that right, Dr. Rittner? It is. So let me, let me uh, blow there, it up. There are, there are multiple copies in these papers. Some I've seen, some, some, some I've not looked at. Uh, we'll get to the ones I actually worked with in just, in just a moment. So, but it's important to note that the scribes, when they were copying the Egyptians, didn't know what they were doing. And that's one of the reasons why I didn't make this connection immediately. Because if you notice, this, what the set of squiggles copied by the scribe 
don't really look much like the actual Egyptian. They're off. The fact that I can recognize them all is, I guess, a, a testimony to my reading hieratic. <laughs> no, the first but one's we pretty have them in, We have them in multiple copies, which is why I was able to see the same sign over and over again. And some of the scribes, as I pointed out, are better at what they're doing than others. Right. That first character is kind of sketchy to me, but the, the second, third, and fourth. Second, even, the, the lower ones are clearer. Yeah, even I can tell those are supposed to be the same. Was this what you wanted to see? Arthur? That's perfect. Yes. yes. So we've got the we've got their attempt at re, re you know it, it should be a, it should be a rectangular box over a stroke with an angle, and here it's it's op- the box has been opened up and you see there are signs that look like I don't know fingers or something with a line coming down below, and then you compare it with the actual hieroglyph that's on the surviving papyrus and you can see it's different, but it's close enough. Sort of, uh, for those who want to follow kind of this, right? This is right. And for those who want to know, that's the word lake. So we've got the word lake, right? That's the spelling of it. It's the word shah, which is word lake, but Egyptians don't, write simple spelling out of words. So instead, there's an extra sign. So contrary to Hebrew and contrary to Joseph Smith, Egyptian actually is more cumbersome to write than Hebrew. The next sign is a stroke of three horizontal lines, and those are the determinatives of water to let you know you're dealing with with something that has to do with a body of water. So that's actually part of the same word as the shot line above. But you'll notice on the Abraham manuscript, he's divi- the scribe has divided one Egyptian word into two. So the phonetic part gives us paragraph number one, and the determinative, which is part of the same word, is paragraph number two and and rfm if you want to if you want to read to us um what he makes of the word lake what would you do you want to read that can you read it well i think it's important to note that these occur in the margins immediately next to the beginning of a new paragraph each time they are very carefully placed in that location relative to the English translation, apparently the translation I've got to say. And what it looks like we have here opposite Lake in Egyptian is the text of Abraham chapter one and verse 12. And it was done after the manner of the Egyptians and it came to pass the, the priest, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's directly Lay violence there. upon me that they might slay me also as they did those virgins upon this altar and that you might have a knowledge of this altar. I will refer you to the representation at the uh, commencement of the of this what record record and all very of good. that that whole sentence just to kind of drive this home 
that whole sentence that we just read was Joseph Smith's attempt to translate the word lake. Exactly. And he only got part of it because he has part of the word lake. (laughs) The rest of the word for lake, he gives another whole paragraph to. And of course, that's a critically important passage in the translation Mm -hmm. because it refers to facsimile one, which we know is the book of horror. Right, and which the character that he's ostensibly translating is right next to in the papyrus. It's part of the adjoining text that goes with that picture. Right. So should I show that? Should I show a close-up of that really quick? Will that be helpful? Yeah, what, what these four characters on this page are basically going to do is interpret or have the text of the book of Abraham, chapter 1, verses 12, 13, 14, and probably 15 right next to them. So here, um, here RFM is the second paragraph, which is the second half. Tell me if I'm wrong, Dr. Rittner, the second half of the word lake, right? That's it. That's the determinative. And Joseph's, tra- Joseph's translation, I have to always say quotes, Joseph's translation of the second half of the word lake, he translated translates it into it was made after the form of a what rfm bedstead bedstead such as was had among the chaldeans and it stood before the gods of who elkanah lived on mamakra korash it's a lot easier for me because i'm just reading the text out of the book of abraham in my scriptures yeah it's easy for me because this is this is verses 13 and 14 together in this one paragraph in the actual published version of the book of Abraham. Keep going. Right. And the reason it's significant is because it says, it stood before the gods of Elkanah, Libna, Mamakra, Korash, and also a god like unto that of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And then it says in verse 14, that you may have an understanding of these gods. I have given you the fashion of them in the figures at the beginning. Which manner of figures is called by the Chaldeans, Ralinos, which signifies hieroglyphics. So in other words, here at the very beginning of the text of the book of Abraham, it's referring you back to the four canopic figures, in fact, simile one, which are identified as those same gods as the text identifies them as. And it says, I'm going to refer you to the figures of them at the beginning of this record. So goodbye to the theory and the apologetic that the facsimile that is facsimile one was someplace far and distant away from the text of Abraham chapter one, because they've got to say that, right? Because obviously we don't have the book of Abraham right next to the recovered papyri that contains the vignette of facsimile one. It's just not there. So therefore the apologetic is put forward. Well, we have occasions when illustrations in the papyri don't occur immediately adjacent to what it is they're describing. And in some cases they're really far away. So that's what they want to have to preserve their argument for the book of Abraham. But the book of Abraham itself confutes that argument because here the text of the book of Abraham says, here's figure one, it's right at the beginning of this record and I'm going to refer you to it. So it's not someplace distant from figure one. The text of Abraham, the book of Abraham, is represented by the book of Abraham as being right next to facsimile one of the book of Abraham. I want to point out also 
that here we have something that's very clearly an example of the working out of the translation. Because if we go back to the handwriting, you put that back up on the screen. This is in the writing of the scribes who are working under Smith's direction, under his dictation. This is a live witness to how it was actually being done. Uh, we can continue on down the line and look at other words, uh, the word great. So it's the Great Lake. That's the third grouping, uh, which spells out its own paragraph. And then, it, then the next group is, for the, is Hansu, uh, the god of the moon. Uh, that's the last paragraph. So all this is part of one sentence that says in my translation, uh, what have we actually got here? The, we have a broken part that's missing, and it says, Osiris shall be towed, and then we've got, starting off of what's preserved, into the Great Lake of Khonsu. And into the Great Lake of Khonsu, or just the Great Lake of Khonsu, has produced all of those paragraphs. Has, pro has produced how many verses in the Book of Abraham? Five. <laughs> so into the... I want to point out something else, is that we, this is not just one man's handwriting, because we have these over and over again in this collection. I don't know what the status of is of the publication of these documents, whether the church has produced all of them. But I think if you go to the next slide, you're going to find there are duplicate hand copies of the same thing. So it isn't just one scribe's reproducing of it, but the next one and the next one and the next one. So here we have even more. This is by a different hand than the one we had before. It says page so Q see, of this, the Book of Abraham is, manuscript. So this manuscript at the top is of the three water signs. So you can tell this is by a different scribe, which is producing the same paragraph. So it's not a question that we've got only one copies of this. We have many, many, many copies done over and over again by these scribes that all pair up the same Egyptian next to the same English paragraph. And that's what I began to see is that, oh my God, they're doing this over and over again. That's why we have a consistent example of this as a definition of that. So there is no question that that's what this is, that we have now, by multiple writings, by multiple writers, all of whom are taking dictation from Smith. So we can see a live witness to the actual process, which was denied by the church, but was held by them in their own collection, whether they realized it or not. And so that is the most important thing that I pointed out in that article that I did on my website, is that we can actually recover the witness to the process, and that it's understandable because for reasons we've now talked about, that's how Egyptian was understood at the time. Uh, in the stage, in the ages before the decipherment of hieroglyphs by Champollion. People thought so, that one character of Egyptian could be represent an and, and that's clearly that's clearly what Smith had done. What we we've seen examples of him doing it himself with the Katumin story, and his scribes are following his dictation, doing it in multiple hand copies. 
that are that in these other documents that make up the Abraham alphabet or whatever you want to call it all. This this group of of papers. I have no idea how many papers are in there. And I also don't know what, the, as I said, I don't know what the stages of the publication. I know that Brian Hoglid was involved with issuing those in book form. Uh, I don't know if they've ever appeared in print. By the way, Dr. Rittner, that very first page with the scribe that we talked about having five verses of the book of Abraham chapter one in it, translated yes. from those four characters. Did you notice who the scribe, whose handwriting it is? I, I don't remember off the top of my head. I'm sorry. Michael Marquardt probably does know. It's okay. It was on the, it was it's on the screen. It's Warren Parrish. It's actually labeled as being Parrish. Yes. And of course, Warren Parrish is extremely important in this discussion because he is, I think, the only one of the scribes in this process who talks about what happened. And this is in 1830. What is it? It's from a couple years later. Warren Parrish had left the church by this point, but he's relating what happened when he's actually writing these words that we can see on this paper as they're being dictated by Joseph Smith. Here's what he says, quote, this is Warren Parrish. I have set by his side, that's Joseph Smith's side, I have set by his side and pinned down the translation of the Egyptian hieroglyphics as he claimed to receive it by direct inspiration of heaven, period, end of quote. Well, that's, again, a direct witness to the process, and here is the written equivalent of that. This is, this is what Parrish said he was writing. Yeah, it's just so fascinating to me that here we have one of the few witnesses and maybe the only scribes who talks about what happened and doing it, and here we have the piece of paper that he must be talking about. Exactly. You can, you can line them all up. Uh, this is a smoking gun, as I've, I've said. This, the, I, I don't know how you can fail to recognize that that's what's going on here. Well, well here's how here's, you can. Here's another, here's another copy, by the way. You can see here's yet, yet one more. Okay, let me pull uh, the screen up. Go ahead. So here on two sheets, two sheets of papyrus, uh, so here we can see this X form, uh, you can see in the lower left-hand corner, that's the word where, great. But if you look directly above it, up at the top on the upper left, there you can three, the, see the three horizontal signs that are part of the writing of determinative for water. So here, and again, I don't know which, I don't remember which scribe did page Q, which has been labeled that way to keep them separate. But this one begins with the end of the word lake, then it has great, then you have Khansu at the bottom, which has produced its own paragraph, and the scribe has copied it twice, once at the bottom on the left, and again at the upper right. And you can see this is a different hand copy than the one we've seen before. So there is no way you can disassociate these hieratic pieces from the corresponding English because they keep turning up in multiple hand copies in different formats over and over and over again. They must have been spending vast amounts of time recopying and recopying the same thing. Why they kept doing it over and over, I don't know. But it's enough to establish beyond the shadow of a doubt that these Egyptian pieces are the corresponding signs 
to the long Egypt to the long English text. And again, every single one of these that's on the left-hand side of the Smith copies uh, correspond to something that can be found in the, just the first two lines of the Egyptian text. There they all are, highlighted in red. And then here's here's a slide basically taking the characters from the papyrus, mapping them to the the handwritten uh trans you know translation transcription symbols with the corresponding paragraphs next to the symbols and you'll notice this is yet another hand manuscript on the left hand side of the english and again those characters actually say it says the great lake of kansu yeah right And it says on the slide, the selected Egyptian text from column two, line one, begins with the end to the determinant of the word for lake and reads the Great Lake of Kansu. Um, and he's getting three paragraphs of Book of Abraham text from that. And you'll notice uh, it's a quotation from me. This is, this is taken directly from my publication. So the reference to me there in that line above the picture is, is me talking about myself, because this is a direct quotation of me. Right. You are the selected. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, but again, the English translation for these hieratic lines is also directly quoted as being the words I say it is by Michael D. Rhodes, by Nibley, by John Gee. So we're all in agreement that the how to read the Egyptian that is on the right-hand side. The only one who is not in agreement with how to read the Egyptian on the right-hand side is Joseph Smith, and we have his reading on the left-hand side. So when I did my book, if I had made this understanding previously, I would have added it in for each of those sections when I did Book of the Dead, or the, the, the Book of Breathings, because that's how... Smith was actually translating. So that's the new revelation that I had in the, the online publication, is that you could actually match up these manuscript pages with the surviving papyrus, and it explained everything. And here's one more photograph of page N from the Book of Abraham Manuscript. And it's basically just we're beating a dead horse at this point. You more, can't tell more, us what they see. More parts of... More parts of the, uh, I think that's the end of Horace's wife's name. I'd have to go back and look at it more carefully. But again, it is from the beginning part of that text. And it's just more examples of the character in the left-hand column that's an Egyptian character followed to the right by large paragraphs of the Book of Abraham. Correct. And here's the handwritten version, and then here's the typed written version, and it tells you Again, what do these some of these words mean? I, I think you probably mentioned that. Um, yeah, well, there slide. you there. Born of. So he'll take the word born of and RFM. What do we get from the word born of in the book of Abraham? Well, I can't tell from this, but we get several more verses. And I think this is an important slide because it shows that not only are those four glyphs from immediately above and to the left repeated a number of times with interpretations that are the book of Abraham, but it continues 
into this box with the red, the line immediately below it. It does appear that Joseph Smith, from his learning in Hebrew, understood Egyptian to be read from right to left. And that's why when they appear from top to bottom in the margins, these characters, when you see them on the papyrus scrolls themselves, they are actually being copied from right to left. Well, I will give Joseph Smith a hit there. He is reading it in the correct direction. Okay, can you give him another one? I don't know. I just got to bring this up, and I apologize because I did happen to notice that there is an actual scroll that Joseph Smith had in his possession of a woman whose real Egyptian name was Ter uh, Tasheret Men. Did I get that correct? That's, that's the Book of the Dead Papyrus number two. That's the long, complicated one. Right, and the men, the M-I-N at the end of her name is a theophoric suffix for the god men. Is that correct? The creator god? Yes, yes. It mean, the name means the daughter of men. Okay, so I can't get around the fact, or at least the impression I have, that Joseph Smith comes up with a made-up Egyptian name for a woman, which he gives as Katu Men, M-I-N, which appears to have the same actual Egyptian theophoric suffix as a real Egyptian woman's name. What do you think about that, Dr. Rittner? Well, the last syllable is okay. Uh, unfortunately, he's appended it to the wrong papyrus. He put it on the papyrus of Amenhotep. But still. <laughs> <laughs> he, he took, he, so he's used the word men somewhere in his discussion of the papyrus, but on the wrong one. Okay, I'm getting John Gee on the phone over this one. I think we got something. But by the way... See, that kind of argument that, okay, he's got men that's in there somewhere, but you'll notice it's not in the Book of Abraham text. No, it's not. But I think there's an interesting connection, which maybe never got developed by Joseph Smith, or I have no idea. It just seems an obvious connection, but I can't tell why it's there or what it's doing. Um, and I'm talking about that paragraph describing Katu Men, and obviously it being one of these three virgins. Um, okay, leaving that to the side, I'll try and be a little more serious here. If that's not serious, I do have to present to you and allow you to respond to the apologetic argument related to the Joseph Smith papers that you've just gone over, because it appears to be very damaging to the idea of Joseph Smith's ability to actually translate Egyptian where it looks like he's taking these partial words and translating them into full paragraphs of text that end up in the book of Abraham. And therefore, it has been popular for apologists, John Gee, primarily among them, and I think it, he was preceded in this by Hugh Nibley, to have to come up with some other explanation for these papers. And the explanation that I've heard is that Joseph Smith is not involved in this in any way, Joseph Smith has already produced the translation of the book of Abraham by revelation. Some way he's done this. And now that he's gone, now that the translation is complete, now that the um, papyri is still hanging around, his scribes get together on a rainy Sunday afternoon or something, and they decide that separate and apart from Joseph Smith, they want to engage in a project whereby they are going to reverse engineer the text that Joseph Smith has already received by revelation, i.e. this part of the book of Abraham, and try and connect it to certain Egyptian glyphs in the papyrus. And that that is really what is going on 
in these Kirtland Egyptian papers or Abraham Egyptian papers, not Joseph Smith translating from the glyphs into the book of Abraham, but scribes separate and apart from Joseph Smith trying to reverse engineering the translation back into the glyphs themselves. I'm sure you've heard that argument before. Actually, I hadn't heard that argument before. But, well, what do you, well, what do you think? Uh, it's, uh, it's ridiculous, particularly since you have the surviving descriptions of the scribes themselves, such as Mr. Phillips, who says that he took dictation as Smith was telling him what they said. And we have writing that has been matched to be in his own hand. And we have the copy of the hieroglyphs. So it's clear we have a recording. We have a stenographer's report from a recording session where Phillips was acting as a stenographer, taking dictation from Smith, along with various other scribes. We have these things in other hand copies. There is no reason for the scribes who do all professed ignorance of Egyptian and all recognize that Smith alone among them could quote unquote understand Egyptian, could read it. They didn't attempt this. They never attempted it. All they did and all they said repeatedly is they deferred to his understanding of this. Uh, the only people they thought could read Egyptian who were around them in their ignorance was Michael Chandler, who gave them the ideas in the first place, and Smith. So there is no way, none, zero, absolutely excluded, that this is random musings on the part of the scribes who would have no goal in making multiple copies of this with the Egyptian corresponding. That had to be coming from Smith, as they themselves witnessed in their own autobiographies, or Phillips at least. That right. This is how it worked. And I think and you mean Warren Parrish there. You're saying Parrish, Phillips? Parrish. I'm saying Phillips. I'm sorry. Right. And I've got to tell you that from my own point of view, um, I think that Katu Min, as an argument in favor of the Book of Mormon, as weak as it may be, is miles ahead of this argument about the reverse engineering theory. Because it seems to be a theory that's based not on any evidence, but actually in contradiction of the evidence. And it's obvious, to me at least, to be created out of whole cloth as, a, as an explanation for why it is that these Abraham Egyptian papers do not represent what they seem to pretty clearly represent. Well, it's, it's again an example of where the facts, which are stubborn things, are in the way of the interpretations the Mormons would like. Essentially, yeah. over the years, all of the facts that have come out have shown that the Book of Abraham is a forgery. One can call it a pious forgery, if you like. But nothing has ever come out in support of it. And so the, the desperate and really rather pathetic attempts to expand the link of the stroll, to try to explain how it wasn't there, that the word translate doesn't mean what we know it means, that even the internal references can't be internal references when it says right next to the beginning, oh, they didn't really mean that, because maybe they could have put the illustration somewhere far, far away. Uh, you know, anything possible to discredit it uh, and no, no supporting background. Uh, and as I mentioned at the beginning of last time, uh, we have modern traditions about Abraham's sacrifice that are, were being celebrated recently by Islamic nations. And I misspoke. Uh, the Islamic tradition changes the sacrifice of Isaac into the sacrifice of Ishmael. One of your uh, 
viewers pointed that out to me, and, and I stand corrected on that. But the Jewish and the Christian tradition have it as Isaac, which is why I said what I said. But what the point there, and the reason I'm bringing it up, is you have multiple traditions about Abraham that are alive now. A Jewish tradition, a Christian tradition, an Islamic tradition, as Islamic tradition is one of the most important in all of Islam. So if there were a tradition in late antiquity about Abraham himself being sacrificed, it would survive in some manner. And attempts by Milstein to say that, well, there are some medieval Jewish speculators who linked Egyptian gods to the patriarchs, this is just nonsense. Uh, that doesn't survive as an ongoing living tradition in which Abraham was sacrificed in El Kenna or attempt was made. None of that is justification. No reasonable person can believe these piddly little attempts. They are really, really sad. So here we have over multiple hot copies by attested witnesses who describe their own activities as the stenographer of Smith. Uh, and there it is in signature, there, there next, next to his piece of paper, uh, with the Egyptian next to the translation, I don't know how you can reasonably argue against it. I mean, if you wish to be willfully blind, as I have said before, obviously no amount of reason can make you change your mind. But if you ever open a dictionary and find an English word in the upper left-hand corner and its definition on the right-hand side, and you decide those two don't necessarily come together, then you can accept the reasoning that you just explained to me. Because we in our society, even back in the 1800s, knew to put the, left, the word on the left-hand side and the corresponding English on the right. Any translation of any 1800s dictionary would have done that. And that would have been known to Mr. Parrish and all the other copyists as well. And so if you're going to lay out a dictionary, you would follow that format and you would put your word you were translating in the upper left and the English would be on the right, just as we do in our Webster's and every other dictionary to this day. To this day. Anyone knows how to work with a dictionary. I have six-year-old relatives who could figure out that, that that's how that would work. And Mr. Parrish could have done the same. There is no possibility under heaven that Mr. Parrish thought he was doing something else. And if, in fact, since English works the way it does, if it were a whole paragraph corresponds to Egyptian, if he were starting off with the English and then trying to make it fit with the Egyptian, he would put the English first and the Egyptian second. That's not how he did it. He did it the way we make a normal dictionary, which is why I and anyone else with a reasonable brain would understand it as the Egyptian word corresponds to the following paragraph, and it was done at the dictation of, of Smith as Mr. Parrish himself witnesses. And here... In, in the discussion of by your own hand upon paper, 
here we have Mr. Parrish's own hand there specifically writing out the Egyptian, writing out the corresponding English translation. I don't know how anyone reasonably can deny this. It seems an open and shut case. It's done. I mean, I will not return to it again in another published form because any article that's made against it is just not worth the time and trouble. If Guy can't accept that, then he can't accept anything. In his recent on-screen interview, when he's asked at one of these uh, sessions, is he going to respond to the article that I wrote? He said, no, he thought it was in poor taste and who cares? Well, it's not in poor taste when I've given the reasons why I did it. There are good academic reasons for explaining why this was done. But it follows a pattern that, tr that people had used before the understanding of how hieroglyphs works. So I will give Smith credit for understanding that that's how people thought it could be done. He got nothing right, not a single word. But his understanding was what it was in agreement with the Renaissance, not with the 1800s. Uh, consequently, he was outdated in his approach. He was not inspired. He did not produce an accurate translation in any way, shape, or form. There's no way to justify that. And as for the question, who cares? Well, I know a lot of people care. I know that from all the letters I have now received by email from people reaching out about how they, uh, the Book of Abram has had such a, an unbelievably large impact on their lives, both for good or ill, and it certainly impacted them. So it certainly should care, and it must care to Mr. Gee, because he wouldn't have devoted 100% of his career to producing works on this subject. He has never written on it. Well, he has written, actually, a few other minor articles, but those are simply done in order to give himself a patina of scholarship so that he could then do his primary work, which was to enunciate his beliefs about the Book of Abraham. It has now become clear to me over the years that John Yee did not come to me to Yale to get an education, which I provided him, but which he rarely uses. He came to me to get an imprimatur so that he could put on his curriculum vitae, his, on his statement of his, his life's work, that he had a PhD from Yale University. So he came for the piece of paper, he didn't come for the information. Because he's using the information not at all. He's using the piece of paper to justify why he did what he did. And it must be very disappointing to him to have his own professor who taught him all of the ways in which one actually reads hieroglyphs and hieratic to find out that someone like me basically disagrees with his apologetic writings because they fit none of those standards. But I wish to separate myself, as I have before, from his apologetic writings. I know that he could do scholarly work. I know it because I've graded it. Um, and unfortunately, when it comes to the Book of Abraham, he clearly has a different viewpoint. And so he cares very deeply, regardless of what he says. And I know there's another factor on which he cares, because that is his sole source of employment. He is paid, unlike myself, he is paid for the purpose of propping up the Book of Abraham. So the church is sending him to vast numbers of conferences where I have to pay my own way. So I go to a conference, and there's John Gee yet again 
talking about something else about the Book of Mormon yet again. The con these conferences that he has used to inflate his uh, standing as his curriculum vita are in many cases the result of an open casting call being given out to the scholarly community. We are hosting an, a conference on topic so-and-so. Anyone who wants to come is welcome. You're hearing my dog barking in the back because mail delivery is coming. He's supporting so, you in your feelings about John Gee. Your dog feels passionately as well. So these, 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 these casting calls basically are anyone who wants to come and pay their own way, you're welcome to come and give a talk, and we will publish it afterwards. So there's not necessarily much in the way of quality control here. In order for them to put on the conference, which are usually state-supported, they have to have a certain number of warm bodies. So a large number of people will turn up. John Gee has gone to a remarkably large number of them because the Maxwell Institute can pay his way. I only get a limited amount of, of, of travel and I have shepherded it in a way that I can keep using it over the years and not run out of funds. So I'm not even attending all of these conferences. But just because he's attended the conferences doesn't mean that he's, his performance is particularly good. And it also means it was well received. And it also means that the remarks that he has made, even in some of his on-screen performances, the, re the recordings of his uh, discussions of his books where he was at conferences, he says in one that he was at a conference in Warsaw. And there he presented to the audience facsimile one. And he told them it was an ancient document. And that this he then linked in his, art, his discussion before this Polish argument, this Polish audience. He explained how this correlated with execration texts. And these were surviving ancient Egyptian practices. And his only remark to his audience of the, uh, the faithful was that he wouldn't go into detail. But the response from the Egyptologists in the audience was, oh, that's amazing. Do they do this for animals too? Now let's move on to my next book. So what he's basically told us in that brief little clip that I, I watched recently because I was asked if I would please do that for these interviews, is that he, A, assuming he's telling the truth and not lying to us and to the audience, he presented to his Polish audience, facsimile one, that's the way he described it, as an ancient document. Now that means he lied. Because we know that facsimile one is a reworked cut, either a woodcut or a lead cut, whatever the original production was, to make a modification of an ancient document. So facsimile one is not ancient. It is not. The surviving papyrus is ancient. So if he presented facsimile one to his Polish audience as ancient, he has committed egregious scholarly malpractice that should get him fired. That is inexcusable. He then talks to an audience who are Polish, who don't know anything about these Mormon engravings. They've never seen facsimile one, according to his comments, what Guy then says the reaction is. He implies they are all Egyptologists, which is not necessarily true, because these, these conferences are open to the public, usually. 
So there will be many people in the audience who've never heard any of this, who can come in simply for information and or, or entertainment. He says they responded with a silly question about, oh, do they slaughter animals? That's not the comment that a professional Egyptologist would make. So it is highly unlikely that his Polish questioner was a professional Egyptologist, despite what, what John Gee had to say. So he's, he's misrepresented them to his American audience at one of these fair Mormon meetings in, in an August meeting. So he's, he's misrepresented the papyrus. He's misrepresented the facsimile. He's misrepresented the Egyptologists in the audience. And that's what he tells his Mormon faithful audience, that here I have hoodwinked the Egyptologists because I was able to show that this was a legitimate ancient Egyptian document and I got away with it, ha, ha, ha. That's my scholarship. That's a quick synopsis of John Gee's own performance in front of a group of questioning Mormons on a session devoted to the Book of Abraham. And this was his presentation entitled Book of Abraham, I Presume. He began that talk by remarking, I believe it was in that one, that he was, quote unquote, comic relief for this session. Well, from a point of view of scholarship, he was comic relief, but comic in a very bad taste. So if there's a question of poor taste, it's there. It's John Gee's performance. That was simply inexcusable, bad representation of scholarship. And in that, he doesn't actually explain how or how, in so what way, these, the image that he showed, doctored or not, is related to execration magic. I wrote the book on execration magic quite literally. That is my dissertation that he has referred to. He studied execration magic with me at Yale. He knows what execration magic is. He didn't bother to explain any of that to his Mormon audience. I can only hope he tried to explain it better to his Polish audience. They under, undoubtedly didn't understand it if they made questions like they, he reports that they did. Clearly, his Mormon audience couldn't possibly have understood it because John wouldn't do them the favor or the dignity of even explaining what he was talking about. I don't know. Does everyone know what the term execration magic is? That's a very complicated term. We talked about it a bit last time when I talked about human sacrifice. So if you've asked me about John Gee's performances and vis-a-vis -vis this particular paper, there's his response it was in poor taste, and he doesn't care. Uh, actually, it was in good taste. Mine was in good scholarly form. I pointed out what I was talking about. I explained it carefully to the reader, and I let them draw their own conclusions, which people will do. Dr. Rittner, thank you for that. I have to ask you this question because, as I think you know, there has been a story that has circulated widely within the relevant community of Mormon studies and scholarship having to do with John Gee when he was your student at Yale University. And the story that circulates, although there are some variations to it, has to do with John Gee's dissertation, that he was in the process of writing his dissertation, that you were, of course, on his dissertation committee, and that there erupted some kind of controversy 
between you and John Gee over the subject matter of his dissertation to the point where you were actually removed from his dissertation committee. Have you heard that rumor? I have heard that rumor. In fact, I've seen clips uh, online of that. I was, was notified about this some years ago. I even went to our legal department at the University of Chicago, and I strongly considered an active lawsuit for slander. Uh, a man by the name of Peterson, whom I've never met, who was not at Yale, nor was he in any way involved in any of this, is making statements to this effect. This is Daniel uh, C. Peterson, I'm assuming, RFM? Yes, that would be Daniel C. Peterson, I presume. <laughs> um, if you, we, we were holding this, this slide in advance, but we can pull it up now, because I'm ready to answer that question right now. Okay. And, and by the way, before we jump to that, I just want to ask you to confirm something, Dr. Rittner, which is I was informed that, that John Gee was at Berkeley before he was at Yale. And I actually w corresponded with someone who was a colleague of Gee's at Berkeley. And what I was told by this person is that Gee was sort of washed out of Berkeley with just a master's because they did not feel like his scholarship uh, was worthy of on, you know, continuing status towards a PhD. So I don't want Yale to feel bad that it was like John Gee's second attempt at a PhD. But have you, have you ever heard anything to confirm this idea that he was sort of pushed out of Berkeley before he went to Yale. I don't, I don't know anything about that, honestly. I do know that he was a transfer student from Berkeley to, to Yale. We okay. accepted him. Well, I'll just say uh, that someone that was, who that was, was a, That was a group decision. Um, I, 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 I don't know more than that. Okay. Uh, I'll just say someone has corresponded with me who was with him at Berkeley who said he was washed out of that program intentionally with the masters. So having said that, now, now that we've recorded so many hours, I don't even remember all of the, the, the pertinence, what I've, what I've talked about. I do know that when I first arrived at Yale, not long after I was there, I received an anonymous letter from a correspondent, or at least I can't recall who the sender was, which included the so-called characters of Joseph Smith from the golden plates. And I was asked if any of these things could be Egyptian. Uh, I responded back to the to the effect that some of them looked vaguely Egyptian because, as I I think I pointed out in this commentary before, I could look at a, at cloud patterns and imagine some Egyptian in those as well. So that none of that is Egyptian, but I could imagine some of it sort of looks like Egyptian. Well, apparently that remark was sufficient to make it seem that I was sympathetic. So instead of being anti-Mormon. I think someone was test, was testing the waters to see if I would be pro-Mormon. And so when John was sent to me, uh, there, there was not, as I recall, any particular big deal made about what his religious background was. And we took him just as we would any student, because at that time we already had a female Mormon student who was making A's. Uh, I don't know what she has done subsequently. She's She's now, I believe, married, and I don't know what's happened to her in her career subsequently. But having Mormon students was not an issue. So we accepted John from, from his master's program into our graduate program. 
With regard to the graduate program, he then took all the years of classwork in which I gave him A's with no problem. And I had been getting information that he was doing things on the side, but they never came up in class, so that wasn't a problem. His dissertation topic was on we, the requirements Dr. of Rittner, security. Dr. Rittner, when you say doing things on the side, I mean, are you talking about selling drugs or what? Oh, I'm sorry. That's uh, he okay. Was writing, he was writing articles for Mormon publications that were defending the book Abraham in ways I did not know about. That would be farms at the time, right? Our that family. would be. Yes, I, I, dis I disassociated myself from those when I first found out about them in the dialogue article. And it is only then, when I wrote the dialogue article, and I pointed out that I was because I just because I had cited Nibley when I was doing an early article and I needed to cite a passage, and because Guy was my student, those two things didn't, did not in and of themselves mean that I was endorsing Guy's approach in these farms-related articles. That in the 2002 publication, I had just found out about Guy's work on these things. And Guy, in these articles, was using my name to justify his odd interpretations. And he was using my citation of Nibley to justify Nibley's scholarship when I was basically just citing it for the photographs, which were all that was available at Iris at the time. So my note in the dialogue article, and I just said the same thing in the, the Journal of Near Eastern Studies article the following year for Egyptologists, was that in his, and I would have to pull up the article to be precise, but I said in John Gee's apologetic writings, he is not following the practice that was customary at Yale and that I had not seen or authorized these or endorsed them when he wrote them. That's all. I did not say that John was a bad scholar. I did not say that John was incapable of scholarship. I did not say anything particularly negative at that time. And that was after I had already withdrawn from the dissertation because the dissertation had already been published by them. Can you tell us about the circumstances surrounding your withdrawing from the dissertation? Absolutely. Let me do that now. And this is the re and I'm waiting for John to pull up the next slide. Okay, I've got it ready. I was just letting you guys... Uh, so what, what, you, what I can't show you at this point is the letter that I wrote at that time. When I, when I left Yale in 1996 to take up residence at Chicago, uh, having to move all of my equipment, etc., I had a whole new set of duties, new set of students that I had to deal with. I had, at that time, a chapter from John Gee, his first chapter of his dissertation, which was on the requirements of ritual purity in ancient Egypt. And I knew uh, at that point, already in 1996, that the reason he chose the topic of ritual purity was because it related in some way, shape, or form to the Book of Abraham, because of all of his classwork related in some way, shape, or form to the Book of Abraham, um, always. Yeah, the three virgins who were sacrificed because of their purity. Exactly. So this was a topic that was brought up, and we had no problems with it because it's a totally legitimate topic. Ritual purity is a feature one has in ancient Egyptian uh, thought and cultic practices. Before you go into a temple space, 
You have to fast for a period of time. You have to gargle your mouth with uh, natron, which is what the Egyptians use as a mouth cleaner. It's a naturally occurring bicarbonate. Uh, and you had to undergo other privations of, of various sorts uh, in order to be pure of mind and body before you would go into holy space. So studying that was completely legitimate, and there was no pushback by myself or my colleague, Kelly Simpson. Committees are never composed of one person. Uh, because John had done the bulk of his work with me, and because I worked with religion, I was the logical person to do it, and I agreed, not a problem. However, when I got the first chapter, I could see that there were all sorts of issues of dealing with the evidence that were complicated. Not that they were necessarily bad, but that they required a great deal more explanation and that these would have to be spun out into a much larger chapter with more footnotes and perhaps separated off into other issues and other chapters. And I could see this was going to be an incredible amount of change. So I wrote him back a very detailed, annotated document in which I pointed out all the mistakes, changes, and expansions that had to be made with many changes, many mistakes, many, many things that could be tweaked or otherwise improved, and said all this needs to be done in Chapter 1 in order for this to be a workable document. But for me to be able to keep going over this sheer number of changes I would make in your document, which is my job, by the way, as dissertation supervisor, I am supposed to point out corrections and improvements. But for me to be able to do this properly and to give you the attention that you would need to have a successful completed dissertation, for your own benefit, you need someone who is with you in New Haven, Connecticut, not in Chicago, and who can work with you to find the appropriate sources and do do close work on this manuscript. And therefore, because I have all of these new complications now in Chicago, and I cannot provide the surface that you clearly need to do an acceptable dissertation that will get you a proper job, that I, rec I recommend that you find someone at Yale who can take over my responsibilities, and I am sorry, but I am withdrawing from your committee and you need someone you can work with and that person isn't me. Now, I have the original letter I wrote. I kept a copy. It's in a folder that's in my office now, but unfortunately, my office is sealed away thanks to the coronavirus and I cannot get into it to spend the time to find my John Gee file, but I have this, the original letter there with that proof that that's what happened. I withdrew from John Gee's dissertation. I was not forced off. What was and John so my, my colleague, uh, Kelly Simpson, took over my duties as being the chief reader and shepherded the dissertation on to its completion. At no point was John ever told by me or by anyone else he couldn't do that topic. At no point was it said the topic was bad the problem was that the citations and the way it was discussed were problematic. Uh, and I went point by point saying all the things that needed correcting and he would need it to work with someone who could handle it. And it was just going to be 
overwhelmingly time-consuming with me taking on a new job with a new group of students and a new set of problems uh, that I, I couldn't, couldn't do it. And so I was withdrawing. And there's no dispute about that's the way things happened. And now if we can pull up the following slide. And while we're doing that, Dr. Ritten, was John Gee upset by the corrections you gave him? No. Was he upset by the fact that you had to withdraw from being his advisor in his dissertation? Well, here's what he says in the published form of his completed dissertation. That's the next slide. So you can, anyone who wants to read John Gee's dissertation can find it on University Microfilms, which comes out of Michigan. So yesterday afternoon, I asked one of my colleagues, uh, our bibliographer, to please pull up a copy of John's dissertation and the acknowledgments. So here is the beginning on page one of his dissertation. And you'll notice at the beginning of his acknowledgments, right at the very beginning, now I want to quote for you John Gee's own explanation of what happened. In the many years that have passed before reaching this point, many have contributed financially and materially to the production of this dissertation, without whom I would not have been able to produce it. Robert Rittner, as my initial dissertation advisor, provided helpful comments on the early drafts of this work and prevented me from going in several wrong directions. When Professor Rittner was unable to complete the task of advising the dissertation, Professor William Kelly Simpson kindly moved in to help see the dissertation to completion. The end of that section. He goes on to thank others, but this is the point that I am, I am discussed and praised and thanked for that bit of work in the very first paragraph. So there was no bad blood between John and myself until 2002 when I went on record as opposing the Book of Abraham and then with ever-increasing frequency and unpleasantness, John began attacking my work. So this, this is a double-edged sword for John, you have to realize, because to the extent that John attempts to discredit me, he discredits himself, because if I am bad as an Egyptologist and I am his teacher, what does that say about his work? Bad teacher, bad student. So uh, it's a problem for John, but... John's livelihood is based entirely on being employed by the church to defend the Book of Abraham. He has no choice. He is paid to go to conferences to defend the Book of Abraham. So um, what can I say? So for our chronology, John Gee's dissertation was published in 1998. Is that correct? I believe so, yes. And if I'm understanding you correctly, there was no bad blood that you were aware of between you and John Gee throughout his being your student. No, I gave him excellent grades all the way through. I encouraged his work. I encouraged the dissertation topic. I had no problem with that, and I signed on. It's only when I suddenly found myself in a new job in a new place with new responsibilities that were just really overwhelming uh, and all the problems I saw with John's initial chapter. And that's not unusual, by the way, for someone's initial chapter to have problems with people who've never written a dissertation before. Uh, it's a complicated thing. But uh, 
I realized that this was not, that it was not to John's benefit for me to be a long distance, you know, it's a long distance relationship and trying to trade, you know, in minutia back and forth over a long period of time when I had other demands on my time would have been bad for him. And we both realized it. And so that's why he had someone local to take over. So that's the chronology. He thanks you in his dissertation, which is published in 1998. Everything's fine as far as you're concerned. You've gone your way. John Gee has gone his. 2002, you appear in that video in which you say some things that do not support the, um, well, let's just say the LDS apologetic version of the translation of the Book of Abraham from the papyrus, correct? That's correct. And I don't know when the, the slander actually starts about me being forcibly removed. But it was sometimes after that, correct, that you started hearing rumors and emails being sent your way containing the story about you being removed from the dissertation? Now, I've heard those only relatively recently, within the past 10 years, I think. Okay, so that would definitely be after 2002. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And those came to you by email, people sending you emails about what other people were saying, and this uh, yeah. Peterson fellow exactly. that you mentioned. I've, I've heard it third hand, and now I've actually seen clips. When you say clips, you mean audio and video? Yes. Can you tell us about those? Um, well, I think you, ha you may have them. Um, we can put them up. It would take me a few minutes to find them, but I received an email which included a, a link. That's okay. And to give credit where credit is due, there's an individual who goes by the name Tom, who posted the Mormon discussion message board, who had accumulated several instantiations of this story. Most of them were told by Daniel C. Peterson, who's a professor at BYU. And I think one of them was told by John Gee. Presumably, John Gee initiated the story. And then Professor Peterson, who is a good friend of John Gee, has simply been reiterating it. Well, I don't know who Mr. Peterson is. He's never, he's, I, I, I may have cited him as producing some attempt to prop up the book of Abraham. The name is familiar. I think he's somewhere in my bibliography, my book, but he wrote a very trivial article at, at some point reacting to him. I don't know he's, what he's a professor of. He's a he's professor, not, he's a professor of Islamic studies at BYU, who does really very little in Islamic studies and does a whole lot in Mormon apologetics. Well, he, he's no authority on ancient Egyptian material and has no right to, to comment. And certainly he wouldn't be part of any discussion that had to do uh, with John Gee's dissertation, which would be internally the case at Yale University. And I even contacted Yale and asked them if they would like to release any of the material about the hearings of, and by hearings I mean the oral defense that would have taken place with John Gee's dis dissertation, was there any paperwork about the change of me as a director? And what I was informed is that they would not, as a university, release any of these papers until all of the participants were dead. <laughs> so so I, basically I can't do anything. For as long as John is alive, as long as I'm alive, we can't release any of these papers. Um, however, I have the smoking gun, uh, which is to say I have the letter that I wrote to John in my own possession. If I could get to my office, I could reproduce that uh, at any time 
at any time I can reproduce that. I considered putting it up on my own website the same way that I put up the uh, my reaction to the church, but I don't know whether I wanted to go into an ad hominem attack of, because it goes into all the details of everything that's wrong with John's initial chapter of his dissertation, which is neither here nor there. Right. Well, it's obvious to me that you took this uh, quite personally. You considered a lawsuit based upon I, this. Story. I, I went to our, our legal department at the University of Chicago because Mr. Peterson, whom I've never met, uh, has no justification for making claims that are completely inaccurate. I mean, I don't know how in the strongest possible language to say that this is inexcusable. And Mr. Peterson should be ashamed of himself. Um, I really probably should sue him. I don't know on the internet whether that counts, if you're recorded, whether that counts as, as slander or libel. Uh, because it's, it's slander is when spoken and libel is when it's recorded in some other manner. Uh, so I, with, with, with audio and video recordings, I don't know where those, those are fit. Uh, but it's disparagement through the internet. And that's now illegal, and people are suing for that all the time. There are lawyers who make their living doing precisely that. But I'm not in this for the money or anything else, but I would like to correct the record that okay. at no point, at no point did I disparage Mr. Gee's work or the validity of his dissertation topic or his right to, to carry out such a topic, nor did I in any way find myself forcibly removed from his dissertation. I was the one who came up with the idea of removing. He went along with it, and he thanked me in his published dissertation explicitly, which no one would do if, in fact, I were a source of problems. I also want to point out that when John actually got the job at BYU years later, years later from my leaving him, that he wrote me by email to provide me with his new name and address. I mean, his new address, not his name, but his new address and contact information and he and his new title. So he would not have done that if there was some sort of bad blood between us that over the years, he would hardly have let me know, here's how to reach out to him. So once again, Guy's own actions with his contact me, with the way he describes me in his dissertation, which, for which I thank him, uh, because I did put in an awful lot of effort on that initial chapter. But I withdrew from it in good faith and for his own benefit. And clearly it worked. He got a degree. And he got a job. So he has nothing to complain about from me for that. Now, his problem, obviously, is what I've done subsequently. Right. And that gets into my what hopefully will be my last question here, John. But Dr. Rittner, uh, taking everything you said at face value, which makes sense to me, you've got especially that dissertation uh, acknowledgement by John Gee thanking you, corroborating your version of events, which is basically this is a big nothing and nothing happened. Why is it, do you think, that John Gee would create a story which he must know is made out of whole cloth that puts you in such a negative light? Well, I can't answer that. Um, he, is, he has attempted to denigrate my own work. Uh, I pointed out how that's a, a double-edged sword. Uh, on his curriculum vita, on his statement of his 
life's work. He claims that he was the editor of a journal that did peer review. That is the Journal of Society for the Study of Egyptian Antiquities, JSSEA, out of Toronto, Canada. For a time, that small organization was having trouble finding an administrative staff. And they were looking for people to edit the journal, which is something that no one wants to do. We've had problems with this in Chicago. We've had problems with editing journals for the American Research Center in Egypt, which is the bigger version of that, the the thriving institution on which I sit on the board of directors, actually, that's based in Alexandria, Virginia. But John was able to volunteer and be accepted to be the overseer of their little magazine. And in it, he decided that he would produce an editorial while he was handling the little magazine, which, by the way, no one else wanted to do. So it's a thankless task. So he put out an, an, an editorial in which he claims that it's a waste of time for things to be peer-reviewed, that he does not believe in peer review. Now, this is, in, this is during his time, brief time, as the head of a magazine of a struggling society, JSSEA. At the same time, he's bragging that when he was, as part of that organization, he was head of a peer-reviewed journal. So it says on his bio at Brigham Young University. Well, which way is it, John? Are you going to, to accept peer review and put it in your bio? or in your actual document that you edited, you denigrate peer review. So he doesn't believe in scholars looking at his work because if they did, they would be highly critical. So I know he has defensive issues with anything I would have to say because they're necessarily critical because he's not using the standards that I required at Yale. And that's what I pointed out in my dialogue article. That's what I pointed out in my Journal of Near Eastern Studies article is his apologetic articles did not follow Yale standards. And so he was hurt by that, and that's part of the problem. So much so that one of my subsequent books that has absolutely nothing to do with Mormon issues, this is a book on Libyan period Egyptian inscriptions from 1000 to 600 BC. This I produced in a special series that's on translations of Egyptian texts. John Gee, as editor of this small Canadian failing magazine, decided to do a review for this article, even though it hadn't been properly sent to them for review. And it was when editors get books for review, it's supposed to be sent out to other writers to do a review. John did not inform anyone that he was doing this, but he chose to write a review all by himself that was not seen by anyone, but published by himself. Completely unseen and unpeered reviewed. At the same time, he's saying peer review is unnecessary. And so what did he do in that review of my book on Libyan period inscriptions? He produced what I can only describe as a savage hatchet job, accusing me of all manner of mistakes, most of which are incorrect. There are some typographical errors that he caught, but there are a large number of errors that he claims I committed and wrote a terrible and an incompetent book. 
it was a savage destruction of my book, attempting to attack and ruin my own status before my peers. That, to me, is a far greater problem than what John Gee has done about my being a dissertation chairman or not, because that was inexcusable. My book was an extremely important book. It remains an important book. His review was inexcusable. And after he printed this review, he then got, as did I, letters out of the blue from other scholars who had read this review reacting to it, some canceling their membership in the Canadian society, others writing in apology to me. People who are on the board of directors of the Canadian magazine pointed out they had never seen this review, did not authorize it to be printed, and that it was inexcusable, and they then followed it up with the, in the very next issue with a formal retraction. My scholarly associates put in that little magazine a formally formal retraction of the editorial that John Gee had published. You don't do that in my field. There is no such thing I've ever heard of. That is not just a slap on the wrist. That is a statement that your work is totally unacceptable. And we as editors are stepping in to say, this was wrong. So that's the worst thing that John's done. Uh, I considered a reply. I've decided that the retraction is good enough. It's not worth my trouble to deal with this. But it, what John did was completely inexcusable by any scholar. And it violates the standards of that journal, as they themselves said when they had to retract it and were forced, and they gave me a lifetime subscription free to this magazine as a result of what John improperly did when he had this moment of power grab. And yet he still tries to boost his standing by saying he was the head of a peer-reviewed journal when he not only didn't use peer-reviewed, he actually denigrated it and then defied it by producing a hatchet job on my book. Totally unacceptable, as the editors subsequently said, in an editorial printed critiquing John's work on my book, his review. So that's really all I have to say about that. And I thank you for letting me get that off my chest. You're welcome. I will let you know that the leopard doesn't change his spots, and I don't think John Gee has either, because when you're describing his hatchet job review of your book, it sounds very much like the review that John Gee did in The Interpreter, a journal of Mormon thought, whose editor is, by the way, Daniel C. Peterson, in which he did a similar hatchet job on Brian Hauglid and Robin Jensen's book, the fourth volume in the Joseph Smith Papers Project dealing with Joseph Smith's revelations. Basically, it dealt with the Abraham Egyptian papers. And he did a total hatchet job on it, so bad that he impugned not only uh, Brian Hauglid and Robin Jensen, but the entire staff of the Joseph Smith Papers Project, which is an arm of the LDS Church, and ended up getting himself called down to Salt Lake to a very tall building in a very high up office and yelled at 
for probably about an hour over what he had done. So it appears that he has a hard time learning his lessons, not only from you, Dr. Rittner, but also about writing hatchet jobs and getting in trouble for it. Well, I have heard from spurious commentators who have written to me that John Key was quote unquote marginalized at Brigham Young. And I did not know the details. And I assume maybe I'm assuming now that maybe that's linked. I don't, I don't know. He seems to still to be a spokesman for Brigham Young, but there are serious problems with his work. And he, uh, the, the, the example that I mentioned to you is the most egregious example, but he's done a number of articles that critique my interpretations of various points just for the purpose of trying to say and written your scholarship isn't any good over and over again on really minor, minor, minor points. But the sum total of it all is to undercut my reputation on the basis of what I've had to say about the Book of Abraham. Because every time he f- has a foray into proper scholarship, it's all merely a veneer for a covering for what he does with his Book of Mormon material, which is his primary focus. He only works with the Egyptian material so that he can say, look, I'm an important Egyptologist, and therefore you have to believe what I say when I say, talk about the book of Abraham. That's his, that's his driving motivation. It's his one and only motivation. It always has been. Um, so um, I'm simply a stumbling block. But as I pointed out uh, repeatedly, it's a, it's a two-edged sword because the degree to which he claims I'm incompetent merely makes himself look bad on multiple fronts. So uh, it's a sad situation. Yeah, you're like the Catholic Church, and he's the Protestant Church. <laughs> That's an old well, argument it, about it, the great it, apostasy. It, 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 while we're on that subject, let me briefly remark that in that, that fair Mormon presentation, when he was asked about my writings and my reaction to the uh, church statement, he also said that it was in poor taste because would a Protestant write a letter of objection to a papal bull? Well, that shows a remarkable... What does that term mean, papal bull? What is that That's mean? an official document released by the Pope, speaking ex cathedra, from the throne. So what he's saying is, would a Protestant ever critique the actual theological statements being emitted by the Catholic Church? Well, the answer to that is very easy, and it's yes. (laughs) If you know anything about world history, that's how the Reformation came came about, was that Martin Luther made an objection to the papal bull, the papal announcement about indulgences, and he nailed his objections to a church door. So, yes, people have arguments over theological distinctions all the time. It's not in bad taste. It's normal. Catholics have arguments amongst themselves over the legitimacy of papal doctrines. Uh, Protestants disagree with each other, and, of course, Protestants and Catholics have been disagreeing for as long as they have been different groups. So to say that it's bad taste for one to do the other and be shocked suggests that John Gee has absolutely no sense of world history whatsoever. 
mean, how can you not know that? And that's that that that's pretty shocking in and of itself. One of the things that struck me about that comment, and I know he was speaking off the cuff, these were not prepared comments, but in response to the question that was asked him at the end of that Fair Mormon presentation as to whether he ever intended to respond to your essay, which itself was a response to the church essay, was to characterize the church essay in which, of course, John Gee was very, very deeply involved in writing it, especially the connections with uh, the, the Egyptian world, the apologetic part of the essay, to characterize an essay by the church that he was deeply involved in as a papal bull, and that you would be criticizing something that was really beyond criticism, and it had this high and holy station of being the equivalent of a papal bull. I thought that was an interesting insight into his self-awareness, his self-conception. Well, what he's saying is that I'm an outsider, and as an outsider, I have no right to talk about the legitimacy of the Book of Abraham as a historical source. So I am certainly an outsider, and I've repeated it many times in the course of this uh, set of interviews. I have no right to say anything about the legitimacy of the theology that was taught to the faithful in contexts that I know nothing about, that, are, that take place in the temple or wherever they take place. I don't know those, so I can't critique them. What I can tell you is the statement that this document reads X. That I can answer. And to the extent that Smith published and made available to the broader public, a text which he claims to have translated and which apologists are continuing to defend as being somehow valid translations, that then not only allows me, but requires me as the one and only professor of Egyptology in the United States and the Western Hemisphere to respond. And I have a unique position. My predecessors never had the title professor of Egyptology. I have a chair in that specific field. They were professors of Egyptology, but they did not have a chair in it, and I do. And therefore, if there's an Egyptological matter of such great import, and I think this is, it would be inexcusable for me to fail to have an opinion on what are the Egyptian elements in it that are being portrayed as being truthful, particularly when all the antecedents of me at Chicago commented on it. So my predecessors, Klaus Baer, who taught me Egyptian, basic Egyptian, wasn't with, with Klaus Baer. Uh, I knew about the existence of these papyri at the table of Klaus Baer. Um, after Klaus Baer, there had, what had been Richard Parker, who had left Chicago to go found the school at Brown University. So everyone at Brown University is a descendant of the work done by Richard Parker, who also commented on these papyri. Uh, John Wilson was the former director of the Oriental Institute and who was the head of Chicago before Klaus Baer. So he had commented on it. And, and Wilson was the, was the student, the prized student of James Henry Bested, who founded our institute. And you can't get any farther back than that in the United States because Bested was the very first Egyptologist in the US. Uh, to have a position. Breschet had sub-studied in Germany. 
And in Europe, the understanding of Egyptology had already begun much earlier, which is why Breston was sent there. But you have the example of Théodule de Veria working with the, with the materials that were in the Louvre Museum that have been collected because of the discoveries made by Champollion, which go all the way back to the, the French invasion by Napoleon into Egypt. And that is the actual beginning of modern Egyptology. And so he, he had access to, to pieces that for all I know were looked at also by Champollion, which are parallels to what are relevant to the Book of Abraham because they are these same kinds of papyri. So all of my professional forebearers worked on things of this sort, had gone into print discussing them, had every right to do it. It was appropriate for me to do it. There were issues, and I had a new discovery to make in my announcement. I was not merely critiquing the church, but showing something new that I had found, which is that there was a witness to the actual production. And that's what's different about that article than my printed books. If we ever did a new edition of the books, I would add that into the book itself. But that is a new development where you can draw a line between the manuscript copies from these Abraham papers, the Kirtland papers, and the surviving papyrus. That's a new development, and that's, that's what motivated me. And that's why it's legitimate for me to do it, and that's why it matters. And I'm not working with whatever theology uh, is being propounded by the Mormon church. I don't know, because I don't know it. And that, I agree, is my aspect as an outsider. But I have every right to discuss what is the historical legitimacy when it is being made by apologists, some of whom I've trained. And if, in fact, the Egyptian material is entirely irrelevant, and if he could have gotten it from, if, if Joseph Smith could have had this revelation by looking at a phone book, then why does Brigham Young even have a program hiring multiple Egyptologists, spending vast amounts of money, trying to back up the historical legitimacy of this document? If they don't care, why are they doing it? Because it seems to be, A, unbelievably expensive with multiple people uh, on staff and sending them around everywhere to, to flesh up their uh, CVs by sending them across the globe to participate in conferences, all at the Maxwell Institute's expense, and B, unproductive. Because in all of this, I mean, John can gloat that he's made some ignorant Egyptologists, if in fact that's what they were, momentarily impressed by his remarks about a misrepresented facsimile one. But no serious Egyptologists are going to take it seriously for long. And so all of that money, all of that effort has not actually convinced anyone of standing. So it's a waste of money on both counts. It's a lot of expense for what they claim is not even a goal. We don't care whether it's true or not. Well, then why spend the money on it? And you're not convincing anyone that it's valuable, so why spend the money on it? I mean, 
the United States has many issues today, particularly today, where the church could be spending all sorts of extremely valuable money producing wonderful benefits for the citizens of any of our states. And it would be greatly appreciated, I'm sure, by multiple communities. But instead, they are wasting it trying to prove something that's been so ridiculous, been recognized as being ridiculous almost from the time that it was completed. In the 1800s, Deveria is already dismissing it as nonsense. By 1912, the New York Times is already dismissing it as nonsense and as proved by the objects on the Metropolitan Museum's wall. I think it's pretty inexcusable, actually, of the Met to have discarded the papyri when they had actually the ability to show how those papyri actually worked with pieces they had in their own collection. They could have disproved a major aspect of of American culture by doing their own exhibit, putting up the papyri with four sons of Horus, et cetera. They could have done that. Why did the Metropolitan not bother? That's pretty inexcusable if you look at it in a broader sense. It's particularly inexcusable that Thomas Hoving, who wrote popular um, books on making the mummies dance, would trade these papyrus fragments back to the church for an undisclosed benefit. I don't know what that is. Uh, Presumably the, the Met made a profit on getting rid of these items. But they should have done an exhibit. They should have followed it on the New York Times and let the people of the United States actually see the documents in conjunction with actual Egyptian objects, which they will never be able to do now that the pieces have been unfortunately, wrongly, irresponsibly sent back to Brigham Young where they're locked away and no one can see them. So when a scholar like myself asks to see them to do scholarly work, I am told instead, not available. Now you may not have authority to see them. How does that benefit anyone? I see I'm getting a whole series of uh, messages that are coming in. Uh, I don't know whether to deal with them or ignore them for the moment. RFM, I, is it okay if I jump in here? Did you have any final thing you wanted to ask about just about this line of questioning? No, I think it's been said very well by Dr. Rittner, and I turn it over to you for the winding up scene. Well, I, I, you know, I don't want to necessarily say that my, my words are going to wind things up, but let me just follow up on a couple things if it's okay, uh, Dr. Rittner. Rittner. When, when we go back to this really, uh, I, I, w- I thought it was a really catty kind of unprofessional disrespectful comment that john gee made uh in the q a in 2018 at a fair mormon conference in response to someone asking a very credible legitimate question do you plan john gee on responding to robert ridner obviously he we've already addressed him saying why would a non you know does a non-catholic scholar feel it's in his purview to criticize a papal bull um, he says that you're out of line, which you've already addressed, because you are literally in line with all the 
your predecessors, <laughs> all of which who have commented on the book of Abraham. So you are literally in line <laughs> with them. And then, you know, John Gee says, why does he care? Obviously, you care about the book, of, you know, you care about Egyptology, you care about honesty, you care about credible scholarship. Um, so for all those reasons you care, you don't like people being misled. Um, but then he goes on to say, I don't really have any intent on responding uh, because I thought his review was, beside being in poor taste, rather weak. So he's basically saying, number one, it, it was in poor taste for you uh, to comment on a matter of Egyptology. Uh, I don't know where he gets that. But then he says your response was weak. And we've just, we've just reviewed, uh, you know, the core of what that response was. And I just, I want to know on what planet he comes from saying that your response was weak. How do you respond to him saying what you just showed us uh, about the, you know, the Abraham Egyptian papers tying clearly, directly tying the characters on the papyrus all the way to uh, attempts at translation, all the way to the actual text that, that shows up in the book of Abraham and that somehow that's weak. How do we, I, I'm sort of speechless to say, to explain how we could call that a weak response. Well, the first thing that I've noticed is it's dismissing things again without actually going through the steps. The, it's the issue of show your work, John. Uh, if he's going to say that my argumentation is weak, then he needs to respond to explain how it's weak, point by point in the same way that I have repeatedly done him the kindness of acknowledging his work. When I did my book, I went out of my way to track down every, every podcast that he was on or every article he had written that was in any way relevant to this material because I wanted to be thorough. And so if there was something that was vaguely relevant, I cited it and I either agreed with it or I didn't agree with it and I explained why. Uh, John has never done that in the same way. I mean, basically, it's just dismiss it out of hand because, of course, you can't deal with the minutia because my my finer points are correct. So you you can't dismiss them except by saying I just won't I won't bother with that. Uh, so that's his fallback answer because it would be far too complicated and far too difficult, and uh, and uh, and he would lose. There's there's no there's no winning. There's no good argument against what I've shown. It's kind of like a, a a middle school kid in a schoolyard saying he could beat Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan is is a, is a lame basketball player saying he could beat him. Then Michael Jordan shows up and says, "All right, let's play ball." And the kid says, "No, you're you're weak. Your arguments are you know you're you're not that good. You're weak. Why should I even bother? Who even cares?" I mean, that's the best analogy I can come up with on the spot. Well, thank you for that comparison. Onto <laughs> Lynn. Yes. Onto Lynn, you sent out an invitation to uh, yeah. Professor Gee, didn't you? Yeah, just last, just a couple of days ago. You know, it, you've mentioned this before, like, and I'm getting this from you, RFM. You correct me if I'm saying it wrong. On the one hand, you know, John Gee or Daniel Peterson or whoever, if anybody comments on the book of Abraham, in a way that they don't like, who's not an Egyptologist, what's the response that, that they give, RFM? You're not an Egyptologist. So only, so, so 
you know, Brian Hoglid can't comment on the book of Abraham. Actually, let's go back. They're cool with Brian Hoglid's commentary on the book of Abraham as a non-Egyptologist when he agrees with their position. And they'll let that go for years. As soon as now Brian Hoglid goes against what they want to be said about the book of Abraham, then their response is, well, Brian Hoglid's not an Egyptologist, so he can't comment, and we're not going to consider as relevant anyone who's an Egyptologist. By the way, this uh, Michael Rhodes, tell us, Dr. Tell us, Dr. Rittner, is Michael Rhodes an Egyptologist? I think he has something to do with aviation engineering. Aviation engineering. But so, somehow his, his work's okay, but Brian Hoglitz isn't. Anyway, getting back to this. They I, I believe that Michael Rhodes, when he was stationed in Germany, may have had some classes with Karl Theodor Zautzig. He may Does have that had make some, you an Egyptologist? <laughs> that, no, so having had some extension classes with an Egyptologist does not make you a professional Egyptologist. Right. And Michael right. Rhodes, uh, I didn't show you the cover of his book of the Breathing Permit of Horror, but the design that was used by, by BYU for that volume was the lion bed, a gilded image of the lion bed. And Michael D. Rhodes came to the conferences for the American Egyptologists to give himself also a patina of responsibility. Some years ago when the conference was held, this is the conference on which I sit on the board of directors. This was held in uh, at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. And he came to give a talk about the lion bed. As he began his talk, he misspoke. And he instead described it as the lion altar. Because he is so much not an Egyptologist, he can't get his terminology straight. And of course, the lion altar is the way it's described on facsimile one, and we now know it's not an altar. So, of course, as he made this gaffe in front of a room, only some people who knew anything about Mormon studies recognized what he was talking about, and we laughed. He is not a scholar, and he's never been at another one of these meetings subsequently, and it was not well received. Right. I should point out he was being escorted by John Gee, who was bringing him everywhere. Because, again, the point was he was trying to make him into an Egyptologist. But this is like the, uh, you know, I'm not an Egyptologist, but I play one on TV or something like that. Right. And John Delenn, you're doing a great riff here, and I don't want to interrupt it, but uh, you may throw into the hopper this, this amazing fact. Hugh Nibley was not an Egyptologist. That's right. <laughs> also true. Yeah. So, although he had had more, stu- he had had more studies with Klaus Baer. The only one who subsequently had more than Hugh Nibley would be John Gee, and Kerry had an abbreviated program at UCLA on which Kara Cooney has commented. I'll leave it to her to discuss that. Yeah, and so they'll they'll accept the words of non-Egyptologists like Rhodes, like Nibley like uh, Brian Hoglid, if their arguments agree with their position. But then if anybody utters anything that counters their position, then they'll respond by saying, why should I listen to them? They're not Egyptologists. Then when, let's say, one of the top, if not the top Egyptologists in the world gives a detailed, thoughtful, 
series of published responses to their position. Then their response is, uh, well, that's in poor taste. Uh, that's rather weak. It doesn't even rise to the level of being worthy of my response, even though he's paid full time to be an Egyptologist apologist. Um, uh, it's just absolutely ridiculous. He, he hides behind, he, he puts on his CV that he believes in peer review and was the editor of a peer reviewed journal, yet his works aren't peer reviewed and he won't engage in scholarly dialogue with you. And then he ends by saying, kind of rude and dismissive, talk about poor taste. His final sentence was, uh, I don't have any plans on responding formally because as far as I can tell, who cares? What what type of like rude, insensitive, snippy response is who cares what Robert Rittner has to say about the Book of Abraham? Well, all I can tell you is it's not the case with all the people who've been writing to me. And again, I, I thank them for having done that. No, and, and RFM and I, uh, you know, I'll, between I'll, us. If I can make one other point. Please. Is that, that you notice that Brian Hoglet, of all people, has changed his opinion over the years. Brian Hoglid is a reasonable person with whom I had a brief uh, exchange of emails. He always struck me as quite reasonable. He very kindly sent me uh, images of the seer stones uh, after those had been released. He, he, I hadn't stuck, struck up a conversation with him for him to do that, so that was a kindness on his part. But the important thing to note here, and the reason I bring it up, is that what Brian Hoglid was doing was in the act of editing these Abraham Egyptian papers, the so-called Kirtland papers, the, the valuable discovery. So he was looking on a daily basis at the, at the documents that I had made this uh, inspiration discovery about, how they linked up. Brian probably made that discovery by himself already. Uh, if you're looking at them over and over again, I suspect that that would have revealed itself to you. You would have figured it out by logic of deduction. So it's not at all surprising that someone whose primary work is in these papers could have made an independent deduction. I don't, I've not talked to Brian. I don't know. Uh, maybe he only thought of it after he read my paper. Maybe he didn't. But he could compare it, in any case, with what he had in front of him every day. And if my argument made sense to him, that could explain why he had a change of heart. Because what I was pointing out was what was available to him to look at in the papers he had, which he was paid to work on. And it's not surprising that someone working with those papers, with that group of papers, would reach the conclusion I had, which is to say it's entirely reasonable. It's the logical conclusion. I don't know how it's even escapable as a conclusion. So if you, if, if you wish to uh, refuse to acknowledge anything, you can, you can stay in your ignorance if you like. But if you're working with the actual documents that, that provide the smoking gun, I think it's unavoidable. The irony is the church could have figured this out on their own, I suppose, long, long before, because they never lost those papers. Uh, but they didn't have the papyrus, obviously. Yeah. And something that I've written, you know, just briefly elsewhere that I think is important, the Book of Abraham, you know, clearly is yet another example of, you know, fraud, fraudulous translation by, on the part of Joseph Smith. We knew the Book of Mormon was, was a fraudulous translation because of all the anachronisms and problems with it. 
we we knew that the, we've established through Haley, um, you know, Lamont that that the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible is fraudulent. We know the Kinderhook plates uh, was a fraudulent translation, and you know, of course, you've you've demonstrated through multiple slam dunk after multiple slam dunk that the Book of Abraham is probably the most egregious and ridiculous and preposterous fraudulent translation of all Joseph Smith's fraudulent translations. But what, 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 what I think is even more important is that there is a pattern here that's a systemic pattern, which is, number one, that the Mormon apologists malign, whether it's Von Brody, whether it's Juanita Brooks, whether it's Brent Metcalf, whether it's Michael, um, you know, Michael Quinn, me, Jeremy Runnels, whoever it is, RFM, anyone who stands up against the church, like with Scientology, you know, uh, anyone who stands up against the Mormon church and his truth claims gets personally maligned. And Hugh Nibley did it, and Daniel Peterson did it and does it, and it's so disgusting and sad to see John Gee do it to you, someone who deserves respect and admiration for your work. But it's not just that. It's not just ad hominem maligning of sincere, honest, thoughtful critics. Um, but it's also this systemic period. So we know that it, starting from the mid-1800s to then 1912 to then beyond, the Mormon church was put on notice by expert Egyptologists worldwide that the Book of Abraham was a fraud. And instead of like inform its members, own up to it, and acknowledge it, what it's done over a hundred plus years is invest in scholars to go through um, the process of getting accreditation or, you know, their degrees so that they could, like you say, have the imprimatur of, of uh, you know, credentials, but then to be funded by the church to uh, make a mockery of scholarship and academics by creating fraudulent, uh, specious, irrelevant, um, non-credible scholarship to produce to the members so that they can go, oh, wow, he nibbly smart. I don't understand Egyptian. John Gee went to Yale. And so I guess, you know, smart people can disagree. Okay, we've got Robert Rittner. Who's he? But then we've got Hugh Nibley or John Gee. They're at BYU. They're smart. You know, I guess we can just side with, side with them. And this goes back to Elder Oaks's own acknowledgement that uh, historicity cannot be abandoned. And it's not the role of an apologist uh, to provide credible answers, they just need to provide some answers because if we don't provide answers, then we lose the argument. And so that's what we have is decades and decades of Nibley and Gee and Molstein and Peterson and Rhodes providing specious, irrelevant, completely refutable and non-credible, quote, scholarship to defend Joseph's, quote, translation. And then anyone who stands up against them gets maligned viciously whether it's you or Haley Wilson Lamont, them trying to retract her her uh, status as a student from Notre Dame after she leaves BYU, it it really is, you know. And and we're not trying to hurt John Gee here. We're not, you know, he's a human being. I have friends who are friends of his. He's a dad. He's a grandpa. He has feelings. It's not that we're trying to pile on and make him, you know, seem like a horrible, terrible, awful person. But he is knowingly and willingly participating in a system which has has been deceiving its members for over a century, knowingly and intentionally, um, in ways that 
allow people to spend their money and spend their time, their reputations and their very lives uh, committed to an organization where, where if only they had the full information, the full, accurate, credible, scholarly-backed information, they might make very different decisions with their lives. And for me, I don't know about RFM or you, Dr. Rittner, for me, that's where this gets really serious and personal. When lives and families and marriages get destroyed because of Mormon teachings and, and leadership and principles and doctrines and policies, then it becomes, and when the church claims to speak for God, and when the church claims authority from God, um, then it becomes egregiously irresponsible and immoral to financially employ these apologists to deceive and gaslight its members so that the, the fraud and the, the uh, manipulation of people can be con- continued generation across generation. So it's you, Hugh Nibley, who's passed away. It's Gee, it's Molstein, it's, it's Terrell Givens, it's Richard Bushman, it's, it's Mason and Fluman. It's any of these former apologists or neo-apologists who, perpet- who perpetuate the deception uh, and the misleading and the gaslighting of the members. And I'm sorry to soapbox, but that's, that's where I stand and that's what I'm passionate about. And that's why I'm upset. It goes way beyond the book of Abraham to a systemic pattern of corruption and mis- misleading and gaslighting of the membership through fake, through fake scholarship. Am I, am I, uh, am I out of bounds here, Doctor Rittner, RFM? <laughs> well, if you'll let me jump in for just a second, um, and that is, if you look at the long view, the Egyptian the Egyptological approach has been essentially the same. It's been unvarying all the way back to the 1850s. The general remarks that Tavarium made are still valid now. And it's the, they, are, they are the same ideas that Wilson had, that Parker had, that Bayer had, uh, and that I've had, that Lanny Bell had. I mean, we, we differ on f- minutia. So the objections that are coming out of the apologists necessarily have to be nibbling around the edges. You know, this little, this little thing over here is wrong, and this little thing over here is wrong with what the Egyptologists are saying, but they can't object to the whole picture. They would like to, but they can't. But what's remarkable is while the Egyptologist position has been the same for centuries now, (laughs) since back to the 1850s anyway, the apologist position has varied constantly. As I pointed out in my, in my work, I think it was in the book, uh, just surveying the work that I had with Nibley, he himself tried out about four different possibilities of way to interpret what the problem was with facsimile one. And others have come along and offered other solutions. And you've, you've mentioned some of these at this point, the, the idea that it was not actually a translation. What, what does translation mean? Then you have a discussion of what the English word means, even though it's being used. Do they really mean translation, et cetera? And does it inspiration? I mean, all sorts of things have been positive, but none of them work well. And so that over the years, the apologists have been twisting and turning in the wind, coming up with explanation after explanation 
and settling for the moment now upon the the magical lost large chunk of papyrus, which is unlikely to have ever been there. The Egyptologists have had the same unvarying interpretation all the way along. So in contrast to how we began this discussion uh, today with the audio podcast with the Hannah, the host, who described the Egyptian position as not being monolithic, in point of fact, it has been monolithic. It's only been non-monolithic on tiny little irrelevant details. If she's concerned about lack of being monolithic, she should look to herself. Because the explanations that have been offered by the church to account for the deficiencies, the irregularities, the internal inconsistencies and internal anachronisms that are in the text, which we've already talked about, of the Book of Abraham, even if you would, even if you give the apologetics, okay, we'll accept this and this and this and this, how do you account for the reuse of the word Egyptus in the text? That's totally wrong. How about Potiphar? Totally wrong. How about Ur of the Chaldees being in the wrong place? How do you explain that? How do you explain Egyptian sacrifice being in Ur of the Chaldees where the Egyptians were not and wouldn't have had any control on the local sacrificial patterns in any any case? No one has done that. Where's the work on that? Why is it you have John Gee retrofitting a well-known saint's life in Coptic, which describes the life of a medieval Saint Abraham under the Sassanid Empire with a known Persian ruler, why does John Gee try to pretend it's instead the patriarch Abraham of much, much earlier, when everyone knows that's not who's worked with the text and has known since 1908 that that's the way it's to be interpreted? John has actually put us back earlier than 1908. He's reversed science, not improved it. I mean, this is what John has done with that text, which is still being cited with approval, not only on the church document that I refuted and have to, had to disagree with it in specifics, but I noticed he also alluded to it again in the, the Fear Mormon radio broadcast from last week, whatever, with the Mormon voices, whatever it was called. Uh, he alluded to the very same text without any compunction about what the problems are with it. That would be like our saying, well, George Washington and George Washington Carver both have the same names. And therefore, we can say that the first Washington also had something to do with these for peanuts because they had the same last name. No one would take. No one would confuse George Washington and George Washington Carver, the modern individual who worked on peanuts, and therefore, and no scholar who actually knows these ancient records would confuse Abraham of the Middle Ages with an Abraham from the time of the patriarchs, wherever you want to put that. And John's flux, flummoxing together these two completely separate texts when the texts are so specific. The, the text about Abraham, the medieval individual, specifically say that he's living in Mesopotamia. 
you can't possibly confuse these. All John has to go on is the fact that it has the name Abraham in there. That is such horrendous scholarship that it's inexplicable. But it shows the kind of grasping at straws that the apologists do, and it doesn't strengthen their argument. It's really just pathetic. Amen. Uh, RFM, would you like to add anything? Yes, just briefly. I would say that uh, I understand why you're upset about this, John, and I can, I feel the same way from time to time. I know a lot of people are even more upset than you, but really all this boils down to is the fundamental problem of deciding that you know the answer before you start studying the facts. And once you know that the church is true and that Joseph Smith was a prophet, and once you know that the book of Abraham really was a translation of ancient Egyptian, then you have already set the paradigm that you are going to focus only on those things that match your paradigm and even become quite creative. Perhaps that's the, the main contribution that John Gee has, is not so much his Egyptology, but his creativeness in coming up with these connections. Um, and ignoring everything else, ignoring all the things that don't match. And one listener to the program had commented, made a very good comment that um, as soon as Egyptologists make the critical mistake, and by that I mean Mormon Egyptologists, apologists, make the critical mistake of counting connections between the book of Abraham and the ancient world, as evidence in favor of the book of Abraham, as soon as they make that critical mistake, they immediately acknowledge and have to logically recognize all the misses that the book of Abraham has with the ancient world as equally as important as any purported hits. And because on average, you might have five potential hits, even taking them at face value, and I know that based on our discussion, that might be a stretch at this point, but even taking the five proposed hits at face value and looking at, the, at maybe the 95 misses, which as Professor Rittner has just said, they don't get mentioned, right? Potiphar doesn't get mentioned. These other things don't get mentioned. That is significant. And those are earmarks of something that is made up. Just statistically speaking, if you have 100 darts that you throw against a wall and you're creative enough, you're going to get four or five of those that you can make potentially into some kind of hit, especially when you're looking not only at ancient Egypt, but also including Mesopotamia and the Hittites. I mean, the world is your oyster as far as John Gee goes in trying to find connections between the book of Abraham and the ancient world. It's not restricted just to Egypt where it's located or over there in Syria where it's purported to have occurred, but he can go anywhere, anytime, any place pretty much in order to find these connections. So really, it's not surprising that there would be these five uh, potential connections. What would be surprising and what would be much more persuasive is if those statistics were reversed and if there were 95 potential hits with the ancient world and five misses. That's what we would expect to have if indeed Joseph Smith could translate Egyptian as he claimed to be able to do. But having said all that, once again, going to John Gee now, Here's the deal, okay? He has said in basically these words, in talking to the fair Mormon crowd, 
that he knows lots of information about Egyptology. And he knows lots of stuff that is very damaging to the book of Abraham. That's why he characterizes it as juggling hand grenades and why he tells other people, don't you be trying to do this yourself because then the hand grenades start flying off and going off in the audience. This is for professionals only, but it's significant that he calls this information and knowledge he has hand grenades. What does that mean? That means stuff he's not going to talk about. And he even cites approvingly Boyd K. Packer's talk, The Mantle is Far, Far Greater Than the Intellect from 1981, where Boyd K. Packer says the same thing and that not all truths are useful. And that Boyd K. Packer knows negative things about the church that he's not going to tell the members of the church because it might negatively impact their testimony. And he's going to tell the church education system professors and teachers, you better not tell any of this negative information either because it's going to affect your job and it's going to affect your standing in eternity if you disobey me on this. So John Gee is following that same pattern and citing it approvingly. And what it all means is we know the answer from the beginning. The answer is the church is true. And therefore, anything that might lead you away from the church is something that you should not know. Therefore, if I know it, I'm not going to tell it. I'm going to tell everybody else who might know it not to tell it. And then they become justified in doing everything that we see them doing. That's how they justify it in their minds. The end justifies the means and what end could be more beneficial or uh, desirable than the eternal salvation of the members of the church. That's what they're after. And unfortunately, then they end up in a situation where they, they have the short end of the argument. They know they have the short end of the argument. They know they can't respond on an intellectually even field. And therefore, when it comes to people like uh, Professor Rittner and others, their only response is to try and call them names, to be dismissive, to not respond, to act as if they're not worthy of response because they know if they try and actually respond, they're going to get their clock cleaned. And that's about all I have to say. Well, John has said in those same set of broadcasts, I think it was Fair Mormon, that if you engage with secular individuals over issues like this, that you risk losing your faith, and therefore you should not. And that's his operative principle, and I think you've identified it. Really quickly, RFM, I don't want to leave this conversation without uh, making this one point, and Dr. Rittner's spoken to this indirectly, but RFM, do you mind just quickly outlining the problems with um, with the catalyst theory? So, you know, we, we see that what, what Mormon apologetics is trying to do is they're basically starting to sideline Gee and Peterson. They've been, you know, moved out slowly and marginalized from the Maxwell Institute. They've brought in Phil Barlow and Spencer Fluman and Terrell Givens. And, you know, they're promoting on the side people like Patrick Mason and others. And they're basically trying to maintain, you know, the, the traditional historical view of the Book of Abraham and the Book of Mormon so that they don't alienate the Orthodox membership and so that they can follow the mandate of Oaks and others. But at the same time, they're 
they're financially and materially supporting a new line of thought through the neo-apologists, I call them, like Bushman, Gibbons, Barlow, Mason, and Fluman, which basically is saying, what's a translation? What's a revelation? Like, maybe the Book of Mormon wasn't a translation, but it was Joseph Smith's tremendous revelation. And maybe, maybe Joseph Smith didn't translate the papyrus, but maybe God just used the papyrus to inspire Joseph to reveal. Can you just outline for us briefly the problems with the catalyst theory in terms of it being internally consistent, consistent with the history, and a, a credible alternative for where apologetics, Mormon apologetics, is heading? Yes, I'd be happy to do that, and I'll try and keep it brief. First off, when you talk about translation, it depends on what the meaning of is is. And we've talked a little bit about that before, twisting and expanding upon the normal usage of the word translation in order to try and make it fit the facts. And the facts are what keep coming back again and again to any honest seeker of truth and understanding as it relates to LDS history. By the way, about the word translation, this is a very important fact to keep in mind when trying to say that Joseph Smith, when he said translation, was not talking about translation in the customary sense. And this is from History of the Church, Volume 1, page 71, when he's talking about his translation of the title page to the Book of Mormon. And you probably remember that, John. It has like two paragraphs. It appears in the first part of the Book of Mormon. And Joseph Smith is taking pains to say, hey, this is part of the Book of Mormon. It was actually from the last of the plates, remember? And here's what he says about his translation of, those, of that plate. The title page of the Book of Mormon is a literal translation taken from the very last leaf on the left-hand side of the collection or book of plates, which contain the record which has been translated, the language of the whole running the same as all Hebrew writing in general, and that said title page is not by any means, notice this, and that said title page is not by any means a modern composition, either of mine or of any other man who has lived or does live in this generation, period, end of quote. So that's Joseph Smith talking about his literal translation of the title page of the Book of Mormon. Going back to your main question about the, um, oh, the, um, catalyst. the catalyst theory. Thank you. So here's the deal. You've got two main schools of thought which within faithful Mormon views of the Book of Abraham and its translation. The first is represented by John Gee and Carrie Muelstein, who hang on uh, tenaciously like a little terrier with a bone. They will not let go of this idea that somewhere, somehow, the text of the book of Abraham appears in Egyptian on the scrolls, because Joseph Smith really did translate them. And by the way, in so doing, they're arguing against the evidence that uh, Dr. Rittner's already presented very thoroughly in these podcasts, that obviously that's what Joseph Smith was doing, right? He was translating from these scrolls. He was getting it all wrong, and he's translating the facsimiles and getting it all wrong. But nevertheless, they want to maintain the idea that Joseph Smith really could translate Egyptian. And in doing so, what they're doing is they are uh, they're believing what Joseph Smith said about the translation and his ability, but they're denying the textual evidence that seems to contradict that. 
So what happens then is what happens when you're a person who believes that, but finally, even though you haven't really wanted to and you've been drugged there kicking and screaming like Brian Hauglid and myself, by the way, and probably you too, John DeLynn and thousands of people by this point, many of whom are listening to this program, they're finally dragged to the conclusion that yes, Joseph Smith didn't know what he was doing when he was translating uh, Egyptian. He really did not know Shiniha from Shinola. So what do you do at that point? Well, you can either say, well, apparently he was a fraud. He was making it up. He was duping people. He managed to dupe me. And so I'm going to stop believing that his special calling is a prophet. Or what do you do if you still feel compelled to believe that he was a prophet? Well, in the face of this evidence, what you have to do is you have to go to a backup theory. And the backup theory is the collateral, excuse me, the, ca the catalyst theory. Because under the catalyst theory, you accept the idea that Joseph Smith could not translate Egyptian, that the book of Abraham doesn't appear in the recovered uh, papyri. It never occurred on the papyri, almost certainly, but that it was the papyri themselves that separate and apart from anything that was written on the papyri, that Joseph Smith now catalyzed this idea in his head of a book of Abraham. And that catalyzation ended up in a revelation coming from God to Joseph Smith's head, separate and apart from what was written on the papyri. And that's what he used to translate now the book of Abraham. It has nothing to do with what's written on the papyri. It's just the idea of the papyri itself, which uh, stoked his prophetic juices, so to speak. So the catalyst theory has the huge benefit of not contradicting the manuscript evidence. It takes care of that problem in a very convenient way, I must say. But of course, the catalyst theory also has the drawback of it contradicts what Joseph Smith said he was doing. You see, both of them have their strengths and their weaknesses. The missing papyrus theory ignores the textual problems, but favors what Joseph Smith said that he was translating. The catalyst theory goes with the text and acknowledges the textual problems and accounts for it, but it has to ignore and contradict what Joseph Smith said he was doing when he was translating. So the, the catalyst theory then says, well, Joseph Smith, he really wasn't translating the, uh, the papyrus. And this is where the catalyst theory gets really, really bad because then you have to acknowledge that Joseph Smith thought he was translating the Egyptian characters, that that's how he presented his translation. That's how his scribes understood and acknowledged what it was that Joseph Smith was doing. But that at one and the same time that Joseph Smith thought and claimed and presented as translating Egyptian characters into English, he was actually, unbeknownst to him, receiving a revelation from God that he mistook as a translation, that then has to become part and parcel of the catalyst theory. And by the time you get that far down the road, it takes an awful lot of faith to stay in the boat and not just throw up your hands and say, you know, this catalyst theory idea is kind of indistinguishable from an intentional fraud on Joseph Smith's part. Yeah. <clears throat> and, and it just strains all reasonableness, I would say, uh, you know, for us to think that Joseph would be sitting there 
looking at an alphabet, looking at Egyptian characters, having a scribe write paragraphs next to the characters, and that he could produce, you know, through Revelation, all these strange, very, very detailed uh, technical names and words, uh, like the ones that we've already mentioned and concepts, but names like Elkanah and Libna and Machmara and Korash and all these different names, yet God wouldn't bother to say to Joseph, hey, Joseph, you think you're actually translating, but you're not. Uh, I'm, I'm inspiring you, but go ahead and waste the time of these scribes and play around with the grammar and the characters and think that you're actually translating. But, you know, I'll reveal to you the name, you know, of Elkanah, but I'm not going to actually let you know that you're kind of, you know, you're deluding yourself into thinking that you're actually translating anything. And it also requires us to think about, again, Doctrine and Covenants section 21, where God calls Joseph, a prophet, seer, revelator, and translator, that God would let Joseph Smith run around telling everyone that he was a translator because it was in Scripture and in Revelation, and yet, in fact, he wasn't translating. And again, I'm belaboring this point, but so much of the early years of the church, Joseph Smith got a lot of his power from fooling people into thinking he had special powers. It started with the seer stone, the rock in the hat, the treasure digging. When that jig was up, then he moved to claiming he could translate languages into scripture. And, and would he have been able to amass a bunch of followers if he hadn't have claimed to have these special powers to translate? Uh, I, I don't, I, maybe he wouldn't have. So it's problematic in, in so many ways to me. Right. The predicament of the catalyst theory in a nutshell is this. If Joseph Smith thought that he was translating, but he was mistaken, what else might Joseph Smith have claimed he was doing that he was mistaken about? Right. Yeah. Well, Dr. Rittner, um, this has been so far, and it may be a conclusion we'll see, this has been an epic series that immediately was nominated as one of the top, if not the top interview in Mormon Stories history, which is, you know, 1,400, you know, hours of interviews. You have done such a phenomenal service to our people and our community and I don't know how we could adequately thank you and or repay you other than, and I'm going to let you respond, but I do want to get this in, other than to make an open and an explicit and a direct call to listeners, you know, anyone who feels like they're in the position and have the ability to do so, we're going to repeat as we started with the acknowledgement that Dr. Rittner is facing kidney failure and is in need of a living donor to secure his life and continued research. If you can help, please contact Dana McLean, Northwestern Medicine Transplant Coordinator. Phone number is 312-695-0828. They will ask for Dr. Robert Rittner's birthday, which you need to give as May 5th, 1953. And, um, Let's help find Dr. Robert Ridner a kidney as one small way we can repay him for his altruistic and highly uh, full of integrity scholarship and efforts around, um, you know, the narratives that our people are being taught. 
but but Robert Ridner, what else can we do to repay you and thank you for your time with us? Well, the very the very nice comments that have been coming in by email are much appreciated. So I thank you for those. There are simply too many of them now for me to reply individually. I was doing that for a while and then I became overwhelmed. One of the things that was pointed out in one of the notes was that unfortunately 95% of the people who ought to see this program won't. So I hope that the podcast stays alive and that it will be seen in future years. What I would like it to be able to do is to serve (laughs) as a training purpose to serve some training purpose for my own students so they understand how it is one should probably reason and make sense of arguments that are as complex as something like this. So I I would like the series to live on, and I hope that it does have continued impact, not because I'm trying to take membership away from any particular group. Um, It's because I would like this to be seen as an example of how you can actually work with dealing with ancient materials and how one properly deals with them. One thing I note, uh, it hasn't been brought up, I think, is that the one branch of the LDS church, I know takes this as gospel, canonized back in 1880, but other branches less so. The branch that stayed back in, uh, in Missouri, which has split off and now had Two subsequent names. I now for, I forget the current name. Community of Christ. Community of Christ. Yeah, they're not very. You, you would never know they were Mormon with a name like that. I think that's the idea. That's the idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, they they take the work as strictly a, a manner a matter of speculative fiction by Smith. Um, and in that regard, they're they're not inaccurate because it is a document of historical importance for the United States, because it tells us the ways in which Egyptian elements were being used as a way to authenticate culture, even in the 1800s. So there is a value that the Egyptian material had to contemporary society, and it could be exploited in different ways. We now study this as a separate field called Egyptomania. Um, It's something that I find very, very interesting. But it's an example of an important incident that took place in American history in which Egyptian elements were used. And my students and people like me in the future will be looking at different ways in which Egyptian elements are used to either shore up or to denigrate ideas that come through in philosophies. Uh, in architecture, in various kinds of design, uh, all f- things Egyptian have come in and out of fashions, depending upon what's happening politically, how many new discoveries are being made. There was a certain bur- a burgeon of new Egyptian-themed elements in the 1920s, a uh, hundred years after Champollion was the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb, and you have many Egyptian-themed elements then. Uh, You had another burst of Egyptomania in the 1970s with the Tutankhamun exhibits coming through the the United States. So Egyptian interactions with American culture is its own topic of interest. Uh, And so the Book of Abraham will not cease to be an important document, regardless of whether it is an ancient document or not. Love it. 
And uh, RFM, how do you like the idea of our of this series being used as part of the curriculum for students at University of Chicago in the Egyptology program? <laughs> I think that would be absolutely fantastic and just another reason why it's a good thing my face is not showing. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, RFM, anything you want to say to close before we close out? No, John, just from one clown to another, it's been a great time. And by the way, that was a reference. John, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. You're getting that, right? Yep, yep. Because you're not smiling. No, I get it. Okay. <laughs> Dr. Rittner, it's been an absolute joy and privilege getting to know you and to participate in this. Um, I've had a wonderful time, and I wish you the best, and I don't want to lose contact with you either. Well, I thank you both. Uh, I really appreciate it, and obviously it's been beneficial for me in order to get some things off my chest, in order to explain some things, and in fact to clarify my own thoughts, including the revelation of a new interpretation I had of facsimile one as being an actual uh, copy of a lost wall scene, which I announced at the beginning of this session, something uh, I hadn't actually thought of before these started. So it's, it's proved valuable to me. And thank you, Dr. Rittner. Uh, RFM, I just want to tell you, you've, you've been such an important, essential contributor to this, to this series. I'm, I'm so glad I reached out to you. I'm so grateful you would take time out of your work and your busy schedule to come on. You're, you're, uh, you are a celebrity within the Mormon circles now. Your podcast is incredibly important. And I'm just so grateful you would join me on this I can't imagine it being anything like it has been without you. Um, so thank you. I want to thank you. I want to thank uh, Bill Real that that did a lot of the groundwork to help you do what you do. You and him together did an amazing series on Abraham that I used to prep. So shout out to Bill Real. Shout out to Brian Hoglid, who is super courageous in coming clean or being honest and open about his evolutions as a BYU faculty. And, and now after, after having left, I see him as a hero in this story. Everyone should, uh, should be grateful and praise Brian Hoglid for his courage and integrity. There's so many other people, Brett Metcalf for his work on the book of Abraham. Dan Vogel has an amazing series um, on YouTube about the book of Abraham. You know, Dan, Vo I don't even know if you know that name, Dr. Rittner, but Dan Vogel, is doing very, very important work. One of the individuals I've seen who's who've written in. In fact, I mean, there, there's so many names that have been written in. And a number of these individuals whom you've mentioned, I've only interacted with directly or indirectly through email or having them referenced to me in other emails. Uh, again, I, I am particularly thankful if anything that I've had to say is of benefit to anyone. I know some of the notes that I've received have been very pleasant. Some have been humorous. Some have been extremely anguished. So I had no idea that this simple 15 pages of text, the book of Abraham, could have such a major impact on people's lives in so many different ways. Uh, and I, I hope that I've managed to provide something of use. And if I have, then it was worth all this time. But this is without question the longest sense of interviews that I have ever given and probably ever will give. <laughs> so I hope that uh, it's been of use. 
Welcome yeah. to the world of Mormon stories. That's very fitting for Mormon stories podcast, Dr. Rittner. We, we don't, you know, if an interview is in 12 hours, it's not worth doing on Mormon stories. So thank you. Well, we've um, done at least 15 now, I think. <laughs> yeah, well, you've been a good sport, especially because you're not, it, you know, in tip-top health right now, although we're, we were going to hope to change that. Um, just really quickly, I just want to thank, you know, Michael Brown for his essay, Book of Abraham essay on the Mormon Stories podcast page. We have Truth Claims essays on mormonstories.org. Michael Brown did a great essay there. Jeremy Runnels for his work on Letter to a CES Director, the author of Letter for My Wife. It's got a great series of essays about the Book of Abraham. MormonInfographics.com, Missed in Sunday School. Uh, is there anyone else that I'm missing that has done really groundbreaking work or summarizing work, RFM, that we all sort of rely upon to help do what we do? No, not that I know, but I will say that in a lot of those respects of people you mentioned, and it's all very important to get the word out, I think a lot of those do ultimately derive from the work of Dr. Rittner. Yeah, but all, yes, yes. And Sandra Tanner um, and Gerald Tanner, none of us, a lot of this would not exist without them. And then, of course, you mentioned uh, the other scholar that, that helped you identify the various scribes. Uh, Michael Marquardt, another Marquardt, crucial yes. component of the of this research, is that right? Yes, absolutely. He wrote a, a primary chapter in my book, and also Mr. Kernan did the uh, primary work on the genealogy of the text. And I also want to thank uh, my director, uh, who, who my current director, Christopher Woods, who contributed the chapter on Ur of the Chaldees and has been sufficiently moved by some of the feedback that I've received from doing this podcast, which I forwarded on to him, that I am now doing for the very first time an official lecture for the Oriental Institute on the Smith Papyri. I've never been allowed to do that before, and now I'm doing it as a formal uh, presentation. I love it. Uh, you mentioned a name after Michael Marquardt, and your, your internet connection broke up. I don't want to lose that name. Who else did you thank? Besides Marco Marquardt? After Mark Kennan. Who? Let me give you his... Uh, he's in Belgium. Again, a gentleman I've never met, but he did primary work together with Jan Kagebor. His name is Mark Koenen, C-O-E-N-N-E-N. Koenen. Okay. Perfect. He was a student of Kagebor. Klagerbor, I did know, and he and Kunin together did a study of an example of a papyrus of this sort, and that led Mark to go on to do a work on the genealogy of these people. So he, he wrote a rather pivotal chapter, which caused me to read. That's one of the major changes, by the way, in the Egyptological understanding of this document, in that early Egyptologists assumed it was Roman in date which is why you get the 100 AD examples of people writing. Uh, our more nuanced understanding of the people in involved in it lets us make it earlier. So the handwriting is a little odd, but you can't date precisely based on somebody's handwriting style. And so that's the problem. So that's one of the revisions I made in the bare interpretation. I made it late Ptolemaic rather than early Roman. Well, but that's due to the work of Mark Kernan, and you can read his full discussion. It's really quite good in, uh, in my book. All right. 
And of course, by naming people, we're going to leave people out. And if we left you out, I really apologize. But uh, like Ed Ashment, yeah, <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, anyone else RFM? No, that's it. All right, check out. So RFM, do you want to give a plug for your podcast really quick? No, that's okay. It's RadioFreeMormon.org, everybody. And Dr. Rittner, is there anything you want to plug for how people can support you and your work, aside from finding you a kidney? Well, I think if they find me a kidney, they've done their they, they've done more than enough for me. That would okay. be great. But your work can be found at the University of Chicago, right? Yeah, for those who want to find any of my publications for the Oriental Institute, that's downloadable for free. So if you want to learn more about execration magic or ancient Egyptian magic, you can you can find that easily. Um, my paperback book is available widely from Scholars Press, and it's cheap. So, and your response to the LDS Church's essay on, on the Book of Abraham. On, that's on the Oriental Institute webpage, and that can be found downloaded for free again. And you simply have to find the Oriental Institute, University of Chicago, look under individual research, you'll find my name and a whole series of articles I've put there, including that one. And we were going to cover that point by point, but is it fair to say that we covered the, the substance of your response to the Church's Book of Abraham essay? I think we did. I, I have a marked up copy here with even more things to say, but I think we've covered the bases. Okay. All right, Dr. Rittner, Dr. Robert Rittner, we salute you. We thank you. You take care and let's find you a kidney, okay? Thank you much, sir. I appreciate it. RFM, we love you. Keep up the great work. Uh, you're awesome. Roger that. You're the man, John. You're the man. <laughs> and, listener, and listeners, thanks for joining us on Mormon Stories. If you want to donate to Mormon Stories Podcast, go to mormonstories.org, click on the donate button, become a monthly donor. Your donations will keep this podcast alive so we can bring you other scholars like like Robert Rittner, like Michael Coe, like Bart Ehrman and others. Please donate to Radio Free Mormon at RadioFreeMormon.org. A percentage of that goes to RFM and also supports Bill Real and his good work. And uh, just uh, keep in touch with us, comment, send us email, like us on Facebook, um, and uh, stay in touch. And we hope to provide you great content in the weeks, months, and years ahead on Mormon Stories Podcast. Take care, everybody. Thanks again. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.